Lecture 19, Sinews of War, Finance and Supply. In our last lecture, we discussed Union and Confederate efforts to keep the ranks of their armies filled. We'll now look at how the two sides raised the money necessary to maintain those armies in the field through a long and grueling war. We'll also assess the relative quality and abundance of the weapons, clothing, and food supplied to soldiers in the opposing armies. And we'll start with the Confederates. The Confederacy struggled mightily to finance its war effort. Uh, the key problem lay in the nature of the Southern economy, the antebellum Southern economy uh, that was in place when the war began. Most Confederate capital was invested in land and slaves, as we've talked about before. It wasn't the kind of economy uh, structured to fight what was a modern uh, technological war in the mid-19th century, not an economy geared to produce all the things that that kind of a war would demand. Uh, couldn't produce the railroad tracks, never mind the engines and the rolling stock and all of the other material of war that each side would need. The South had no financial system capable of meeting the demands of a large-scale war as well. As we also talked about earlier, uh, the South did most of its financial business either in the North or in Europe. Uh, they didn't have that kind of a financial infrastructure uh, in their own borders. So as they surveyed uh, the fiscal landscape of the war, Jefferson Davis and his principal advisors, they realized uh, as the war went on that there were three ways that they could go about raising money. And we'll look at each one of those in turn. And the most obvious way, the way that would probably occur to any of us first, is to tax the citizenry. We'll raise money by levying taxes on our citizens and we'll, in essence, pay for the war as we go along. Christopher Memminger was the Secretary of the Treasury in the Confederacy and that is what he pushed for. He said the only sound way to finance this war is to levy taxes on our citizens. But Congress... Uh, as with all Congresses, uh, was reluctant to do something that would be unpopular uh, with the voters and the citizenry. Congress was very resistant, the Confederate Congress, to passing taxes, especially early in the war. Uh, it's important to remember that there had not been taxes in the United States, these kind of direct taxes uh, intended to raise money in the United States, for about three and a half decades before the Civil War. No internal taxes levied by the federal government because revenues from tariffs and from the sale of western lands had brought enough monies into the federal coffers in those antebellum decades to take care of all the expenses of the United States government. So we're not dealing with a citizenry that's used to being taxed by the central government, and that was another problem that the Confederates were facing. Nonetheless, the Congress did pass a small property tax in August of 1861, a very modest one, and as conditions grew more serious later, a comprehensive tax law was put into effect. Now, this included an income tax uh, that had a scale that went from 1% to 15%. There was also an 8% sales tax on consumer goods and a 10% profits tax on wholesalers. But all of these taxes together didn't begin to cover the expenses of a mushrooming war. Uh, didn't come even within shouting distance of it. And when you put all the taxes together, they yielded only about 5% of the money the Confederacy needed 
to fight the war. They did show, however, uh, just as the National Conscription Act had shown, that the Confederate people were willing to endure the kinds of intrusions from their central government that seemed to be at odds with the state rights, individual freedoms philosophy that they had espoused at the beginning of the war. They're accepting these taxes. The taxes aren't paying for the war, but it shows that the notion of state rights was taking a beating on another front uh, in the Confederacy. So we have taxes. About 5% of the money comes from those taxes. A second way to raise money is by floating bond issues, sell bonds, and get money into the treasury that way. Now, that's more palatable to the citizenry because you don't have to buy bonds. Uh, It's an option on your part. And the Confederacy sold a good number of bonds. In the end, enough to pay for about 30%, perhaps as much as 35% of the war. Uh, They're the kind of bonds that show up in the movie Gone with the Wind, for example, where Gerald O'Hara comes home and he pulls all his bonds out of his desk. He's invested his money in the future of the Confederacy, he says. That's what other people were doing. They're counting on the Confederacy's success, and they're showing uh, their belief uh, in the ability of the South to win by investing their money in the national war effort. So there you have loans, taxation, loans. The third way to get money was simply to print it, to print treasury notes, to print paper money. And paper money brought in the remaining 60% or so of the funds that the Confederacy needed, and this proved to be an absolute disaster. Inflation soared as the government printed more and more and more paper money, and as goods at the same time became scarcer because the Union blockade became more effective, and because Union armies penetrated deeper and deeper into the Confederacy and caused greater and greater dislocation, not only of the Confederate economy, but more especially of the transportation network that could deliver goods from one part of the Confederacy to another. So you have these two factors working at the same time in deadly combination, an abundance of paper money and a shortage of goods, and the result is awful inflation. Inflation soared. Uh, all across the Confederacy. By 1864, it took $46 to buy what $1 had bought in 1861 of many kinds of goods. And by the end of the war, the ratio was $92 to buy what $1 had bought back at the beginning of the war. A combination of factors, the blockade, the northern military, And the failure of Europe to recognize the Confederacy, had Europe recognized the Confederacy, there might have been a number of other options uh, uh, that would have helped the South. Uh, A key one would have been the Royal Navy helping to break the blockade, which would have eased the scarcities at least a bit. But these factors came together to produce financial disarray in the South. All of those are factors, but the most important one is simply the nature of the Southern economy. This economy, so overwhelmingly agricultural, so much wealth tied up in slaves and in land. That kind of an economy was simply not up to paying for an expensive and prolonged modern war. Let's move to the North now. It's a very different picture in the North. The North had a much easier time of coming up with the money necessary to fight its war. Just as the South did, the North used a variety of measures to finance its war effort. Now, at the beginning, there's no national financial structure as we would understand it now in the North. There were more than 7,000 types of banknotes circulating in the North. Local banks would issue their own 
paper notes. State banks would issue their paper notes, and those notes might only be good in a fairly small range from the bank that issued them. You couldn't get a note uh, from your bank in Ohio that would be accepted by a merchant in New York City necessarily. It was a very chaotic system in the North at the beginning of the war. Federal budgets in the 1850s had averaged about 2% of the gross national product. During the war, that percentage would shoot up to 15% of the gross national product, a huge increase uh, that showed uh, the magnitude of the problem that Lincoln and his advisors had to deal with. Well, the North used the same three methods of raising money that the Confederacy used, but they used them in different combinations, different proportions, and they didn't have the same problems that plagued the Confederacy. Let's start with war bonds in the North. The North sold a variety of war bonds. The most common one was called a 520 bond. It paid 6% interest, and it was redeemable in not less than five and not more than 20 years. The North pursued the novel idea of having the people buy government bonds uh, rather than having banks buy them. Uh, really, the, the <coughs> ancestor, if you will, of the practice during World War I and World War II in the United States of having these huge bond drives where individual citizens uh, purchased bonds came from this union effort in the Civil War. Uh, Jay Cook, a prominent banker from Philadelphia, was the prime mover behind pushing uh, these war bonds in the North. Uh, his banking house became very successful during the war. He became one of the most powerful financial figures in the United States. Eventually, more than a million Northerners bought government bonds, uh, and that tied them to their government. Alexander Hamilton had argued this back in debates over the nature of the federal constitution, how you should tie people to their new government. Hamilton said people with a financial interest in their government are going to be tied to it. That's one way to help ensure the loyalty of your citizenry. He wanted people to be tied to the government in that sense, and that's what's happening in the Civil War. Millions of northern people in the end feel a direct tie because they've made a financial investment in the war effort beyond their hope to save the Union, or beyond, if they happen to be abolitionists, their hope to see the war kill slavery, they actually have this other way in which they're tied to the national government and to the national war effort. This also represented a step, uh, this uh, system of loans toward modernizing the nation's capitalist system. It's something that suited the Republican vision of what kind of a nation the United States should be. In the last three years of the war, the North sold $1.5 billion worth of these bonds. To put that in perspective, the United States government's entire budget in 1860 was $63 million. $63 million ran the entire United States government. Here they're selling $1.5 billion worth of bonds during the war. So that's one method for the North to raise money. They also issued treasury notes in the North. In late 1861 and early 1862, the United States government was running out of money, out of hard money, out of gold and silver. There simply wasn't enough to pay for all the war-related supplies that were needed. Congress, in response to this, authorized what the Confederacy had already resorted to, and that was the printing of paper money. This was a difficult decision 
because many people only trusted silver and gold. They only trusted something that would clink when it hit the ground. They wanted something they could feel rattle around in their pocket or hear it uh, jangle in their pocket. That was money to them. Paper, the notion of paper money, brought back uh, terrible memories of the Revolutionary War when the Continental Congress printed what turned out to be worthless paper money. Uh, Not worth a continental was still an expression in the United States, meaning what could be more worthless than this piece of paper money? Uh, That memory of the revolution was still quite strong in the United States, and many Northerners were wary of the government's issuing paper money. They wanted hard money. But money was so desperately needed that Congress passed legislation on February 25, 1862, called the Legal Tender Act, and it authorized the issuance of $150 million in treasury notes that came to be called greenbacks. Uh, Our green money uh, that we use now uh, is uh, descended from these original treasury notes issued during the Civil War, the greenbacks. Their money was bigger than ours, but that color uh, was put in place then, and we're still going with it. Now, federal paper money did not devalue nearly as badly as the Confederate paper money did, and there are several reasons uh, for this. First, unlike the Confederate paper money, these greenbacks were made legal tender. They were receivable for all debts, public or private, with just a very few exceptions. Uh, Two of the main exceptions were that you couldn't use these to pay import duties, and you couldn't use them to pay the interest on the national debt. Well, most citizens weren't worried about paying the interest on the national debt. Uh, They just wanted to make sure that their paper money would be accepted for the normal things that you would have to pay for. So that's one strength of this paper money in the North. It is legal tender. Secondly, it was issued in the winter and spring of 1862 at a time when Northern Arms was achieving success uh, out in the West. The Northern Army was. It was winning uh, in Tennessee and it was seemed to be doing well almost across the board. In other words, it wasn't a period of despair in the North. Uh, when the Union armies were in retreat, uh, there was a good deal of optimism. And so this seemed to be a measure that might work. Uh, all things else, all, things, uh, all other things going well, uh, this didn't seem to be any kind of a harbinger of bad tidings for the North. Strong confidence in the war effort, that helped ease the shock of this paper money. And finally, Congress also levied taxes at the same time that it announced uh, that these greenbacks uh, would be put into circulation. And that helped relieve part of the inflationary pressures on the wartime economy. By the end of the war, the North had issued nearly half a billion dollars worth of greenbacks. Nearly half a billion. All right, paper money. Bonds. The third way to raise money is taxes, just as in the Confederacy. And the North levied a variety of taxes. The North also had an income tax, just as the South did. Uh, The brackets went from 3% to 10% in the North. There were also excise taxes on a wide range of products, tobacco, liquor, yachts. There was increased uh, revenue coming in from tariffs. Uh, Higher tariffs were placed on goods Uh, to protect the industries of the United States, the domestic industries, from the burden of the new internal taxes. And altogether, these taxes brought in about $600 million in the last three years of the war. So the North is using the same methods to raise money, but it's using those methods more effectively. 
The Republican Congress also turned its attention to creating a national banking system, tried to bring rationality to a national uh, financial system that had been, as we said earlier, rather chaotic. Passed in February 1863 what was called the National Bank Act, supplemented by a second act in June of 1864. What this act did was set up guidelines under which a bank could get a federal charter and issue national bank notes up to 90% of the value of the government bonds that that bank held. So if the bank bought a million dollars worth of government bonds, it could issue $900,000 worth of bank notes against those bonds. This was designed to replace the hundreds of state banks and that welter of paper currency that had been in place when the war began. The process went slowly. At first, all the state banks didn't rush to convert, uh, but Congress decided to add uh, an incentive, and the incentive was, uh, this was from legislation in early 1865, that there would be in the future a 10% tax on all state bank notes. Well, that's a hefty tax. That got the attention of bankers all across the United States, and the result was that by the end of 1865, there were nearly 1,300 federally charted banks in the United States and just 350 state banks. By 1873, state bank notes had virtually disappeared from the United States. So this was a very successful piece of legislation from the Republican point of view. All of this legislation, the Legal Tender Act, uh, the National Bank Act, and so forth, all of that was the work of the Republicans in Congress. They supported it overwhelmingly. The Democrats tended to oppose all of this legislation. On the whole, the Northern financial measures, as I've said, were very successful. Union policymakers were able to avoid the terrible inflation that plagued the South. Southern inflation soared to about 9,000%, as we've seen. Union inflation only reached about 80%. 80%. In World War II and World War I, inflation in the United States was about 72% in each case. Union financing broke down this way. Uh, 13% of revenues came in from paper money. That's opposed to about 60% for the Confederates. 21% from taxes as opposed to about 5% from the Confederates. And 66% in loans as opposed to about 35% for the Confederates. The Union economy, the Northern economy, was so robust during the war that it was able to provide all of the military goods that were needed and all of the domestic goods that its citizenry needed behind the lines. It produced both guns and butter without rationing or price controls. It's really a quite astonishing feat for the northern economy, and it presents uh, an enormous contrast, of course, with what was going on behind the lines in the Confederacy. So they have their money raised. Let's see what they did with their money. What kinds of goods did they produce? How well did they feed and equip their armies? can say from the beginning that Confederate soldiers, this is a very general statement, but Confederate soldiers fought at at least a slight disadvantage in most areas in terms of what they fired, uh, the kind of ammunition they had, and what they ate and what they wore. But they're very slight disadvantages. It's easy to overstate this. You often get a sense from reading accounts of the Civil War that you have shivering Confederates in ragged uniforms with no shoes and outmoded weapons uh, trying to hold back an, an absolutely uh, brilliantly 
supplied northern foe, northern soldiers with full uniforms and overcoats over those and raincoats over those and new shoes and so much food in their haversacks that it sort of weighs them down and brand new weaponry. Uh, It's David against Goliath in much of the literature, and that simply isn't accurate. Uh, The Confederates weren't woefully uh, uh, disadvantaged vis-a-vis their northern opponents. But let's look at several categories here, and let's start with arms. Almost all Confederate soldiers had rifle muskets by the middle of the war. That is, they had up-to-date, modern shoulder weapons. That isn't to say that all of them did. Uh, Well past the middle point of the war, there were still Confederate units armed with the old-fashioned smoothbores, Uh, the unit that fired the volley that wounded Stonewall Jackson at Chancellorsville, for example, on May the 2nd, 1863, was armed with smoothbores. Some of the biggest Confederate units at Gettysburg were still armed with smoothbores. So they don't all have modern weapons, but the vast majority of them by the midpoint of the war have rifle muskets. A quarter of a million of these muskets were produced in the South. About 100,000 were captured from northern soldiers, and another 600,000 were imported from somewhere in Europe. The most popular of those imported from Europe were Enfield muskets produced in England. Uh, They were very good muskets, a little bit lighter than many of the American ones, very accurate. They were popular both in the Confederate Army and the Union Army. Now, northern soldiers were armed with rifle muskets on average a little bit earlier than the Confederates, uh, but not a great deal sooner than the Confederates. In some Union uh, units also had smoothbores quite late in the war. Uh, The Irish Brigade, the famous famous Irish Brigade in the Union Army, uh, got rifle muskets rather late in the war, for example. About two and a half million rifle muskets were produced in the North. Another million were purchased in Europe. The North also produced modern kinds of weapons that the Confederacy didn't produce at all. They, in the North, produced 175,000 repeating arms, together with about 160,000 breech-loading arms. The Confederacy couldn't make these kinds of weapons. The repeating arms, uh, the Spencer's the most famous example of that. It could fire seven shots uh, without stopping to reload. That's an enormous technological advance over the single-shot muzzle-loading rifle musket. The North could have armed a good number of its soldiers with these, but there was resistance within the Army bureaucracy uh, toward doing this. They thought that soldiers armed with repeating weapons would shoot up their ammunition too quickly and put a great burden on the Ordnance Department and maybe place themselves in peril on some battlefield. So mainly cavalrymen were armed with repeating weapons in the North and not all the cavalrymen. Uh, The same with the breech-loading carbines, that is, carbines that would load from the back uh, rather than from the muzzle. The Confederacy lacked uh, the brass to make cartridges for many of these weapons, uh, so even if they captured them from the North, uh, they weren't very useful. Breach loaders and repeaters, mainly cavalry weapons uh, for the North. But the most important weapon on both sides is that rifle musket, and both sides pretty much had armed their soldiers with them by the middle of the war. All right, what about ordnance? What about the powder and the ammunition that both sides used? This was one area where the Southern arms never really were at a disadvantage in terms of quantity. The Confederacy produced all of the powder that it needed for its armies. But the quality of its artillery ammunition, uh, not 
the infantry ammunition, but the artillery an, uh, ammunition was much lower on average than northern artillery ammunition. Civil War artillery rounds, many of them uh, had fuses. They were designed to explode in the air. You'd estimate the distance. You'd cut the fuse. It's not like a cartoon fuse that sticks out of the round. It's an internal fuse, but you'd estimate the distance. You'd cut the fuse, and you'd fire the round, and theoretically, it would explode at the right place and hit the target. Confederates never could get the fuses right. They had many, many rounds that either exploded prematurely or didn't explode at all. They would go all the way over the target and just plow uh, into the dirt. Uh, One Confederate artillerist at the Battle of Chancellorsville in May 1863 estimated that only one round in ten that his battery fired uh, had fuses that worked correctly. So you had the phenomenon of Confederate gunners not being sure where their rounds were going to explode, and Confederate infantry did not like their artillery firing over their heads uh, because the rounds would often explode too soon. There are a couple of instances of Confederate infantry units turning around, uh, pointing their muskets at the artillerists behind them and saying, stop shooting over our heads. Uh, Your rounds are exploding. We're going to fire on you if you keep doing that. I don't think they really would have, but they were making a point. And it was a point that the artillerists took. Union artillery ammunition, on the whole, much more reliable. The Confederates have plenty of it, but it isn't nearly as good. They did have a man who can only be called a genius, uh, Josiah Gorgas, the Confederacy did. He was a northerner living in the south. He presided over the Confederate ordnance effort, and he kept ordnance flowing to southern armies. Uh, The South melted church bells down on occasion to turn them into cannons. Uh, The women even were on occasion were asked to save the contents of their chamber pots to be collected by government agents, and those contents then leached uh, to extract the niter to produce gunpowder. Stills were seized to be melted down for their copper, a tremendous hardship uh, on some localities to see a really treasured still go. But anything for the cause, I suppose, was the attitude among many of the Confederates. A huge powder mills was built at Augusta, Georgia. In fact, it was the largest in North America. There was no powder mill as large in the North. Arsenals and ironworks were built in Selma, Alabama. Uh, During 1863, more than 10,000 people in Selma were engaged in war-related production. 10,000 workers in Selma, Alabama. Uh, There were also arsenals and ironworks in Richmond and Charleston and other places. Many women were employed in these war industries in the Confederacy. Uh, Many of them made uh, wrap-the-paper cartridges uh, that the soldiers would carry. That involved close handwork, and women performed a lot of that. Sixty-nine women were killed in March of 1863 when an ordnance laboratory exploded in Richmond, Virginia. It's really quite a record that the agricultural, rural South compiled in the area of gearing up to reach a war industry level that would support the massive armies that they had in the field. Quite astonishing and quite effective. In 1864, for example, Alabama produced four times as much iron as any state in the antebellum years had produced. But it's nothing like the northern war machine, of course. Northern industry far exceeded the Confederates, and it didn't take the the heroic efforts to put it in place in the North. The industry was already in place. It just needed to be retooled in many uh, cases. Now, Northern armies almost always had abundant ordnance and almost had uh, almost always had very high-quality ordnance. Uh, there's 
There's only a difference in quality and uh, not in quantity. So if you're a Confederate soldier, you can count on having enough powder. You can count on having enough ammunition. If you're a gunner, it might not be very good ammunition. What about commissary, that is food, and quartermaster, clothing dimensions of this? Here the North had a distinct advantage. The breakdown of the Southern Rail System as the war went on, uh, the loss of food-growing areas to advancing Union armies, but especially the breakdown of the transportation infrastructure, which prevented the delivery of food from areas where it could be grown to areas where it was needed, really hurt the Confederacy. Uh, Lee's army, for example, went long stretches with a daily ration of two to four ounces of meat and a pint of cornmeal. That meat was often fat bacon. That's the pre-cooked weight of that ration. Many of the soldiers didn't even cook their meat ration because it essentially cooked away. So they would eat either raw or just barely cooked bacon uh, with their cornmeal. It was a very rough diet. Uh, there were not heavy Confederate soldiers very early into the war. It was a very lean group of men. Their calorie intake was quite low. Northern soldiers fed much better. On the whole, clothing was also better for the typical Northern soldier. Confederates often suffered from shortages of shoes, not to the degree that many of the accounts would make you think. Most Confederate soldiers had shoes. Northern soldiers uh, had better shoes, generally, and less often lacked shoes altogether. The Northern Army really uh, represents the beginning of another trend in United States military history, which is to produce massive quantities of goods, uh, so many that there was tremendous wastage uh, but your armies were almost always better clothed and fed and provisioned than your opponent. As one Union general admitted somewhat sheepishly, a French army half the size of ours could be supplied with what we waste. Uh, many other armies that have fought the United States in the 20th century, I think, could make that same claim. The Northern War economy, as I said, proved perfectly capable of providing all of these things while at the same time providing the consumer goods. So overall, Union soldiers uh, were a bit better armed, uh, often a bit better fed, sometimes much more than a bit better, and also better clothed than their southern counterparts. And although the South never lost a battle for want of arms or powder or sufficient food and clothing, I think it's fair to say that superior supply uh, must be counted as a factor that ultimately helped tip the balance uh, of the war in favor of the North. Lecture 20, The War in the West, Winter, 1862 to 63. With this lecture, we return to the military front after several lectures away from it. We last looked at armies and battles in the autumn of 1862, leaving the Western Theater with Braxton Bragg and Edmund Kirby Smith retreating from Kentucky after the Battle of Perryville, and the Eastern Theater with Robert E. Lee occupying a position just south of the Potomac River, having withdrawn from the bloody battlefield at Antietam. As we move into the winter of 1862, the North would enter a period of minimal good news from the battlefield that would test a Union resolve, both civilian resolve and military resolve. This lecture uh, will do several things. Uh, we'll look at 
northern morale in the autumn of 1862 before this next round of campaigning began. Then we'll look at a winter campaign in Tennessee that climaxed in the Battle of Murfreesboro, or Stones River, another one of those battles with two names. And finally, we'll look at Ulysses S. Grant's early attempts to capture the Confederate stronghold at Vicksburg uh, on the Mississippi River. Let's start by looking at the sentiment in the north in the autumn of 1862, the sentiment uh, that looked to the battlefield with a sense that things were going wrong uh, for the North, or at least not as right as they should be going for the North, uh, and look to the battlefield with the hope that things would turn around. There's considerable dissatisfaction, both in the civilian and the military sectors of the North, in the late fall of 1862. As Northerners looked across the strategic map of the war, they saw that in the East, George B. McClellan had failed to follow up the Battle of Antietam. He hadn't pushed the Army of Northern Virginia. After that battle, Lee had been allowed to retreat. Uh, He had retreated almost at leisure away from the battlefield at Sharpsburg. He'd gotten back across the Potomac River without any damage being done, any significant damage, by George B. McClellan. And after Lee had retreated, McClellan had just waited and waited uh, near the old battlefield at Antietam, and the Northern people were unhappy about that. Abraham Lincoln was very unhappy about it. In the West... Don Carlos Buell had behaved the same way after the Battle of Perryville. Uh, He'd just let Braxton Bragg go, and Braxton Bragg, after reuniting with Edmund Kirby Smith, had left Kentucky absolutely unmolested by Don Carlos Buell's much larger United States Army. Uh, Similarly, there was no follow-up to the Union victory at Corinth in northern Mississippi, which had taken place, uh, as we saw earlier, uh, during the first week of October. 1862. So nothing had come uh, in a dramatic sense of the Union successes at Antietam, Perryville, and Corinth. This is in the minds of many people in the North. It seemed that so much more uh, could have been accomplished, a disappointment that more was not. Now, Abraham Lincoln was acutely aware of the fact that positive results on the battlefield were necessary to keep the Northern people inspirited, to keep the broadest possible portion of the North tied to the war effort. He had to have positive results from the battlefield, and he eventually decided that he was simply not going to be able to prod either McClellan or Buell into action, and that he would have to make changes in command at the top of his major armies in the West, one of his major armies in the West, and his major army in the East. And in the end, that is exactly what he did. He removed Buell and replaced him with William Stark Rosecrans, and he replaced McClellan with Ambrose Everett Burnside. And he made it clear to both of those men, to both Rosecrans and Burnside, that he expected action before the year was out. Now, this is unusual because, as we've said before, There are rhythms to campaigning uh, in the mid-19th century. During the Civil War, you campaigned in the spring and in the summer and in the fall, but it was most unusual to campaign in the winter. Uh, It's a measure of how important Lincoln believed it was to have good news from the battlefield uh, that we're going to see winter campaigning in December and January of 1862-1863. Lincoln believed it was necessary uh, to produce the kinds of... uh, success on the battlefield that would allow the northern people to take heart and would sustain the Union cause. 
We'll start by looking at a battle, one of the largest battles of the war, that Rosecrans and Braxton Bragg fought in Middle Tennessee, uh, fought near Murfreesboro, the Battle of Stones River, or Murfreesboro. Braxton Bragg had withdrawn into Middle Tennessee following the Kentucky campaign uh, and had taken up a position just a few dozen miles from Nashville, southeast of Nashville. He commanded uh, what was now called the Army of Tennessee. It had been the old Army of Mississippi. Now it's the Army of Tennessee. This will be, together with the Army of Northern Virginia, uh, one of the two principal Confederate field armies for the rest of the war. Bragg's army had about 36,000 men. He faced the Union Army of the Cumberland. Again, uh, the usual pattern of naming armies. Bragg's army is named after the state of Tennessee. And I think it was an optimistic gesture uh, on the part of the Confederacy, indicating that the Confederacy meant to hold on to Tennessee or to reclaim Tennessee. They've decided to name this major army uh, in the West uh, after a state that was largely in Union control at this stage of the war. So it's named after the state, and as was the pattern with the North, uh, the other army is the Army of the Cumberland, named after the Cumberland River, commanded by Rosecrans. It numbered about 42,000 men. Rosecrans understood very well that Lincoln expected action from him. Uh, Rosecrans is a man who had been on the scene for a good part of the war. He's an intelligent, competent graduate of West Point. Uh, he'd had a lackluster career in the old army. That's the perhaps a generous way to describe it. Uh, he'd resigned his commission in the 1850s. We've seen how many of these soldiers got out of the army in the mid-1850s because there really wasn't much chance uh, for advancement certainly not much chance to make very much money in the Army. And he ended up heading a kerosene refinery in Cincinnati uh, at the time of the outbreak of war. Came back into, into federal service, as so many West Pointers did, and he'd participated in the campaigning in Western Virginia in 1861. Those campaigns that had uh, made George B. McClellan one of the early Union war heroes. Much of the fighting and accomplishment uh, had come from McClellan's lieutenants, Rosecrans among them, but McClellan had gotten most of the credit. Uh, after that action in western Virginia, Rosecrans had been sent out to the Western Theater where he had campaigned under Halleck and Grant before, giving command, uh, before receiving command, I should say now, of the Army of the Cumberland. So here he is, new in field command and with instructions to make something happen. And that's what he proceeded to do. He moved south out of Nashville the day after Christmas in 1862 uh, and embarked on this unusual winter campaign. He moved toward Murfreesboro, which is about 30 miles southeast of Nashville. That's where Bragg's army was reported. Now, as he moved, he was harassed. Uh, his supply lines were harassed, I should say, by Confederate cavalry under Nathan Bedford Forrest and John Hunt Morgan and Joseph Wheeler. Again, this is a pattern that we've seen before. As Union armies move deeper into the Confederacy, uh, their supply lines, sometimes uh, very tenuous, were subject uh, to being hit and broken by Confederate cavalry. That's happening to Rosecrans, but Rosecrans moved ahead anyway. Uh, he moved, uh, in fact, uh, quite spectacularly well, uh, especially when compared to what his predecessor, Buell, uh, had been used to doing. Ahead of him was Braxton Bragg's Army of Tennessee, positioned uh, behind Stones River, a uh, little northwest of the town of Murfreesboro. The armies came together, very close to one another, less than a mile apart, on the night of December 30, 
1862. And you had one of those scenes, those really memorable scenes from the war, uh, that certainly stuck in the minds of everybody who was present. Apparently, a band on one side or the other started to play patriotic tunes that night. It was very quiet, a quiet winter night. Northern band played uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic or some such song, Yankee Doodle. And when it finished, a Confederate band answered, played Dixie or the Bonnie Blue Flag or Maryland, My Maryland or some patriotic uh, Confederate song. When it finished, a Union band answered and then a Confederate band answered and you had this this uh, battle of the bands, so to speak, going on into the night as men on both sides listened. Toward the end of this, one side, this band began to play Home Sweet Home, uh, which was the most popular song in both armies uh, during the war. Very sentimental, uh, put men in a very, uh, very much thinking of home frame of mind. And all the bands began to play Home Sweet Home uh, together. Soldiers on both sides singing along and undoubtedly thinking about their homes and loved ones. Now, this was one of the many occasions in the war when the soldiers were reminded that they did share a great deal, that they were all, at least in some sense, uh, Americans. And it's the kind of incident that many historians of the war have liked to emphasize to, to show. These are all Americans. Isn't it a tragedy that they're fighting each other? They're really so much more alike uh, than they were different. But I would caution you not to make too much of this. Uh, they were all Americans, but they also believed that there were tremendous differences between them, and there was a great deal of enmity, there was a great deal of hatred uh, between the soldiers on one side or the other, and examples of fraternization and examples such as this uh, duel between the bands uh, before the Battle of Murfreesboro uh, should not be taken as evidence that there were really only surface differences uh, and it was almost an accident uh, that they ended up fighting each other. There's a tremendous amount of very deep-seated antagonism between the sides, but much of that uh, fell aside uh, on the evening of December 30 uh, in those woods and fields in Middle Tennessee. Bragg and Rosecrans both planned for the battle the next day, and just as Beauregard and McDowell had planned to do the same thing before the Battle of First Manassas, they both came up with the same plan as well. Each of them was going to attack the other's right flank. At Manassas, it was each was going to attack the other's left flank, but here they both intend to attack the other's right flank. No frontal assault will get around the flank. In this instance, the Confederates launched their assaults first. Braxton Bragg's men got going at dawn on December 31st, 1862, hoping to pin Rosecrans's army against Stones River and cut Rosecrans off from his direct route to Nashville. The Confederate assaults went well at first. Two federal divisions were essentially swept from the field, a very hard fighting. Rosecrans uh, behaved in an absolutely exemplary way during the fight. He moved up toward the fighting. He, it, he took a very active uh, role in trying to keep his troops together. Uh, at one point, he was riding with his chief of staff near him, and a, a Confederate cannonball decapitated uh, his chief of staff. Splattered blood and gray matter uh, all over Rosecrans, but he was oblivious to it. He was so focused on what needed to be done to keep the Union lines intact uh, that he didn't even really, or wasn't at the time anyway, really aware of what had happened to his staff officer. 
One key stand was made by a Union division commanded by a young soldier named Philip H. Sheridan. Now, this is the first time we've really talked about Sheridan on a battlefield. He's commanding an infantry division here uh, and doing very well. Uh, he would end up as one of the great Union soldiers of the war. He'd end up moving east with Grant when Grant went east in 1864 and would become the commander of all of Grant's cavalry uh, during the Overland Campaign and eventually would be an army commander in the Shenandoah Valley. Well, here's Philip Sheridan uh, holding his division together in the face of massive Confederate uh, attacks. Three of his brigade commanders were killed. A third of Sheridan's men were shot down, but Sheridan helped keep the Union line intact. Uh, one little piece of the landscape here, four acres of forest, became known as Hell's Half Acre because the fighting was so fierce. Well, in the end, Bragg was not able to smash uh, Rosecrans's army, although he did push it back and make Rosecrans reconfigure his lines. Bragg thought he'd won a victory. Uh, he'd done something of the sort at Perryville, uh, although he hadn't really understood everything that was happening at Perryville. He thought briefly that he'd won a victory there. Uh, he was quite certain that he'd won a victory here on the first day of fighting uh, at Murfreesboro, and he sent a telegram uh, that night to Richmond announcing uh, that he'd had a great success. On the Union side, some of Rosecrans's officers suggested that the Army of the Cumberland retreat. They thought that they had been beaten as well. But Rosecrans held fast, and the next day, each side shifted some troops to the east side across Stones River. Not much fighting took place. This is New Year's Day. Shifting, realignment going on. Bragg expecting Rosecrans to retreat. Rosecrans didn't. And when January 2nd came, Bragg decided to renew his assaults. Now, he talked about his subordinates, Bragg did about this. He wanted to attack a part of Rosecrans's line uh, on the east side of Stones River that had considerable artillery support, clearly had artillery support. Bragg's lieutenant said, no, don't attack. It looks like too strong a position. We don't think uh, that you should attack that. Bragg overruled them. Uh, this was going to cause tension that lingered long after the battle. There were going to be recriminations after the battle uh, directed toward Bragg by his lieutenants who said that this attack should not have been launched. But the attack was launched, and it was an abysmal failure. Uh, the Southern Brigades attacked into a strong Union position. Fifty-eight Union cannons raked the attackers at one time or another, and the assaults produced nothing uh, but piles of Confederate casualties. This is another instance of Bragg's being aggressive, uh, and we'll see others. He could be aggressive, but he seemed not to be able uh, to be aggressive in a way that yielded results on a battlefield, results beyond significant casualties. Bragg drew back after this second day of hard fighting on January the 2nd and decided that his position near Murfreesboro was no longer tenable. He worried about his supplies. Uh, he worried about the level of casualties. Uh, and he also, I think, must have known that he didn't really have the confidence either of his principal subordinates or of the men in the ranks. Uh, it was an army, uh, officers and men, uh, without much faith in its commander, and Bragg decided to retreat. The Army of Tennessee fell back about 35 miles uh, to the south on January 3rd and 4th. So another instance of Bragg having announced success and then having to retreat. This is something that people remembered as well. We've won. 
and then were going to retreat uh, on Bragg's part. He left behind incredible carnage. In terms of percentages of the armies lost as casualties, this is the bloodiest battle of the Civil War, the Battle of Stones River. The combined casualty rate was simply staggering. 12,000 Confederate casualties, a third of Braxton Bragg's army. 13,000 Federal casualties, more than 30% of Rosecrans's army. And it didn't yield a decisive result. Uh, Bragg was still in Middle Tennessee. Rosecrans didn't pursue him. Bragg simply fell back to a position a bit closer to the Georgia border. But still, it was much better than a defeat. It was much better uh, than uh, what might have happened in this instance. And Lincoln was actually pleased, or at least cautiously pleased, with what had happened. He sent a message to Rosecrans uh, saying that if this had been a real defeat, and I'll quote him here, the nation could scarcely have lived through it. Uh, You can almost see uh, Lincoln breathing a sigh of relief. Here is a battle that resulted in a Confederate retreat. Uh, That at least can be construed as a Union victory, even if it isn't a clear-cut and decisive uh, Union victory. The strategic situation didn't change at all as a result of the Battle of Murfreesboro or Stones River, but at least it wasn't a Union retreat. It's the last fighting in this theater during that winter. It will be even past the spring before Rosecrans and Bragg will engage one another again uh, in significant fighting. All right, let's shift to the Mississippi River and let's look at the initial phase of Ulysses S. Grant's operations against Vicksburg. Vicksburg was the great remaining Confederate stronghold on the Mississippi River. Uh, As you'll remember, the Federals had already taken control of the upper reaches of the Mississippi. Uh, They controlled Columbus, Kentucky, all the way down to Memphis, Tennessee. That part of the river was solidly in Union hands, as was the lower stretch of the river from the Gulf up to New Orleans and then on north of New Orleans toward Baton Rouge. The Confederates only controlled this middle piece of the river, uh, really between Vicksburg and Port Hudson, Louisiana. Those are their two remaining strong points, but Vicksburg is the more important of the two. It is the key to Union control of the entire sweep of the Mississippi River. Until Vicksburg fell, uh, Union plans to control the river uh, could not be completed. And so that is Grant's charge in this campaign. How is he going to get at Vicksburg? How is he going to complete this part of old Winfield Scott's uh, Anaconda uh, campaign, take control of the Mississippi. He hoped to threaten the stronghold primarily from two directions. He would come out of Tennessee overland with an army, marching southward into Mississippi, and try to put himself in a position to come against Vicksburg from the east. A second force, under his friend William Tecumseh Sherman, would try to put itself in a position to threaten the city from the north. So you'd have this two-pronged Union offensive uh, coming against the city from the northern reaches along uh, the Mississippi River and the waterways uh, that branched off of it to the north and Grant trying to swing in from the east against Vicksburg. Most of the defenses at Vicksburg, of course, had been built with the intention of stopping passage of Union vessels. Uh, past the city on the Mississippi River. Those batteries, the entrenchments, the placement of cannons and so forth, 
faced away from the city toward the water. Grant is hoping to get himself in a position to come at the city from the other direction where the defenses would not be as strong. So that's the plan. But things went wrong with the plan from the very beginning. Grant's portion of the offensive ran into trouble with Confederate cavalry. Again, this is a leitmotif we've seen in campaigning in the West. Confederate cavalry is going to uh, play havoc uh, with the rear echelons of Union armies trying to march deeper into Southern territory, and that's what happened to Grant. Uh, Confederate cavalry under Nathan Bedford Forrest disrupted his communications in Tennessee. Uh, Forrest cavalry tore up several dozen miles of track that Grant was using. Even more damaging than that was a raid carried out by the Confederate cavalryman Earl Van Dorn. Van Dorn's force destroyed a huge Union supply base at Holly Springs, Mississippi on December 20th, 1862, and the combination of these two strikes uh, by Nathan Bedford Forrest and by Earl Van Dorn convinced Grant that he was going to have to abandon Uh, his plans to come overland from Tennessee and try to get at Vicksburg from the east. As Grant retreated, however, he learned a lesson. As he later observed uh, in his memoirs, he noted during the return to Tennessee that there was a great deal of food and fodder that his army could have siphoned off uh, from the Confederate countryside. And he put it this way. He said, it showed that we could have subsisted off the country for two months. This taught me a lesson. Uh, He would remember that lesson for the next phase of the Vicksburg campaign. But that's the end of Grant's portion uh, of the uh, first approach to Vicksburg. Now, his friend Sherman also ran into trouble. Sherman's part of the plan was predicated on the Confederates having to divide their attention uh, between the different Union threats to Vicksburg. With Grant removed from the board, uh, the Confederates were able to concentrate on Sherman, and Sherman worked himself into a position uh, to attack the Confederates, but the attacks were a dismal failure in the Battle of Chickasaw Bayou on December 29, 1862. There were nearly 2,000 Union casualties, only about 200 Confederate casualties suffered by uh, troops under John C. Pemberton, the Confederate who opposed Sherman there. So the entire first phase of the campaign had ended in failure for Grant. He'd come up with a plan. The plan had not worked, and he had to go back to the drawing board during the winter and into the spring of 1863. He had to try to figure out a way to get his men and supplies into what he considered the best ground across which to approach the city, and that ground was south of the city on the same side of the river, that is the east side of the Mississippi, or to come in from east of Vicksburg. Good terrain there, bad terrain, very rugged, uh, hilly, formidable terrain north of the city. The best way was from the south or from the east. The question is how to get his troops into a position to do that. He tried various things through that winter. The Union engineers and the soldiers did a lot of planning and digging and expended great effort trying to find alternate routes that would avoid uh, key Confederate defenses, especially the four miles of batteries at Vicksburg, and yet allow the Federal troops to have either a good position uh, 
north of the city or a good position south of the city. They tried finding alternate waterways, following little tributaries uh, of the Mississippi. They tried to use the Yazoo River and its tributaries uh, as uh, routes to get into a favorable position to get at the city. Uh, They even tried to dig uh, canals. Uh, That might be a way, Grant thought, uh, to put together some successful approach to Vicksburg. But none of these things worked out in the end. And by late March, he decided that what he was going to have to do was have the naval forces cooperating with him, uh, commanded by David Dixon Porter, run past the batteries at Vicksburg, get into a position south of the city so that Grant, who would have shifted his infantry to the west side of the river, marched them downriver. Uh, those troops then could march to a point below Vicksburg, have the Union vessels which had run past the batteries ferry them over uh, to the east side of the river, and then Grant would be in position to launch his campaign. It was a campaign, uh, as he envisioned it, that would not need supply lines. Once he was east of the river, he would strike toward Jackson, Mississippi, and then back toward Vicksburg from the east. It was a very uh, daring plan. It went against much of the military convention, but he believed he could live off the land he had, as we've just seen, decided that was the case when he retreated back to Tennessee. Uh, He also probably had in mind the fact that Winfield Scott had conducted just that kind of campaign in the last phase of his march uh, against Mexico City during the Mexican War. So that is Grant's plan. Well, he shared his plan with his principal subordinates, with William Tecumseh Sherman, with David Dixon Porter, and they didn't like the idea. Uh, They thought that it was too risky. In fact, Sherman recommended returning to Memphis, Tennessee. He said, let's just go back to Memphis, pull everybody into Memphis, uh, go through another round of planning and start afresh uh, with a solid supply line. Grant said, no, we can't seem to retreat that way. That would be too hard uh, on northern morale. Uh, That simply won't work. Uh, Lincoln also had doubts about whether this idea of running past the Vicksburg batteries would work. And Porter and the Navy men uh, were quite understandably uh, reluctant to do this. They were the ones who were going to be in the ships. Uh, They thought that perhaps it wasn't the very best idea. But Grant decided to go with it. Uh, He was capable of this kind of decisive decision-making. He's much like Lee in that regard. And so ahead he went. And on April 16th, the Union naval vessels, many of them with cotton bales uh, stacked along their sides to protect them, ran past the Vicksburg batteries. They did it at night. The Confederates went down to the river, lit huge bonfires that illuminated the evening. One of Grant's children remembered uh, later in life Uh, He'd been there as a boy on the west side of the river. He said it seemed like daylight. These fires were so bright. The Confederate gunners found their marks. Every Union vessel was hit. Uh, Most of them were set afire, and one sank. But the rest of the 12 got past the battery safely. A few nights later, on April 22nd, six transports and 12 barges tried their luck. One transport, six of the barges were sunk. The vessel carrying the medical supplies for Grant's troops uh, went down. But the other ones got through, and Grant now had a fair amount of material below Vicksburg. He moved his infantry, just as he had planned, from the west side of the river to the east, and he had accomplished what he had sought in this phase of the campaign. As he later wrote in his memoirs, I was on dry ground on the same side of the river as the enemy. All the campaigns, labors, hardships, and exposures from the month of December 1862 onward were for the accomplishment of this one object. By May 1st, Grant 
had 23,000 infantry at Port Gibson, Mississippi, and he was prepared to go to the next phase of his campaign. Now, this was an accomplishment that had been born of desperation, really. Grant had tried so many other things, none of which had worked. Now, this bold move, this great risk that he had taken, had paid off by at least putting him in a good starting position. But it wasn't clear by any means that he would be successful from here. All he had done is put himself in a position where he might be successful. Uh, The North, in other words, couldn't take great heart from this. This isn't a great victory that will inspirit the North. It's just a continuation, a positive one, but a continuation of Grant's campaign. There's going to have to be a period of waiting and seeing, in other words, whether Grant uh, will be successful, whether Grant will in the end deliver the kind of victory at Vicksburg that the northern people so desperately needed. What we will do in our next lecture uh, is turn our attention to what had been transpiring in Virginia during this same period. There had been enormously important events going on in Virginia, even as Grant was trying to maneuver and get his way into a position uh, to take Vicksburg from December until May of 63. Uh, December 62 to May of 63, Grant is maneuvering in the west, uh, in the east. There will be two large battles in that same period, and it is to those two large battles uh, that we will turn our attention next time. Lecture 21, The War in Virginia, Winter and Spring, 1862-63. This lecture will continue our examination of military events in the late autumn and winter of 1862 and the spring of 1863. And our topics will be two major campaigns in the Eastern Theater, which unfolded while William S. Rosecrans and Ulysses S. Grant uh, were campaigning in Tennessee and along the Mississippi River out west. We'll begin by looking at Abraham Lincoln's decision to remove George B. McClellan as commander of the Army of the Potomac and replace him with Ambrose E. Burnside. Then we'll examine Burnside's strategic planning and the disastrous Union defeat at Fredericksburg and its bitter aftermath for the North. We'll finish up with a discussion of Burnside's successor, Joseph Hooker, uh, known as Fighting Joe Hooker, and Hooker's ignominious defeat at the hands of Lee and Stonewall Jackson in the Chancellorsville campaign. But we'll start uh, with a look at the Lincoln administration and its attempts in the fall of 1862 to come up with a winning commander and a winning strategy in the Eastern Theater. Lincoln, uh, who been impatient with McClellan at many points during his relationship uh, with that uh, troublesome general, finally lost all uh, faith in McClellan uh, in the aftermath of the Battle of Antietam. And this time he decided to remove him once and for all. The reason he did it is because McClellan was simply not showing any uh, indication that he would go after Robert E. Lee and try to deal a real blow to the Army of Northern Virginia. McClellan was a Democrat, as we've seen, and he was becoming, in the eyes of uh, 
Republicans, not just Lincoln, but Republicans in Congress, far more obnoxious in his willingness to say that he thought emancipation was a mistake, to say that the Republicans were running the war in the wrong way. He was crossing the line that military figures should not cross. He should have stayed in the military sphere, believed many Republicans, but he insisted on making known his views about political issues. That was a problem. But a bigger problem from Lincoln's point of view was that McClellan waited a month before he began to pursue Lee after the Battle of Antietam. And when he did begin his pursuit, he moved very slowly. It took his army six days to cross the Potomac River. Lee's army had crossed in one night after the Battle of Antietam. At one point, McClellan telegraphed Washington saying that he couldn't go after Lee until he had replacements for a number of his horses, uh, horses that were worn out and exasperated. Lincoln sarcastically replied in one of his famous notes to a general, will you pardon me for asking what the horses of your army have done since the Battle of Antietam that fatigues anything? Uh, there clearly is a problem between the commander-in-chief uh, and his general. And in the end, Lincoln got rid of McClellan. Now, he waited until the day after the elections in November of 1862 because he was afraid that if he removed McClellan earlier, it might alienate Democratic voters. But at any rate, McClellan is gone. Uh, November 7, 1862, Ambrose E. Burnside is the new commander of the biggest army of the United States. Now, Burnside was reluctant to take this high command. Uh, he probably had a better understanding of his own limitations uh, than Lincoln did. He didn't think that this should have been uh, his position, but he accepted it. He's relatively young, 38 years old, a graduate of West Point who had had a really uneventful pre-war career. He resigned in 1853, took up residence in Rhode Island. He'd later be a prominent politician in Rhode Island after the war. And there he designed a breech-loading rifle. It was called the Burnside rifle. It was a weapon uh, that was used fairly widely uh, during the Civil War. He was nominated to Congress as a Democrat. Uh, he eventually went into the railroad business, uh, as George B. McClellan had uh, in that period before the war. Burnside, by all accounts, was a very affable, popular man. He had many friends, and his friends were loyal to him. He'd won several victories early in the war off the North Carolina coast, had won promotion and quite a reputation with those victories. He had fought at Antietam as one of McClellan's principal subordinates. He was an uncomplicated, straightforward man in many ways, about six feet tall, uh, massive in appearance. Uh, he was bald, and he wore his whiskers in a, in a famous cut. His whiskers swept down his chin and then up to form his mustache. Uh, his chin was clean-shaven. This was called at the time the Burnside Cut, and we get our expression sideburns from Ambrose Burnside's whiskers. A, a telling assessment of him, and it's one that could be taken different ways, of course, was Burnside is a brick. Now, that could either mean that he's solid, or it could mean that he's immovable or dense. Uh, it could mean a lot of things, but that is what one observer said about him. His personal courage was unquestioned. His intellectual capacity to command an army of more than 100,000 men, however, is something else entirely. I think Burnside on some level knew that he probably wasn't up to it. He certainly understood that his civilian superiors expected action from him. A winter campaign, just as Rosecrans uh, had carried out in Tennessee. And he put together a plan quite quickly. 
he tried to think of this in a very straightforward way. His army was spread out near Warrington uh, on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. He decided to move rapidly toward Fredericksburg, Virginia, try to beat Lee's army to Fredericksburg. Lee's army was spread out uh, near Culpeper, part of it in the Shenandoah Valley. Get to Fredericksburg before Lee did, and then be in a position to move straight toward Richmond around uh, the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad. If he could beat Lee to Fredericksburg, he'd put Lee in a difficult position. He thought he could march swiftly and come up a success. And his campaign began very well. He did march swiftly to Fredericksburg. He beat Lee to Fredericksburg. He was at that old colonial city by November 19th. 1862, but he needed pontoon boats so that he could build bridges and get his army across the river. He was on the east bank of the river. He needed to get to the western side. It wasn't his fault that the pontoon boats weren't there. Uh, It was a mix-up on the logistical side for the Federals, but the bottom line was that he sat and waited at Fredericksburg and waited and waited. The days went by. The pontoon boats didn't arrive. By the time the boats did arrive, so that the bridges could be built. Lee had reacted to Burnside's move, and Lee had put uh, the bulk of his army into very strong positions west of the Rappahannock on a series of uh, hills uh, that paralleled the river. When his entire army was concentrated, which was just before the Battle of Fredericksburg, Lee would have 75,000 men. Burnside's army probably close to 120,000. Well, Burnside probably should have adjusted his plan when the pontoon boats didn't come and when Lee's army went into position, but he didn't. He stuck with his original plan to cross at Fredericksburg, and that is what he did. Beginning on December 11th, 1862 in the morning, the Union engineers pushed out into the river and began to construct their pontoon bridges. Confederate soldiers firing from the shelter of uh, Buildings in Fredericksburg drove them back time and again. The Union artillery uh, from the east bank of the Rappahannock responded by shelling the old city of Fredericksburg, and much of Fredericksburg was destroyed uh, in this shelling. The pontoon boats eventually were laid. Uh, Union troops went across in boats, sort of assault boats, and formed beachheads on the Confederate side of the river, and that permitted the engineers to finish the pontoon bridges, and the Army of the Potomac began to cross the river. It was in Incredible panorama that day, according uh, to all the witnesses. These are two enormous armies, very close to one another. Uh, The terrain was bare. It was a natural amphitheater, really, with the Confederates on the high ground west of the river and the Federals on Stafford Heights, even higher ground east of the river. And both sides could see the movement of huge numbers of troops. There were Federal balloons up in the air on their side of the river observing the Confederates. And it was just a scene that people remembered. More men probably visible to soldiers on each side at Fredericksburg than on any other battlefield of the war. By the end of the day on December 12th, the bulk of Burnside's men were in position. Lee had grown very angry during the Union bombardment of Fredericksburg on the 11th. Uh, He said that this was making war on civilians. But Lee's soldiers were using the town for shelter to fire against the Federals, so it seems that it was probably uh, inevitable that the Federals would fire on the city. What Burnside hoped to accomplish with his battle plan was to apply pressure to the front of Lee's line 
and try to find a way to get around Lee's right flank or southern flank. Uh, if he could do that, uh, interpose part of the Army of the Potomac between Lee's right flank and Richmond, he thought that good things might come of this plan. As fog lifted on the morning of December 13th, Burnside ordered assaults along a five-mile front. Stonewall Jackson held the Confederate right flank. The Confederate line was more than six miles long, anchored on the Rappahannock on the left and extended well down uh, toward Hamilton's Crossing on the right. Jackson commanded the right flank, James Longstreet the left. Longstreet's position was much the stronger of the two. He held high ground. He had ample artillery supporting his infantry. It was an extremely strong position. The first major attacks were against Jackson on the right. And the Federals actually made a breakthrough. Uh, They found their way to a swampy piece of ground that wasn't adequately defended. Uh, They made a lodgment. But in the end, the Union commander on that stretch of the Union line, uh, William Buell Franklin, performed very uh, timidly, I think is not too strong a word. He did not support the breakthrough. He didn't really try with any energy to carry out Burnside's plan to get around Lee's right flank. The Confederates were able to seal that break on Jackson's end of the line, and fighting died down uh, to the south. And the focus of the battle then shifted to the high ground immediately west of Fredericksburg, Marie's Heights, uh, the center of Longstreet's part of the line. And for the rest of the day, there were Union assaults by brigades, one after another, up a gentle slope, an open plain, uh, right at the Confederates defending Marie's Heights. It was such a strong position that at one point a Confederate officer talking with Longstreet earlier in the day, this was a Confederate artillerist, said that he thought a chicken couldn't live on the open field approaching the Confederate line. Such was the strength of the Confederate position. And Lee expressed concern to Longstreet at one point. Longstreet said, you might be in trouble on Jackson's end of the line, but if you give me enough ammunition, I will kill every Union soldier in that army opposing us before they can get to my position. And that is essentially what happened. As wave after wave of Union soldiers went forward, they suffered fearfully. It was a great slaughter pen, wrote a federal general. They might as well have tried to take hell. Uh, This was Longstreet's kind of battle. He was on the defensive in a good sound position, and he very efficiently presided over this part of the fight. Uh, The early winter evening finally brought an end to the sickening spectacle. More than 12,500 Federals had fallen, uh, about 5,500 Confederates, and most of those Confederate casualties were on Jackson's end of the line, not on Longstreet's. That night, the temperature dropped to almost freezing. It got down to 34 degrees. Very uncomfortable evening for many of the wounded men uh, who were out without any shelter or cover. Uh, lying on the field in front of Longstreet's lines. It was a grim and very dramatically negative day for the Army of the Potomac. A very bad day for the Army of the Potomac. Poor Burnside was beside himself as the day went on. He really felt for his men, although he seemed incapable of changing his plans. Uh, He at one point thought that he would lead assaults the next day, renew the assaults on December 14th and lead them personally. His generals talked him out of that. That would have been a silly thing to do. And the Army of the Potomac retreated back across the Rappahannock River on December 15th. News of Fredericksburg thoroughly depressed the North. Harper's Weekly 
a very popular northern publication at the time, said that the northern people couldn't take much more. This is how Harper's Weekly put it. The northern people have borne silently and grimly imbecility, treachery, failure, privation, loss of friends and means, almost every suffering which can afflict a brave people. But they cannot be expected to suffer that such massacres as this at Fredericksburg shall be repeated. It wasn't just that the Federals had been defeated at Fredericksburg. It was the way they had been defeated. It was the apparent stupidity of sending troops straight at powerfully uh, entrenched and well-positioned Confederate defenders. That kind of a defeat, all those casualties, it all seemed pointless to the people in the North. Lincoln came in for very heavy criticism for his conduct of the war effort. Both Democrats and Republicans criticized him. When he learned of the slaughter at Fredericksburg, uh, Lincoln turned to a friend and said, if there's a worse place than hell, I am in it. Uh, This was a very dark moment for the North. And it got worse uh, in the aftermath of the battle. Let's just look at the aftermath in the army for a while. Burnside was not a good administrator, apart from not being a good battlefield uh, tactician. Uh, He didn't do the things uh, that you need to do as an army commander. Uh, He failed to have supplies flow to the army the way they should. His men actually ran short of uniforms and food and medicine. They weren't paid on time. There was tremendous administrative chaos in the Army of the Potomac uh, in late December and into January uh, 1863. Desertions reached 200 men a day in the Union Army, and the men somehow knew that although there were warehouses nearby bulging with goods, their Army commander couldn't get those supplies to them. Discipline was lax. Many of Burnside's subordinates began to complain behind his back. They talked to members of Congress. They sent uh, word to Lincoln that they weren't happy with how Burnside was doing as an army commander. Uh, One of the principal lieutenants doing this was Joseph Hooker, uh, who was letting it be known in Washington that he thought he would do a whole lot better job than Burnside was doing. In the end, Lincoln decided that Burnside had to go, and he replaced him with Joseph Hooker. Fighting Joe, as he was known in the press, it was a nickname that he hated, absolutely detested it. It had come from a typographical error in a newspaper account earlier in the war. The account had uh, meant to read fighting, dash, Joe Hooker did this or that. Uh, They omitted the dash and it came out fighting Joe Hooker did whatever it was he was doing and the name stuck, much to Hooker's uh, chagrin. Hooker had intrigued against Burnside. He'd made rash statements about how the nation needed a dictator to win the war, Uh, the implication being that perhaps he'd be a fine one if he were selected. Lincoln let Hooker know that he was aware of all of this, that he was aware of the maneuvering, that he was aware of the statements Hooker was making. He added, did Lincoln, only generals who gain success can set up dictators. What I now ask of you is military success. I will risk the dictatorship. Let's move on to Hooker's tenure as Army commander. He's a West Pointer, another one of our West Pointers, a handsome man, a bachelor. Uh, Cut a wide swath through the social scene uh, of the Army. He liked women very much. He was seen in the company of good-looking women so often, in fact, that the rumor spread in the Army that the term Hooker to apply to a prostitute 
came from Joseph Hooker's name. It didn't. That term much uh, predates Hooker. But the point is people believed it did because Hooker ran a very convivial headquarters and seemed to be a man uh, who wasn't averse to having a good time himself or letting other people have a good time. He had showed himself to be a hard fighter in the past. He'd been wounded uh, at Antietam. He'd fought in the seven days. Now he proved to be a brilliant organizer. He was good at all the things that Burnside had showed himself not to be good at. Food and medicine flowed to the army. Camps were cleaned up. Medical care improved dramatically. The number of men on sick leave dropped dramatically. Pay came to the soldiers. Drill was increased and improved, and the men's spirits lifted. Soon Hooker bragged that he had the finest armor, excuse me, army on the planet. This is the very best one, he said, in this continent or any other continent. He said that it really wasn't a question of whether he was going to capture Richmond. It was only a question of when he was going to capture Richmond. He said he hoped God would have mercy on Robert E. Lee because he, Joe Hooker, was not going to have mercy on Robert E. Lee. These kinds of statements raised a red flag with Abraham Lincoln and many people behind the lines. Uh, Lincoln resorted to one of his, his sort of rural stories to make his point when he heard that Hooker had been talking this way, bragging all the great things that he was going to do. Uh, Lincoln said that it had always been his experience that, and I'll quote his anecdote here, the hen is the wisest of all the animal creation because she never cackles until the egg is laid. A hen at least will wait till she's produced something. Uh, Hooker's cackling plenty, and he hasn't produced anything on the battlefield yet. The one point that Lincoln emphasized to Hooker was that when you do come to grips with the enemy, put in all of your men. We're giving you this magnificent army. Use it. Use all of it. Lincoln and Halleck also <clears throat> urged Hooker to make Lee's army rather than Richmond his chief objective. Uh, Lincoln knew how important victories were to the northern public, and he knew especially how much they looked toward what happened in the east to decide whether the war was going well or not. What he wanted from Hooker was a clear victory over Lee's army, a victory that would give the northern people a sense that the war was going well in Virginia. Hooker put together an excellent plan for his campaign, really one of the best plans that any Union commander put together during the war. These are its main components. First, the armies are where they were right after the Battle of Fredericksburg. Lee and those works, those six to seven miles of works west of the river overlooking Fredericksburg, the Army of the Potomac right across the river. Hooker said that he would send his cavalry on a great raid behind Lee's army toward Richmond where it could disrupt communications between Lee and his capital. He would leave 40,000 infantry under John Sedgwick in front of Lee at Fredericksburg. Sedgwick would hold Lee's attention at Fredericksburg. Uh, Sedgwick would make demonstrations, try to convince Lee that perhaps the Federals were going to try again what they had tried at the Battle of Fredericksburg back in December. Hooker himself would take the bulk of his infantry, more than 70,000 of them, on a long turning movement. They would march up the Rappahannock River, get behind Lee's left flank, and then cross the Rappahannock and the Rapidan River and come in against the rear of the Army of Northern Virginia. That was the plan. Hooker's hammer, so to speak, would crush Lee's army against Sedgwick's anvil at Fredericksburg or 
Lee would have to retreat southward, in which case Hooker would harass him as he went toward Richmond. Hooker had nearly 120,000 men to carry out this plan. Lee had only about 60,000 to oppose him. It had been a very tough winter on the Confederates. The fought-over countryside of central Virginia, northern Virginia, had been stripped clean of forage for animals, food for men, and Lee had been forced to disperse his army rather uh, widely. Much of the cavalry of Jeb Stuart's cavalry wasn't even with the army. It had been sent far away so the animals could uh, have enough forage. And James Longstreet and two of his four divisions had been sent to Southside Virginia uh, towards Suffolk on what was in effect a large-scale foraging expedition. They wouldn't even be present for the battle that was looming with Hooker. So Lee has only about 60,000 men, very long odds. All right, let's look at how the campaign unfolded. Hooker made a good beginning. He got around Lee's flank just as he hoped he would. This is in late April, crossed the Rappahannock, crossed the Rapidan, and got behind Lee. By the evening of April 30th, thousands of Federals were in front of Lee at Fredericksburg, that's Sedgwick's men, but Hooker with the bulk of the army were about 10 miles in Lee's rear at a crossroads called Chancellorsville. This wasn't a town. It was just an old inn on a main road that came into Fredericksburg from the west. Hooker thought Lee would either retreat toward Richmond now. He thought he had Lee right where he wanted him. Lee will either retreat toward Richmond, thus exposing his army to attacks from the Federals, or he would have to turn around and try to fight Hooker in which case he would be vulnerable to Sedgwick coming from the other direction. Whatever Lee tries to do, reasoned Hooker, he's going to be in bad shape. But typically, Lee did not do what was expected. He decided to split his own army. He left about 10,000 men in the works at Fredericksburg to watch Sedgwick, and he hurried the rest of his army westward to confront Joe Hooker. Lee hoped that he could stymie Hooker in an area that was called the Wilderness of Spotsylvania, or just the Wilderness. It was several dozen square miles of scrub oak and other uh, scrub vegetation. It was an area that had been cut over more than once, the big trees cut to feed uh, charcoaling operations tied to iron furnaces in the area. There were very few farms, very few clearings in this wooded area, and not very many roads. It was an area where the Union numbers might not be brought fully to bear, and where Union artillery really wouldn't be much of a factor at all. If Hooker were pinned in the wilderness and fought in the wilderness, uh, the difference in numbers wouldn't matter as much. What Hooker needed to do was just march a few miles east, about three of Chancellorsville, break into the open where his numbers really could tell. And on the morning of Mar excuse me, May 1st, that's just what he started to do. The Union troops took three roads to the east. Marching eastward, they were just about clear of the wilderness, when they ran into Stonewall Jackson's troops near a place called Zoan Church. And at the first contact, Hooker ordered a withdrawal. He called all his troops back down into the wilderness to Chancellorsville. That is the key moment of the entire campaign. There hadn't been much fighting, just a few shots exchanged, in fact, but Hooker had absolutely lost his nerve. There's no other way to explain it. At the first contact with Lee, he lost his nerve. He pulled his army back and put it into a defensive position. That is when the Battle of Chancellorsville was decided. There were going to be three days of very hard fighting ahead, but Hooker, I believe, was already a beaten man on the morning of May 1st, 1863. 
Lee now had the initiative, and he decided to split his army again. He and Stonewall Jackson met on the night of May 1st, decided to try to send Jackson's part of the army around Hooker's right flank and roll up Hooker's right flank uh, with a massive assault. Local people helped them find a network of roads that would allow them to do that, and on May 2nd, Lee, with just 14,000 men, held Hooker's attention at Chancellorsville, while Jackson took about 28,000, and in the most famous flanking march of the war, put his second corps astride Hooker's right flank and launched a very famous assault about 5 o'clock on the afternoon of the 2nd. He shattered the Union 11th Corps, commanded by O.O. Howard, The poor Union soldiers should have been warned, but they weren't. Uh, They were caught by surprise, driven back about two miles. Nightfall came, however, and the Confederate attack lost its momentum. Jackson rode forward to try to find a way to, to maintain that momentum, and in the darkness and the smoke and the confusion of the wilderness, Uh, His party rode into the path of a Confederate regiment that was firing a volley, not at them, but in another direction, and a number of the missiles from that volley hit Jackson. Uh, He was carried to the rear with three wounds. Uh, His left arm was amputated that night. Uh, When Jackson went down, the attack lost all of its steam. When Lee learned that his great lieutenant had been wounded, he said, he has lost his left arm, but I have lost my right and he, in fact, had lost his greatest lieutenant. Now, the Confederates were still divided uh, at Chancellorsville. Uh, Hooker's, the bulk of his army, was still in between Jackson's part of the force and Lee's part of the force. But on the morning of May 3rd, hard fighting by the Confederates enabled Lee to unite those two wings of his army. Hooker had no offensive thoughts whatsoever, although he vastly outnumbered Lee. Meanwhile, Sedgwick had pushed the 10,000 Confederates out of Fredericksburg, and was marching toward Chancellorsville. So for a third time, Lee divided his army. He left about 25,000 men to hold Hooker near Chancellorsville and took the rest of his troops uh, eastward to deal with Sedgwick. On May 3rd and 4th, in the Battle of Salem Church, Sedgwick's part of the Union Army was defeated as well, and by night of May 6th, the Army of the Potomac had retreated back across the Rappahannock. It had been a bloody campaign. 17,000 federal casualties, 13,000 Confederate casualties. By far the most important of those 13,000 was Stonewall Jackson. This was Lee's most brilliant victory. A primer on the bold use of veteran troops in the face of a superior uh, foe in numbers, but a foe that didn't have as good a leadership. It was also perhaps the South's most costly victory, for on May 10th, Stonewall Jackson died of pneumonia uh, that probably arose from complications uh, related to his wounds uh, on May the 2nd. News of Chancellorsville hit the North very, very hard. Lincoln's face literally went pale, according to witnesses, when he learned that Lee had again defeated the Army of the Potomac. My God, he said, my God, what will the country say? Coming so soon after the defeat at Fredericksburg, uh, this seemed to be an enormously bad piece of news for the North. Uh, Anti-war elements in the North, the copperheads among the Democrats and others took heart. It became a much more difficult situation for Lincoln. On the Confederate side, perhaps the greatest result of the campaign was that it sealed Lee's position as the great military idol of the Confederacy. He'd had a year now in command, and from the seven days to second Manassas, 
uh, through the Maryland campaign in Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, he had demonstrated to the Confederate people that he and his army would win the kind of victories that they craved. The forward-moving, aggressive victories, they became by far the most important national institution in the Confederacy. They would be, for the rest of the war, the great rallying point uh, for the Confederate people. Chancellorsville, as much as anything else that Lee did, uh, sealed his reputation as a great commander. Uh, so we'll leave the armies here in Virginia now. In our next lecture, we'll continue with our military narrative of 1863, and we'll look at Lee's attempt to build on his success at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville by taking the war across the Potomac River for a second time. Lecture 22, Gettysburg. In our last lecture, we looked at the dark Union winter and spring of 1862-63 when Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville and Grant's failure to take Vicksburg sent Union morale plunging to one of its lowest points for the entire war. Now we'll follow military events in the Eastern Theater forward into the summer of 1863. We will examine first the strategic situation in May and June. Then we'll look in the Confederate planning sessions that resulted in the invasion of Pennsylvania in mid-June. We'll look at the Gettysburg campaign and then consider the impact of Gettysburg at the time. How did people view it at the time as opposed to how we do now? And we'll finish by considering the question of whether Gettysburg should be seen as the great turning point of the Civil War. But let's look first at May and June 1863, a time uh, that was seen as very dangerous in the North, dangerous for the cause of the Union uh, by those who were devoted to the Union, and also a period of major strategic debate in the Confederacy. The Lincoln government faced both military and political problems in this period of the war. Uh, on the military side, the absence of victories uh, is the clear problem. Chancellorsville being the most recent example of the failure of a major Union army. But beyond the military side, there were serious problems on the northern political front. The failure of Union armies had encouraged the anti-war sentiment uh, in the North, uh, the Copperheads, the part of the Democratic Party that argued for an end to the war, said that the war was going away that no one had anticipated. Uh, we had supported a war just for the Union, said many of the Copperheads early on, but now you're turning it into a war for emancipation, and we will not support that. We need to end this war and then negotiate with the Confederates. Uh, Lincoln, very concerned about uh, that kind of sentiment in the North, and that kind of sentiment was drawing strength from the inability of Union military forces to deliver the kinds of clear-cut victories on the battlefield that the North needed. The Union draft, which went into effect in the spring of 1863, made the situation worse because it seemed to be a desperate move. Those who were against the war anyway could say, look, not only aren't we winning the war, but our government is imposing this tyrannical system whereby they can force us to go fight this war, even if we don't want to. Uh, the draft helped uh, on the 
copperhead side of the ledger. And Lincoln, of course, was floundering in the East in the sense that he didn't have a commander at the head of the Army of the Potomac whom he really trusted. He didn't think that Joseph Hooker was going to deliver the kind of victories that the North would need in the long run. So it's a very cloudy and troubling picture for the North uh, in this stage. On the Confederate side, it's a period of planning. The Confederate civilian and military leaders are trying to figure out what strategy to use against the Union troops in Virginia and the West. Hooker's army still lay opposite, opposite Lee's army in northern Virginia along the Rappahannock River near Fredericksburg. A Braxton Bragg and William Stark Rosecrans still faced each other in the Tennessee theater where they had been. And, of course, Grant's operations continued against Vicksburg. In each of these theaters, the Union army was larger than its Confederate opponent, as was almost always the case. And there were other threats on the uh, board as well for the Confederates. Uh, there would be a Union campaign against Port Hudson and Nathaniel Banks as May moved along, and the North was also planning a major naval action at Charleston. So the question for the Confederates is, how do we use our resources uh, to best advantage in this very difficult situation? Well, many of the Confederate leaders said that Virginia is not the most important place. We need to either take troops from Lee's army and reinforce Bragg, or take troops from Lee's army and reinforce John C. Pemberton, who was commanding at Vicksburg. And in fact, a plan was put forward to that. It was supported by a number of soldiers. Braxton Bragg supported it, PGT Beauregard, James Longstreet in Lee's army supported it, and so did Jefferson Davis. But Lee said, no, that is not the way to look at this. He said, I can do more good, he in effect said this, I can do more good in Virginia by invading the North uh, than anything uh, that the soldiers in the West can do, our commanders in the West can do, even if reinforced from my army. And this is what I think my campaign will do. It will let me pull the war out of Virginia. If I go north, the enemy will have to follow me. It will allow us to gather the logistical bounty from our farmers this summer, take the pressure off Virginia, and I can gather supplies north of the Potomac River. This is much like he argued during the Antietam campaign. He also believed that he could strengthen the peace Democrats in the North. Lee read the newspapers. He knew the Copperheads were a problem for Lincoln. He thought the presence of his army would help. Almost uh, at the bottom of his list, but nonetheless on, on Lee's list, was at least a slim hope that a really successful campaign north of the Potomac might actually uh, rekindle uh, chances that either England or France uh, would decide to help the Confederacy. As a sop to those who uh, argued that he should send troops west, Lee said that if he were really successful, that maybe Grant and Rosecrans would have to weaken their armies to strengthen Union armies in the east. Now, Lee's been heavily criticized for this. He's been called a man who had Virginia blinders on. He didn't understand the big picture of the war. He always was just thinking of his own army. But in fact, I think he realized better than any of his critics that the East was more important psychologically. It was more important in terms of morale. Lee knew that his army by that point had become the most important national institution in the Confederacy and that anything he did would likely resonate more powerfully, both in a positive sense with the Confederates and a negative sense with the North. Well, in the end, Jefferson Davis decided not to go against Lee's wishes. He went along with his best commander, and the result would be the second invasion of the North by Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. And let's look at the initial stage of that campaign. 
It initially went well. Lee's army, uh, back up to 75,000 men. James Longstreet had rejoined the army after the Battle of Chancellorsville. The army's now divided into three pieces. It had been Longstreet and Stonewall Jackson before. Now it's Longstreet commanding the First Corps, uh, a man named Richard Ewell commanding most of Jackson's old Second Corps, and A.P. Hill, not to be confused with D.H. Hill. There are two Hills uh, who've been fighting in the east. Uh, A.P. Hill would command the new Third Corps. By early June, the army was ready to move, and just before it went north, on June 9th, there was a huge cavalry battle near Culpeper, Virginia, where the army was staging for its invasion. Union cavalry under Alfred Pleasanton surprised Jeb Stuart and his Confederate cavalry and fought in this Battle of Brandy Station an enormous, sprawling cavalry action, the biggest ever in the Western Hemisphere. Part of this uh, action took place troopers fighting on foot, but part of it was an old-fashioned swinging sabers and firing revolvers at each other kind of fight. Involved 10,000 men on each side. In the end, Jeb Stuart was able to hold on and drive the Federals back, but it was a very close call uh, for his command, and it would have repercussions. Southern newspapers said Stuart had been surprised. Uh, that was humiliating for Stuart. Uh, Stuart had always had his own way with the Federal Cavalry, and the Battle of Brandy Station seemed to be, at least to many Confederates behind the lines, almost a defeat for Stuart and his cavalry. A few words about Stuart are in order here. He's a very important figure uh, in the war in the Eastern Theater. He's a Virginian, a young man, 30 years old at this stage of the war, a West Pointer, uh, had fought uh, in the Indian Wars in the 1850s. He's a very romantic uh, figure uh, and, and a real contrast in some ways. Uh, he is, on the one hand, a man thoroughly caught up in the romance of war. The women loved Jeb Stuart. They would put garlands on his horse. They'd strew petals in front of his horse when he went by. Uh, he's a very romantic figure. He liked to go to balls and stage them. He had a banjo player who accompanied uh, his staff, and he would, they would pick out music on the banjo and sing. He affected a gaudy uniform. He wore very high boots. He wore a plume in his hat. He had a scarlet-lined cape and a big gold sash. Uh, cut a very dashing figure, very well armed. He had a big Lamat revolver and a saber and God knows what else hooked onto his saddle somewhere. Uh, he made quite an impression. But with that on the one side, on the other side, you have a very capable, hard-bitten cavalryman who is absolutely brilliant at the things cavalry was supposed to do during the Civil War, and that is screening your own army so the enemy doesn't know what you're doing and going out and gathering intelligence about what the enemy is doing. Stuart did not have anyone on either side who exceeded his talents in those areas. Probably the best cavalryman, I think, of the war uh, in those classic cavalry functions. He'd made spectacular rides clear around George McClellan's army twice uh, earlier in the war, gotten lots of headlines for it, and now his pride had been stung by Brandy Station. Uh, I think that it had an effect, this experience of Brandy, almost immediately in that Stuart determined that he was going to ride around Joseph Hooker's army uh, when he got the chance, and his decision to do that uh, was going to mean that Lee would march into Pennsylvania without the benefit of Stuart's intelligence, because as Stuart started to ride around Hooker's army, Hooker's army started to march northward. 
and Stuart found himself on the far side of Hooker's army, moving north as Hooker moved north, and the bulk of Lee's army was to the west of Hooker. So he's going to leave Lee without good intelligence for about three weeks. But still, the campaign began well for the Confederates. They marched rapidly north. There was a battle called the Second Battle of Winchester in mid-June. On the way north, our Richard Ewell won a tidy little victory there and captured several thousand Union prisoners. The Confederates made their way to the Potomac River, crossed the river, and as the third week in June uh, passed, Lee's army was spread out in a big fan-shaped pattern across much of southern Pennsylvania, a part of it at Chambersburg, another part of it under Ewell, all the way to the Susquehanna River, not far from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Now, as Lee was marching north, Hooker told Lincoln, now's a great time for me to go capture Richmond. And Lincoln reminded Hooker that he didn't really care about Richmond at this point. The biggest rebel army was marching toward Union territory. That was Hooker's target, not Richmond. And Lincoln made a mental note that Hooker did not seem anxious uh, to engage Lee in battle again. Uh, there was a little quibbling back and forth about just what the best Union response to Lee's movement would be. Uh, and at one point, there was a debate about what to do at Harper's Ferry. Hooker wanted to do one thing, others in the War Department something else. And in a snit, Hooker submitted his resignation in a quarrel with Henry W. Halleck, and Lincoln accepted it. So the Army of the Potomac has a change of command in the midst of these very important operations. On June 27th, Lincoln named George Gordon Meade, who was commanding the 5th Corps in the Army of the Potomac, to be the Army's chief. This is the fourth commander in just seven months for the Army of the Potomac. They'd had McClellan, and then Burnside, and then Hooker, and now Meade. No continuity at the top. Meade learned of his appointment uh, in the pre-dawn hours of June 28, 1863. Meade wasn't Lincoln's first choice, and he didn't really want the job, and who can blame him? Here he's thrust into command in the midst of circumstances he doesn't fully understand and with orders to take care of the threat to the Republic posed by Lee and his army, the premier rebel army. He had to act immediately. He'd been born in Spain into the family of a wealthy American merchant, was 47 years old, graduate of West Point, veteran of the Mexican War. Uh, when I describe all these army commanders, you can fill out the blocks by now. They're all pretty much the same ones. They're all West Pointers. Most of them fought in the Mexican War. Meade had a, a good enough record from the Mexican War. He was primarily an engineer before the war. He's not one of the men uh, who got out of the army. He commanded uh, different levels from the beginning of the war, of the Civil War on. He was a brigade commander and then a division commander and then a corps commander. And he had led at each level with skill, if not brilliance. He was tall and thin, very heavy bags under his eyes. Uh, he was balding. Uh, he wore glasses. He was very touchy, given to outbursts of anger. His, his temper would go off uh, very, very quickly, had a tendency to lash out in the heat of the moment. Uh, that, that temper, uh, together with the glasses and the bags under his eyes, caused some people to give him a very unusual nickname. They called him a damned old goggle-eyed snapping turtle. It's too long a nickname to really work. A good nickname has to be shorter. But that's what some soldiers called Meade. He was a Democrat, as were most of the top commanders in the Army of the Potomac, but he had the good sense to keep his political opinions private. He talked about politics with his wife, 
but he didn't parade the fact that he disagreed with the Republican administration about various things. As a soldier, he had several strengths. He was a master of logistics, which is important. He had a very well-developed ability to grasp how many troops were engaged on a battlefield, a good sense on the battlefield of following the ebb and flow, and he had a great eye for ground as an engineer. He really did have a grasp of topography. Not brilliant, but a thoroughly sound soldier uh, who was likely uh, to do at least a competent job as commander of the Army of the Potomac. Well, now, as Lee marched north, he had thought that the anti-war faction in the north would benefit from his presence in Pennsylvania. My presence will give them ammunition in their work against the Lincoln administration, but it really didn't work out that way. Uh, the North drew closer together, for the most part, uh, in the face of an invading enemy. Uh, they were defending home soil and so forth. The only state that really didn't do well was Pennsylvania itself, uh, which did not uh, forge uh, a, a really praiseworthy record with Lee and his army inside the borders of the Commonwealth. Pittsburgh said it would contribute more troops if Philadelphia would, and Philadelphia said it would if Harrisburg would, and Harrisburg said it would if Pittsburgh would. There wasn't a rush to the colors in Pennsylvania, and there was a good deal of antipathy toward Pennsylvania on the part of other northern states, which argued we're doing our bit to save Pennsylvania, and the Pennsylvanians themselves aren't doing what they should. Lee felt Stuart's absence more and more as the campaign went on. Lee, in fact, thought Hooker was still back in Virginia uh, at a time when the Army of the Potomac had been in motion for a long time. It wasn't until June 28th that Lee found out that the Army of the Potomac had crossed the Potomac River and that George Meade was now in command. And he didn't learn it from Stuart. He learned it from Longstreet, who had heard it from a man named Harrison, who was a paid spy for Longstreet. Once Lee found out that the Army of the Potomac was in pursuit, he ordered his army to come together. He didn't want it to be spread out across all of Pennsylvania. Part of Pennsylvania, as it had been, he wanted it to come back together so that he could face the Federals as a powerful body. And the place he selected was an area between Gettysburg and the South Mountain Range, just a few miles to the west of Gettysburg. A number of roads led in there, so Lee gave orders on the 28th for his army to reconcentrate, and the, armies, the army began to march the pieces of it toward that concentration. Lee didn't want to fight a battle until his army was back together. But let's move on now to see how the battle was actually fought. It did take place before uh, all of the army was back together. The armies made contact on June 30th, brief contact. The real battle started on July the 1st, when one of Lee's divisions, under Henry Heath, part of A.P. Hill's 3rd Corps, sort of wandered toward Gettysburg to see what was there and ran into some Federal cavalry under John Buford, two brigades of cavalry under Buford. If Jeb Stuart had been there doing his job, this never would have happened because Stuart would have known the Federal cavalry was there as it was that Confederate infantry blundered into the cavalry and what began as a clash between a much stronger Confederate infantry unit and Federal cavalry escalated very rapidly into a full-scale battle as both sides poured reinforcements in. The Confederates were very lucky on July 1st because A.P. Hill came in from the west toward Gettysburg and in a very absolutely serendipitous piece of luck, Richard Ewell's 
Second Corps of the Confederate Army approached from the north uh, just a little bit past noon in the perfect position to come in on the flank of the main defending Union force, the Union First Corps, which was facing west, uh, west of Gettysburg, facing Hill's troops. Lee rode onto the field uh, early in the afternoon. He hadn't wanted a big battle, but as he stood on Her Ridge and then on Seminary Ridge and looked at the battle unfolding in front of him, he saw a great opportunity. There were two Union Corps on the field, the 1st Corps facing west and the 11th Corps facing north, and Lee saw that his troops uh, were coming in in a position to threaten that federal line that, that curved in a big arc around Gettysburg, north and west of Gettysburg. Lee gave the orders to push the assaults, and by the end of the day on July 1st, Two federal corps had been shattered. Uh, outnumbered Union soldiers in those corps put up a stout defense, especially the Union First Corps. Half of the First Corps became casualties on the first day at Gettysburg. The famous Iron Brigade, the most famous unit in the Army of the Potomac, lost two-thirds of its men, 1,200 out of 1,800 in fighting on July 1st. But the federal troops were driven back through Gettysburg, and they clung to high ground south of town, Cemetery Hill, East Cemetery Hill, by the evening of July 1st. Many argued later that the Confederates could have accomplished more, and Lee hoped that at the time he'd instructed Richard Ewell, who was over on the Confederate left flank, to push against that high ground where the federal troops were rallying, if practicable. Uh, Ewell decided that there were factors that militated against his attacking, and he didn't in the end. I think he had good reasons for that. But what really matters is that the day ended, the first day ended, as a striking Confederate tactical success, one of the best tactical days in all the history of the Army in Northern Virginia, Lee's army having pushed the Federals through town into that high ground. That night, George Meade arrived on the field. Uh, Union reinforcements poured into the area. James Longstreet's troops approached the field as well, all but... George Pickett's division, which was in the rear. The question for Lee on the night of the first was, all right, I've won a victory today, now do I keep attacking, or do I go on the defensive and let the Federals attack me? Uh, Meade would almost certainly have to attack Lee to drive him out of Pennsylvania, but Lee, always the audacious commander, decided to continue his assaults on the second day. Longstreet didn't like the idea, and Longstreet would sulk for the rest of the battle. But Lee decided on the 2nd to try to attack both ends of the Union line, the Union right at Culp's Hill and the Union left flank, which at that point was somewhere, as far as Lee knew, on Cemetery Ridge. Lee did not get what he wanted on the second day. He wanted early assaults. It was late in the afternoon before the Confederates got going, partly because Longstreet had dallied in his putting his troops in position. When the attacks did come, Longstreet attacked the Union left and almost captured the high ground at Little Round Top, and Richard Ewell's troops almost captured the high ground on Culp's Hill. It was a very frustrating day for Lee, close on both ends of the line, but he didn't quite succeed. He was, on the night of the 2nd of July, confronting the same question. Do I keep attacking now? I've tried it for two days, or do I take up a defensive position now? He decided yet again to attack using the same plan he'd had on the 2nd, pressure against both ends of the Union line. But factors on the morning of July 3rd, the third day of the battle, prevented that plan from being carried out. The Federals attacked before Lee could get going on the Culp's Hill end of the line, so that wouldn't work, and Longstreet argued that his divisions, which had fought so hard on July 2nd 
on the Union left uh, weren't up to fighting again, and Lee fell back to another plan which came to be known as Pickett's Charge. This was a major assault against the center of the Union line on Cemetery Ridge. 13,000 Confederates of George Pickett's division and two other divisions commanded uh, on the 3rd by Isaac Ridgeway Trimble and Johnston Pettigrew. These troops would cover about seven-tenths of a mile in the most famous infantry assault of the war uh, against the center of Meade's position. And they would fail, of course. It was this, uh, in retrospect, this gallant doomed assault. About half of the men in the assault shot down. Uh, Most of the field officers, many of the brigadier generals became casualties. It was a complete failure, this assault on July the 3rd, 1863 at Gettysburg. Lee immediately rode out among the survivors of this assault, said, it's all my fault. He took immediate responsibility on the scene, and it was his fault. It had been his decision. Uh, It hadn't worked. He patched together a defensive line. Poor Meade, uh, I think, was in a state of at least partial shock because of the scale of this battle and the chaos of it and the fact that he just repulsed this major Confederate attack. He didn't try to launch a counterattack. There might have been some opportunity then, but at any rate, he didn't, and that was the end of the fighting at Gettysburg. The casualties were simply enormous. At least 25,000 Confederate casualties, at least a third of Lee's army had been shot down. Meade's army had been larger, more than 85,000 men. He lost more than 20,000, probably 23,000. The casualties were near or perhaps a bit more than 50,000 killed, wounded, and missing for the three-day battle. It had been a hard battle on general officers. Lee took 52 generals into the campaign with him. 17 of them were killed, wounded, or missing. On the Union side, terrible losses among the commanders, even the corps commanders, Uh, Winfield Scott Hancock of the 2nd Corps was wounded. Daniel Sickles uh, of the 3rd Corps uh, lost a leg in the fighting on the 2nd. It's a horrible, brutal battle at Gettysburg with absolutely enormous casualties. Lee retreated on the 4th of July. The 4th of July. Uh, Northerners read a lot into that, that they had a victory on the anniversary uh, of the Declaration of Independence, and Meade allowed him... Uh, to get away. I think that there was only a very narrow window for me to do much to hurt Lee, and I think that probably was right after the Pickett-Pettigrew assault. Once Lee uh, disengaged from Meade's army and got down near the Potomac River, I think Union attacks would not have been a good thing. But at any rate, uh, the Confederates got away from the battlefield, settled into a strong position along the Potomac River, and that was the end of the fighting in the campaign. Well, how was it seen at the time? We see Gettysburg now as this enormous battle, perhaps the most important battle of the war. At the time, it was a much more mixed view. The North was certainly happy about it on the one hand. Lee had been driven out of Pennsylvania. It was clearly a victory for the North, but many people in the North believed that it should have been and could have been a bigger victory. Meade should have followed up his success on July the 3rd. He should have inflicted greater damage on the Confederate Army, perhaps even destroyed the Confederate Army, believed many Northerners. I'm not saying this was possible, but this is how it was interpreted at the time. Lincoln was very much disappointed that Meade didn't do more damage to the Confederate Army. On the Confederate side, Gettysburg was not seen as an unequivocal disaster. Uh, It simply was not. It was seen as a battle where the Confederates won 
the first day's fighting, clearly attacked gallantly and almost succeeded on the second day, and then attacked and fought well again on the third day. They weren't driven from the field, argued Confederates behind the lines. They left of their own volition. They weren't pursued. Uh, so it wasn't a success, but it was not a disaster. And Gettysburg did not have any significant negative influence on Lee's reputation in the Confederacy. Some Confederates expressed disappointment. Uh, some criticized Lee. Wade Hampton, a cavalry officer in Lee's army, criticized Lee for launching assaults against that strong Union line on the 3rd, for example. But for the most part, Confederates did not see Gettysburg as a great defeat that in any way tarnished Lee's reputation. Uh, Confederates writing months after Gettysburg still in their letters and diaries would describe Lee as unbeaten as a commander and a man who would never be vanquished. So we need to be careful about interpreting Gettysburg's importance at the time and not see it as a great Union victory that cast gloom across the Confederacy and convinced many Confederates they were about to lose the war. Which brings us to our last point here. Was Gettysburg the great turning point of the conflict? It's often presented, at least in tandem with Vicksburg, as a sort of fulcrum. The war is tipping one way before Gettysburg and Vicksburg, and then after those Confederate defeats, the fulcrum uh, tips the other way, and it points straight toward Appomattox. That Appomattox is inevitable after Gettysburg. That is a very common notion. Well, it did represent a setback. It stopped Lee's string of victories. So in that sense, uh, it's a noteworthy campaign. I'm not arguing that it wasn't an important campaign. It was. Stopped Confederate momentum in the Eastern Theater that had been generated by Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. Lee's losses couldn't be replaced easily. Horrible losses. And it probably killed any chance that Europe might intervene uh, in the war. That's probably true as well. Gave the Federals a badly needed victory boosted northern morale, as we've seen. But Lee's army remained strong, and it remained a major force in the field for nearly two more years. Now, we think Gettysburg probably should be seen as the turning point because we know a number of things about it that people didn't know at the time. We know that it was, for example, the biggest battle of the war. There wasn't going to be a bigger one. Nobody knew that at the time. They knew it was a big battle. They didn't know it was going to be the biggest battle. We know now it was the last time that Lee invaded the North. No one knew that at the time. We know that now. We know that Lincoln gave his eloquent benediction over the Union dead at Gettysburg. That makes it seem more important. Again, that was in the future at the time. Uh, that wasn't part of the balance of how to assess it within the context of the summer of 1863. We also know beyond those things that it's the most visited Civil War site in the United States now by far, which also seems to give it a special position as an especially important Civil War battle. All of the things we know about it now make Gettysburg drift up in our estimation as a great turning point. I'll just say again that at the time it did not loom as large as it does to us now. It was a more uh, gray uh, matter of deciding how important it was than black and white. Union success, Confederate disaster. It simply wasn't that simple at the time. It did not mark the decisive turning point of the war. Even in tandem with Vicksburg, it did not. Uh, the war would go on. The Confederacy would still have chances to win the war. 
And we'll next turn our attention to that other battle often yoked with Gettysburg, that is Vicksburg, and see how Grant successfully completed his campaign against that southern stronghold. Lecture 23, Vicksburg, Port Hudson, and Tullahoma. We continue our military focus on the summer of 1863 with this lecture on campaigning along the Mississippi River and in Tennessee. We'll begin with a survey of the strategic situation in the West in the spring of 1863, and then we'll move on to examine Grant's successful campaign against Vicksburg, the second phase, if you like, or the ultimate phase of his campaigning against Vicksburg. Then we'll look at the Port Hudson campaign that resulted in the loss of that other major Confederate position on the Mississippi, and we'll finish with what was called the Tullahoma Campaign, which was carried out by William S. Rosecrans against Braxton Bragg in Tennessee. Let's start with a quick look at the major Union forces and what they were preparing to do in the West in the spring of 63. There are three armies that we need to be concerned with and three elements to the overall strategic operation in the West for the North. The first is Grant. Uh, this is by far the most important of the different elements. It's his continuing campaign against Vicksburg. It's very important in terms of visibility on the civilian front, both in the north and the south. Very important in terms of its psychological importance, its importance in, a, in the sense of morale uh, for the civilians behind the lines in the north and south. There's several reasons for that. It had been underway for a long time. This had been an operation that had been unfolding in fits and starts with advances and retreats since December of 1862. So people were conditioned to look at their newspapers and see what was going on uh, in the campaigning along the Mississippi River. It was on their radar screen, in other words, quite prominently. They were conditioned to see, to check, and see how it was going. Uh, it was made more prominent by the fact they'd been thinking about it since the Anaconda Plan had first been discussed in the newspapers. Everyone knew the North wanted to gain control of the Mississippi River. Vicksburg had come to be the most important point on the river, so it had great importance because of that. Newspapers had given it a lot of play, and the people read about it frequently. The fact that it had been in the news for so long made it seem quite important to the North. The whole Gettysburg campaign would be played out in less than a month. Not really time for people to look forward to reading about it every day over the long term. Vicksburg was different. And finally, Vicksburg, I think... Uh, was very important because it presented a very dramatic and easily grasped image. Vicksburg, a citadel on the Mississippi River. One of two things will happen with this citadel. It will either be captured by the North, which would be a vastly important success for the North, or the Confederates would drive Grant away and the Mississippi River would remain partially in Confederate hands. It seemed to be pretty much a black and white verdict that would come from this effort. It would either fall to Grant or it would resist his efforts. Nothing equivocal about that. 
Uh, we saw in our last lecture uh, that the outcome of Gettysburg did seem equivocal to people in the North and South. Vicksburg was not going to be that way, and I think people realized that as they watched their papers and talked with each other about what Grant was doing. If you read newspapers and letters and diaries uh, from the spring and into the summer of 1863, on both sides, Union and Confederate, you will see that people have a great interest in what is happening at Vicksburg. It's a great focal point. It's not exactly uh, like Fort Sumter in 1861 as it became the great focal point, but it really is similar. More and more people giving more and more attention to Vicksburg. Now, Grant's opponents in this operation would be John C. Pemberton and Joseph E. Johnston, and we'll talk about both of them a bit more in a few minutes. So that's the first of these northern advances, the first of the northern armies in the West. The second was the force under Nathaniel Prentice Banks, which would move up the Mississippi River against Port Hudson, Louisiana, the second Confederate strong point on the river. And the third operation would be William S. Rosecrans' Army of the Cumberland marching into southeastern Tennessee to confront Braxton Bragg's Army of Tennessee. Chattanooga would be the prize here. That's the ultimate goal uh, for this part of the campaign. The North wants Chattanooga. The Confederacy wants to deny the North control of Chattanooga. Those are the strategic points and the uh, elements of the northern military that we'll talk about now in this lecture. Grant and Banks and Rosecrans. Let's look first at Grant and how Grant moved forward in his Vicksburg campaign. This campaign would show Grant at his absolute best, and I think it's worthwhile to take just a minute or two here and emphasize that the Grant of the Vicksburg campaign is far different from the man described in much of the literature on the Civil War. The predominant image of Grant in much of what's been written about the war is that of a clumsy, head-on fighter who didn't know how to do anything except find where the enemy was, go straight at the enemy with as much power as possible, and try to club your enemy into submission. He won battles simply because he piled his men in relentlessly. Uh, that is a very common image. He overwhelmed his opponents. And the shorthand uh, description of Grant is Grant the Butcher. You see that image used again and again and again in the literature. That's the Grant that people think of. And that image comes from the Overland Campaign of 1864, the battles from the wilderness to Spotsylvania to Cold Harbor and so forth. I think part of the emphasis on this element of Grant's generalship is that these events took place in Virginia, and most things that took place in Virginia have been magnified. They, are, uh, they seem to be more important than what happened anywhere else, and the same is true with Grant. People stress that part of Grant's record, the Virginia part of his record. Lost cause writers helped spread that image after the war, especially. They didn't make it up because even during the war there was criticism of Grant in the North as being a man who had too many casualties and did too much of this straight-ahead fighting during the Overland Campaign. But the Lost Cause writers certainly enhanced that image, and they did it specifically to make Lee look better. They, in essence, said, here we have Lee, a gallant, very capable officer with his little army of Northern Virginia, fighting off Grant, this clumsy butcher who has so many men that he can just keep relentlessly pressing against Lee until he finally wears Lee and his troops down. Uh, Jubal Early, a uh, Confederate general who became one of the most prominent 
Lost Cause writers, a perfect example of those who tried to portray Grant as minimally talented. Uh, in one of his publications, he specifically asked, should I compare Grant to Lee? Or he said, should I compare Lee to Grant? And his answer was, I might as well compare the pyramids in their majesty along the Nile to a pygmy perched on the shoulders of Atlas. So for early Grant's this pygmy, and Lee, of course, is the grand figure. All Grant can do is pile in his men. Well, in fact, Grant didn't prefer that kind of fighting. That wasn't the kind of general uh, he would have been if he had had his way. Vicksburg shows Grant more in the milieu that he preferred, and that is as a soldier who can maneuver, who can think, and who can use guile and swift movement and only the least fighting possible to defeat his enemy. Grant was daring, resourceful, willing to take risks, all qualities that we'll see clearly in our account of the Vicksburg campaign's climactic scenes. His decision, for example, we've touched on this, I'll just reiterate here, his decision to have the naval vessels run past the batteries at Vicksburg is a perfect example of this, an example of his daring. And as we saw earlier, most of his subordinates said, don't do it. They opposed it. He went ahead with it, and he achieved success. And now he finds himself, where we left him last time, south of Vicksburg, east of the river, of the Mississippi River, right where he wanted to be. He's near Bruinsburg uh, with slightly more than 20,000 men. He's ready to abandon his supply lines and strike into the interior of Mississippi, where he'll live off the land for this short campaign. Over the first three weeks of May, he moved very rapidly and succeeded time after time after time against a variety of Confederate opponents. His 23,000 men, as we said last time, were at Port Gibson, Mississippi, on May 1st. They defeated 8,000 Confederates there in the first battle of the last phase of the Vicksburg campaign. William Tecumseh Sherman then marched down river, down the west side of the river to join Grant, ferried over to join Grant, bringing Grant's strength to 44,000 men in Mississippi. His two main opponents would be John C. Pemberton, who had about 32,000 men, the principal army defending Vicksburg. Joseph E. Johnston, who had recovered from his wounds, that, that terrible wound that he received in the Battle of Seven Pines back at the end of May in 1862, uh, he'd recovered from that wound uh, by very late in 1862, had reported himself ready for duty, and Jefferson Davis had given Johnston command overall command of a big section of the Western Theater that included Vicksburg. So Johnston is technically Pemberton's superior, but Johnston also commands about 16,000 Confederates in a small army just east of Vicksburg at Jackson, Mississippi, the state capital. A crucial feature of the campaign that, we're, that, that we'll look at now would be the failure of the Confederates to combine these two armies. They have potentially nearly 50,000 soldiers in Mississippi here, but they never get those two forces together to present a united front to Grant. Grant was going to have the luxury, partly because he uh, moved uh, so effectively, but he was going to have the luxury of facing each of these Confederate forces in detail rather than facing a larger Confederate army all in one place. Pemberton is an interesting character. He was a northerner. He was born in Pennsylvania. 
another West Pointer, veteran of the Mexican War, who had married a Virginia woman in the late 1840s. And almost certainly because of that marriage, he had decided to cast his lot with the Confederacy. A number of Northern officers who were married to Southern women fought with the Confederacy, and some Southern officers who were married to Northern women fought for the North. Pemberton is one of the Northerners who fought for the South. He compiled a less than brilliant record early in the war. Uh, Part of his service was as commander in Charleston for a time. And it's really a mystery uh, to historians. It's never really been answered satisfactorily why Jefferson Davis selected John C. Pemberton to command in such a crucial place, Vicksburg. Davis thought uh, Vicksburg was one of the most important places in the Confederacy, and he put a man in command there who really hadn't demonstrated great ability at any point in the Civil War. Uh, Some historians have suggested that part of Davis's thinking was that he needed a place to stick Gustave Touton Beauregard, who had also reported himself uh, able to take up duties again. Beauregard ended up at Charleston, Pemberton's old post, and Pemberton in Vicksburg. Beauregard almost certainly would have been a better choice for Vicksburg, but that's not the decision that Jefferson Davis made. Pemberton was lieutenant general by October 1862, and now he's commanding the principal army defending Vicksburg. After Sherman joined Grant's army, Grant disappeared into the interior of the state of Mississippi. The North had no idea what was going on with Grant's army from this point until Grant will show up at Vicksburg uh, a number of days later. Lincoln doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, Secretary of War Stanton doesn't know what he's doing. Henry W. Halleck doesn't know what Grant's doing. Grant has dropped off the map as far as they're concerned for about two weeks. During that two weeks, Grant marched 180 miles, he and his army, fought and won four battles, and then reappeared on the map at the outskirts of Vicksburg. During that period, he confused the Confederates by first marching east into the interior of of, uh, Mississippi instead of just northward toward the city of Vicksburg. He marched seemingly away from Vicksburg, away from the river, toward Jackson. His idea, Grant's, was uh, was to defeat Joe Johnston first, near Jackson, make sure that the Confederates couldn't unite, and then turn back toward Vicksburg, and that's what he did. And let's look now at how he carried out this campaign. On May 12th, the advance elements of Grant's army defeated a small Confederate force in the Battle of Raymond, which was just west of Jackson. Two days later, on May 14th, Grant drove Johnston out of Jackson, and Sherman and his troops uh, had a little practice uh, session for what they would do later in Georgia. They very enthusiastically destroyed a number of industrial facilities in Jackson, tore up the railroads, destroyed rolling stock, and so forth. They did a very quick job of it because Grant quickly turned west toward Vicksburg. So he's pushed Johnston out of the way. He's made sure the Confederate forces are going to be separated, at least for the moment, and now he's heading toward Vicksburg. By that point, John Pemberton had decided that he'd better come out and strike Grant. What he thought he was going to do initially was interrupt Grant's supply line. He didn't know that Grant didn't have a supply line. His idea was this is a more conventional operation on Grant's part. I might be able to slow him down. That wasn't the case. The two forces came together on May 16th in the climactic 
battle, the decisive battle of this campaign at Champions Hill. It's about halfway between Jackson and Vicksburg. Grant thoroughly defeated Pemberton in this battle, about nearly 4,000 Confederate casualties, about 2,500 Federal casualties. But the key thing is that Pemberton was pushed westward, back toward Vicksburg. Grant had Pemberton on his heels, back on his heels. Uh, the next day, on the 17th of May, the two forces fought again at the Big Black River, 10 miles east of Vicksburg. Again, Grant won the battle. Another loss for Pemberton, 1,700 Confederate casualties, just 200 Union casualties, most of those Confederates captured. And after the battle at the Big Black River, Pemberton retreated into the defenses of Vicksburg. He did so despite the fact that Joseph E. Johnston had sent a really rather passionate appeal to him not to retreat into the defenses of Vicksburg. Johnston said, take your forces away from Vicksburg, march northward, let's unite our forces and see if together we can deal with Grant. That's our best move. I think Johnston understood very well that if Pemberton uh, hunkered down in the defenses at Vicksburg, that Grant would lay siege to the place and that between Grant's power and the Union Navy, uh, the outcome would be Confederate defeat. Johnston tried to get Pemberton not to go to Vicksburg, but he failed. Pemberton explained, as he put it, this is the most important point in the Confederacy. I won't abandon it. Consequently, Pemberton concentrated his men within the works. Grant had achieved what he wanted to achieve. Those in Grant's army were beginning to get a glimmer of what their commander was up to. A lot of them hadn't understood what Grant was up to. Even William Tecumseh Sherman, was, who was an extremely bright guy, uh, hadn't understood what Grant was up to, how brilliantly Grant had been performing. Sherman wrote his friend a letter on May 18th in the midst of this campaign. He said, until this moment, I never thought your expedition a success. I never could see the end clearly until now. But this is a campaign. This is a success, even if we never take the town. That is Sherman to Grant on May 18th. Grant's army surrounded the stronghold at Vicksburg on the land side. The Union Navy guaranteed that they would have predominance on the water side. There's no Confederate Navy at Vicksburg, no Confederate strength on the naval side. Grant thought that Pemberton's troops were probably demoralized by their recent defeats, and I think that's understandable. They'd been defeated uh, both at Champions Hill and at the Big Black River. He thought that frontal assaults might actually allow him to take Vicksburg quickly and avoid the necessity of a siege. And he launched those assaults against the city on May 19th, and May 22nd, but they failed completely with heavy casualties, more than 4,000 casualties, as many casualties as he'd suffered in all the other uh, battles leading up to Vicksburg since he had gotten on the east side of the river. Sobered by those losses, Grant decided that the only way to capture the place was to settle for a siege, and that's what he did. Well, as Joseph Johnston uh, I think, understood, and as many others understood, there was really only one way uh, that this kind of a siege could end. But the defenders and the citizens of Vicksburg uh, put up an admirable struggle. They held out for six weeks. 
They put up with around-the-clock bombardment from the encircling federal forces, sniper fire day and night, threats of assaults all along the line, kept the Confederate defenders off guard. It's hard to sleep. Kept the civilians off guard in a state of constant anxiety. Food became very scarce in the city. The people scooped caves out of the hillsides, moved into the caves to be safe from the bombardment. Soldiers dug into the sides of the hills and then draped little pieces of cloth above the entrances to keep the broiling summer heat off of them to get in where it was cooler. Uh, Back into the hills, uh, what they hadn't exactly counted on was the number of snakes that would be in those hillsides as well. A lot of accounts of the snakes and the people uh, mixing as the population of Vicksburg dug into the hills and the soldiers dug into the hills. The defenders and the citizens of Vicksburg ate the horses, ate the mules, ate the dogs and cats, and eventually ate the rats uh, inside their lines. Anything to get protein as the siege went on, tried to keep their strength up. Grant increased his army to 70,000 men in the course of the siege. No reinforcements are coming into the Confederates, of course. Grant knew that he was going to win. Pemberton knew uh, that he was going to lose, probably, that he, Pemberton, would lose. Joe Johnston stood by at a distance, helpless to do anything about it. He would like to have ridden to the rescue, but he couldn't. On July the 4th, the day that Lee retreated from the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, John Pemberton surrendered his entire force of 30,000 men. Grant's campaign ranks among the most brilliant, not only of the Civil War, I think, but among the most brilliant military campaigns carried out by any United States officer in our history. He suffered fewer than 10,000 casualties. His army killed or wounded 10,000 Confederates and captured another 37,000. 30,000 at Vicksburg and 7,000 in the battles preceding. Fifteen generals were among the prisoners on the Confederate side together with 172 cannons and 60,000 shoulder arms. Just an enormous success. And it came on July the 4th. This even more than Lee's retreat on July the 4th seemed to be a providential message to people in the North. This wonderful victory, this city that we have focused on for so long, falls into a United States' hands on July the 4th, on the anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Lincoln fully appreciated the way Grant had driven through to a decisive victory. Unlike McClellan or Meade or his other generals, Grant had not just won a partial victory, he had won a complete victory here, just as he had at Fort Donelson back in February of 1862. He not only wins a battle, he captures an entire army. Grant is my man, said Lincoln, and I am his the rest of the war. I mean, Lincoln really had found his general here. Uh, He'd known Grant was good before. Grant is really his man now. Now, on the Confederate side, it's a very different story. Very different story. A tremendous uh, backbiting uh, on the Confederate side, finger-pointing and blaming of one person or another. Jefferson Davis waded right into the middle of this. He picked Joseph Johnston as his great uh, villain in this whole piece. He said Johnston should have supported Pemberton. It was Johnston who didn't do his job. Now, that was completely unfair on Davis's part. Johnston actually tried uh, to unite the Confederate forces in this operation, but 
Pemberton hadn't cooperated. But Jefferson Davis, such was the enmity between Davis and Johnston that Davis settled on Joseph Johnston as his villain. Most of the Confederates, however, settled on Pemberton as the villain. Untold references in writings of the time about how this Yankee had lost Vicksburg. This Yankee who never should have been trusted with the command in the first place. People said he was either an inept Yankee or maybe even a treasonous Yankee. Maybe he had meant to lose Vicksburg. Just as many of the Republicans had wondered whether McClellan was losing on purpose uh, in the peninsula back when he was approaching Richmond and facing Robert E. Lee. Confederate morale took a nosedive. Uh, unlike Gettysburg again, there's no way to try to dress up the loss of Vicksburg and pretend that it's anything except a complete defeat. You lost the big citadel on the river. You lost an entire army. There's no way to make that look any better than it was. And so it's a tremendous blow to the Confederacy and one of the most important campaigns of the Civil War. It has achieved one of the great strategic goals of the North. Not quite, but almost. We'll see in just a minute when Port Hudson falls. That's really the complete control of the river. But people interpreted Vicksburg's fall as the end of Confederate control over any part of the river. Well, let's look at the last pieces of our Western puzzle here now. Let's look quickly at Banks and at Rosecrans, and we'll start with Port Hudson. Port Hudson represented, or excuse me, resembled Vicksburg in many ways. Here's Banks moving against a strong point on the Mississippi River, facing a determined Confederate garrison. He also was supported by Union warships. Porter had been the naval man at Vicksburg, David Glasgow Farragut was the Union naval man uh, accompanying Nathaniel Prentice Banks. Farragut and Banks moved against Port Hudson in late May, and Banks laid siege to the place. His army had an enormous advantage in numbers, more than two to one over the defenders, but the defenders fought uh, tenaciously, and the defenses were formidable at Port Hudson. This wasn't uh, a minor defensive work on the river. It was a very impressive southern defensive position. Like Grant, Banks tried frontal assaults try twice at Port Hudson. Two times he tried to just overrun these defenses on May 27th and again on June 14th. During the first assaults, black soldiers from Louisiana distinguished themselves. This is one of the first times in the war when black soldiers got into combat in a significant way. Many of their white comrades had been very skeptical about whether these black soldiers would fight well or not. Uh, they were tremendously impressed. Uh, again, testimony from the time from the white witnesses who saw these black men assault the Confederate works at Port Hudson contained phrases like, uh, we weren't sure how they would perform, but they performed every bit as gallantly as any white troops. It really was a turning point in terms of attitudes on the part of white soldiers in this army anyway toward their black comrades in those assaults, that first set of assaults on May the 27th at Port Hudson. Well, like Grant, after these failed assaults, the two sets of failed assaults, Banks just settled into a regular siege, and the defenders suffered at Port Hudson just as they had at Vicksburg. They began to eat everything that moved just as they had at Vicksburg, and the siege dragged on just as it had at Vicksburg. The key point uh, in the Port Hudson operation came when news made its way downriver that Vicksburg had fallen. 
Uh, when the com- uh, commander at Port Hudson, Hudson, the Confederate commander, learned that Vicksburg was gone, uh, he saw no reason uh, to continue in his resistance, and he surrendered. July the 9th, 1863, Port Hudson is gone, and that meant the true end of any Confederate hold on the Mississippi River. That is the end of it. The Mississippi now belongs to the Union. The entire length of the greatest river in the country uh, belongs to the United States. In its defense of that stretch of the river, the Confederacy lost 45,000 soldiers surrendered. 45,000. It is a catastrophic loss for the Confederacy. Which brings us to William S. Rosecrans in Tennessee. One last disaster awaits the Confederacy here, and we'll take care of it now. Rosecrans and Bragg had been sitting, facing each other, ever since the Battle of Murfreesboro or Stones River, all the way back at the first of the year. They really hadn't been doing anything. Rosecrans had been reluctant to move, and Lincoln was beginning to think that perhaps he had another Don Carlos Buell on his hands here, someone who simply couldn't get his act together and move against the rebels. Rosecrans resisted Lincoln's blandishments to move more quickly until he was ready. When he was ready, however, he moved very efficiently. June 24th, he began his campaign against Braxton Bragg, and he marched his 63,000 men very effectively in what became known as the Tullahoma Campaign. It's a campaign of maneuver, not a campaign of battles. Rosecrans used a series of flanking movements that befuddled Bragg, and in just two weeks, he pushed the Army of Tennessee's 45,000 men all the way back into Chattanooga which, of course, sits on the Tennessee-Georgia border. He did this at a cost of fewer than 600 casualties. Fewer than 600. A remarkable performance. And he didn't get much credit for it at the time. Uh, He was upset. Washington had issued grand pronouncements uh, regarding the victories at Gettysburg and Vicksburg. Uh, There was thundering silence from Washington about what Rosecrans had accomplished, and it it wounded him badly. Uh, He said he hoped he wouldn't be slighted. He said this in a message, just because what I've done is not written in letters of blood. Uh, But of course, there's something about a big battle that catches people's attention more than nice maneuvering. It's a nice performance on Rosecrans' part, uh, but it was not nearly as prominent as what had happened at Vicksburg and Gettysburg. These three campaigns together, Vicksburg and Port Hudson and Tullahoma, gave the North a splendid boost in national morale and conveyed enormous strategic advantage to the North. The war seemed to be well on track toward Union victory. In our next lecture, we'll see how both sides experienced a mixture of success and frustration in the next round of campaigning, which occurred in the late summer and early autumn of 1863. Lecture 24, A Season of Uncertainty, Summer and Fall, 1863. This lecture will continue our look at military events in 1863. We'll examine the relatively quiescent fronts along the Mississippi River and in Virginia, 
as well as the Battle of Chickamauga, which took place in North Georgia and ranks as the largest battle of the entire war in the Western theater. I will begin uh, in Virginia and along the Mississippi River. We've seen in our recent lectures how much success had come to the North in each of the major theaters in 1863. We've seen George Gordon Meade's victory at Gettysburg, uh, Grant's victory at Vicksburg, Nathaniel P. Banks' reduction of the Confederate stronghold at Port Hudson, and William Rosecrans' successful Tullahoma campaign, which pushed Braxton Bragg and the Army of Tennessee back into the vital city of Chattanooga. The tide seemed to have swung decisively against the South. And the task, it seemed, for Lincoln and his group of planners was to come up with a strategy that would build on this northern success and perhaps bring the war to an end within a few months. As we'll see, that didn't end up being the case. Uh, they were not able to get any kind of decisive action in Virginia. Uh, they really couldn't decide on a quick target out in the far western theater. And the only major battle that took place in the middle theater, the Tennessee-North Georgia theater, proved to be a major disappointment for the North. Lincoln and Halleck, as they looked at the map in Virginia in the wake of Gettysburg, grew more disenchanted with George Gordon Meade. Lincoln had hoped for a rapid follow-up to the Union success at Gettysburg. He'd, he wanted something almost immediately after the battle. He hadn't gotten that, but had still hoped that Meade somehow would bring Lee to a showdown battle, perhaps before Lee was able to get back across the Potomac River. The river's uh, waters were very high after Gettysburg, and Lee was in effect trapped north of the Potomac for a while. Uh, that seemed to open an opportunity for Meade, but in the end, Lee was able to dig in along the river. Uh, Meade uh, did not attack him, and the Confederates escaped. Meade later explained that he didn't want to attack Lee's strong defensive positions near the river. It was probably a good move on his part because he feared having to fight a Gettysburg in reverse with the Confederates being in a good defensive position and the Federal attackers being slaughtered as they tried to carry that position. Still, it probably would have been wise for Meade to try to attempt some kind of pressure against Lee. In the end, though, he didn't. Uh, Lee's crippled army, severely crippled army, limped back into Virginia, and eventually the armies uh, in the Eastern Theater settled into an uneasy period of watching each other warily along that military frontier. Lincoln, I think, rather quickly gave up hope that he would have any dramatic results in Virginia. He was, his, his level of confidence in Meade was dropping at this point. Meade had done well enough uh, at least in the actual fighting on the 2nd and 3rd at Gettysburg, but after that he had proved to be a disappointment, and Lincoln's confidence is dropping, and he decided in the end not to ask very much of Meade in Virginia. He, in essence, asked Meade only to keep an eye on Lee and not to push for any kind of dramatic showdown with the Army of Northern Virginia. In fact, Lincoln suggested that Meade probably shouldn't even attack Meade's army, but just uh, attack Lee's army, excuse me, but just make sure that Lee didn't pull some kind of maneuver uh, that might hurt federal chances elsewhere. Lincoln reasoned that if Meade had failed to hit Lee when the Army of Northern Virginia was in a precarious position, uh, right after Gettysburg, uh, that it was highly unlikely that Meade would be able to, to accomplish much now that Lee had time to dig in, or at least sort of dig in, in a much stronger position in Virginia.
This might have been an overreaction on Lincoln's part to Meade's earlier failure, but it meant that union planning for the Virginia theater was considered secondary to union planning in the West. Lincoln was not expecting that the war would be won or even advanced very much in the East. Uh, He took pretty much the same attitude he had taken when Joseph Hooker first came into power in the Army of the Potomac. I'm hoping that nothing bad happens in Virginia, but I'm expecting that something good will happen out West. Now, Meade finally did express an interest in taking the attack to Lee. Lincoln told him no. He said, keep up a threatening attitude, but do not advance. Well, while this is going on on the Union side, uh, the Confederate planners in Richmond decided to detach two divisions from the Army of Northern Virginia, James Longstreet's divisions under Lafayette McClaws and John Bell Hood, and shift them westward to reinforce Braxton Bragg's army in North Georgia. That indicated that on the Confederate side, as on the Union side, Virginia had dropped to a position where it was considered less important than what was going on out west. So that's what's happening in Virginia. Not much is the bottom line. What about out along the Mississippi River? Well, Grant and the Federals found themselves in a position of having accomplished everything they had been hoping to accomplish for a long time, uh, taking control of the Mississippi River, and they were somewhat at a loss as to how to follow that up. What should be our next target out west? What can we do to best build on this success that we've had at Vicksburg and at Port Hudson. Now, the North had the advantage, the wonderful luxury, really, of being able to pick a target anywhere up and down the Mississippi River because their naval power could project Union strength to any point along the river, supply Union armies at any point along the river, and therefore open up that entire vast stretch of the Confederacy to military operations that might end up with a Union victory. No worry about secure water transportation, and supply lines as long as they operated near the river. They had the uh, plus, really, of interior lines all along the line of the Mississippi because their naval power was absolutely paramount. Uh, The Confederacy severed in two. Now, they could go one of two directions. They could either focus their power westward toward what was called the Trans-Mississippi Theater, Arkansas, Indian Territory, Texas, and the bulk of Louisiana, or they could try to find a target east of the river or on the Gulf Coast that made sense as the next logical place to strike. Henry W. Halleck wanted to concentrate on the Trans-Mississippi region. He argued that Confederate forces there were relatively small and scattered. The states of Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas, he thought, might be driven out of the war entirely if the North focused enough resources on them and just took them off the board completely. Grant and Banks, in contrast, both wanted to attack Mobile, the last major Confederate port on the Gulf. If we could seal Mobile, they said, not only would that hurt the South in terms of costing them one more port, but it would also put us in a position, and this is especially Grant thinking, would put us in a position to strike into the heartland of Alabama and perhaps from there even into the heartland of Georgia. But like Halleck, Lincoln preferred the Trans-Mississippi. And Lincoln had a number of political reasons for wanting to look in that direction rather than toward Mobile. First, he wanted to open up cotton cultivation in Texas to free labor. If we can get control of Texas, all of those cotton lands in Texas will come under our control and we can make a good cotton crop there. 
Uh, he and Secretary of State William Henry Seward also thought that if the northern forces were successful in Texas, they could make a show of strength that would prevent France uh, from trying to pull some kind of military operation or at least entertaining thoughts of marching French troops out of Mexico to help the Confederacy. We'll talk more about this later, but for now it's enough to say that uh, taking advantage of the Great War in the United States, uh, Napoleon III in Mexico had sent 35,000 French troops to Mexico, and Mexico was now a puppet regime uh, controlled by French interests. Uh, the United States worried that perhaps some of those French troops might wander north, and they didn't want that to happen. Union strength in Texas could help blunt that. Lincoln also reasoned that if Louisiana and Arkansas and Texas were freed of southern military forces, they might be brought back into the Union. They might be reconstructed virtually immediately. Well, the final result was that Grant didn't get his way in this instance. He would have to wait to strike at Mobile. The final plan was that a Union army would advance into Arkansas. Nathaniel Banks would be reinforced and ordered to move into Texas. Uh, he was told to march up the Red River uh, to get to Texas, but uh, in fact, he would take another approach. He would go by sea to points along the Texas coast, and Grant uh, would occupy himself by driving Joseph Johnston eastward out of Jackson, Mississippi. Johnston had come back into Jackson after Grant had moved on to Vicksburg. And generally, Grant would also try to clean the rebels out of western Mississippi and make Union control of the river absolutely secure. Grant gave the task of dealing with Jackson to William Tecumseh Sherman. He said, go over, uh, push the Confederates out of Jackson, tear up the railroads there, and come back. And that's just what Sherman did. He had a tidy little campaign. He went to Jackson. He tore up the railroads. He pushed the Confederates out. Uh, his men got to practice uh, a process of tearing up railroads that became standard during the war. They would march along a railroad bed, taking up the rails one by one. Uh, they'd stack the ties up in a heap, uh, lay the rails over the top, set fire to the ties, and when the fire blazed and the rails were heated, uh, they'd then get a hold of each end of the rail and bend the rails around a tree or some other uh, solid object so that they would be unusable uh, for the Confederates. Confederates couldn't produce rails to uh, replace the ones that were destroyed this way. Uh, these twisted rails became known later in the war as Sherman's neckties or Sherman's bow ties. Grant also sent out a few other expeditions that destroyed supplies and wrecked railroads elsewhere in Mississippi, but basically he didn't have a major goal. He was underutilized at this stage of the war. There simply wasn't a major target for him to focus on in the Mississippi theater. So Grant awaited further orders from Washington. That brings us to the North Georgia Chattanooga, Tennessee theater. This assumed center stage in the late summer and early fall as the most important theater of the war. The major federal army, of course, was Rosecrans's Army of the Cumberland, stationed just outside Chattanooga, uh, resting there after the Tullahoma campaign, which had been so successful. Halleck and Lincoln wanted Rosecrans to continue the movement that had forced Bragg to relinquish the last piece of Middle Tennessee that the Confederates held uh, at the end of June. They thought speed was imperative because they feared that Joseph Johnston might march to join Bragg and uh, unite those two Confederate forces and present the Union with a formidable army 
either somewhere uh, in North Georgia or even in Tennessee. Rosecrans, however, wouldn't be hurried. Again, a tendency he'd shown before the Tullahoma campaign, he shows that part of his military personality again now will not be rushed, and it was late July before he finally got into motion. At the same time that he began his movement, another Union force marched into Tennessee, and that was one commanded by Ambrose E. Burnside, our old friend from the Battle of Fredericksburg. Burnside had had uh, various adventures or misadventures, uh, some of which we'll talk about later in the course, but now he's back out in field command again. He'd been out of field command for a while. He's taking charge of an army that has Knoxville, Tennessee, as its goal. Knoxville, the most important city in East Tennessee, East Tennessee, as you'll remember, is a part of the Confederacy that Lincoln, from the very beginning of the war, had wanted to liberate, as Lincoln put it. All those loyal Unionists waiting there in the mountains of eastern Tennessee, said Lincoln, they deserve our attention, they deserve our sending a United States Army into that area so that they can fly their true colors, those loyal Unionists, as citizens of the United States. Lincoln has high hopes yet again that East Tennessee will be added to the Union column. The Confederates, for their part, hoped to be able to seize the initiative in this theater. Uh, All Confederate eyes weren't focused on this part of the war map, but many of the pairs of eyes that counted were focused on it. That's why the decision had been made to pull strength around Virginia, central Virginia, pull it out of that theater and send it west to reinforce Bragg. Now, the prime thinker or mover behind this idea was Gustav Tutom Beauregard. He had advocated the idea back uh, in the wake of the victory at Chancellorsville before Lee moved toward Gettysburg, and now he brings that idea up again. It's, It's the revival of a plan that the Confederates had already debated and argued back in May of 1863. But now we're after Gettysburg, after Lee's failure, in his invasion across the Potomac River in June and early July, and the terms of the debate are different. Davis supported the idea. Secretary of War James Seddon supported the idea. Braxton Bragg supported the idea. James Longstreet supported the idea, as did many other military and political figures. A very strong cast, in other words, is saying, yes, what we need to do is reinforce Bragg, and this time, Lee went along. He really didn't have arguments with which to counter this plan, and so he agreed that his army would be weakened in the hope of accomplishing something in the vicinity of Chattanooga. As I said earlier, the the troops that were selected to go were James Longstreet's 1st Corps divisions, the only two that were left with the army. George Pickett's division had been so battered at Gettysburg that it was off trying to be rebuilt at this stage of the war. It wasn't considered a viable military organization. So Longstreet had only two divisions, John Bell Hood's and Lafayette McClaws's. Those two divisions would head west, together with the artillery that belonged to Longstreet's corps. Meanwhile, Rosecrans and his Army of the Cumberland repeated their success of June by maneuvering Bragg out of Chattanooga without a fight a brilliant follow-up to the Tullahoma campaign. Chattanooga was a critically important city. It lay at the junction of two major east-west-southern railroads, and it served as the gateway not only to eastern Tennessee, if you're coming from the south, 
but also to the industrial centers of Georgia because a railroad ran from Chattanooga down to the important city of Atlanta in northern Georgia. A move from Chattanooga to Atlanta would split the Confederacy again. It's the type of move that old Winfield Scott had envisioned back in his early planning uh, in the first spring of the war, this major strike into the heart of the Confederacy. Uh, So federal capture of Chattanooga was a very good piece of news for the North. Rosecrans began his advance on August 16th. He demonstrated in front of the city, in front of Bragg's force, with one of his army corps, and then crossed the Tennessee River above the city with the rest of his strength, and thus came in behind Bragg's left flank. Bragg had no choice but to abandon the city of Chattanooga, which he did on September 9th. He retreated completely out of Tennessee. Now the Army of Tennessee is no longer in Tennessee. It is in North Georgia. Burnside, at the same time, had moved uh, fairly efficiently toward Knoxville, and three days before Rosecrans marched into Chattanooga, Burnside had captured Knoxville. Six days, excuse me, not three. Uh, Knoxville had fallen on the third. So here is tremendous Union success in the last two important cities left in Tennessee that hadn't been under Union control. All of Tennessee is now under Union control, all the major cities. Nashville long gone, Memphis gone, now Chattanooga and Knoxville both belong to the United States. Lincoln's long-cherished wish to free East Tennessee had been accomplished. Rosecrans telegraphed Lincoln on the 9th, Chattanooga is ours without a struggle, and East Tennessee is free. Our move on the enemy's flank and rear progresses. Rosecrans wants to push his advantage to keep going after Bragg here. Rosecrans believed at this stage of the campaign that the Confederates were completely disorganized and demoralized. This is an army that he's pushed completely out of Tennessee without even having to fight, basically, and I I think that Rosecrans thought the Army of Tennessee was, if not on its last legs, approaching that position. Retreating into central Georgia seemingly with no offensive notions in mind. He acted on that belief by scattering his army on an arc uh, from Chattanooga down into north Georgia, spreading them out on a wide front, unaware of the fact that the Confederates, in fact, were planning a major counterblow in this part of the strategic landscape. Bragg did have offensive notions of his own. He'd been reinforced by two divisions from Joseph Johnston's army. He'd been reinforced by troops under Simon Bolivar Buckner that had been stationed in East Tennessee, and he would soon receive the reinforcements from Lee's army. Those two divisions, those two veteran divisions from the Army of Northern Virginia, used to success uh, victors on a number of battlefields. They were on their way via rail. Now, they had to take a very roundabout route, these two divisions from Virginia did, because the southern rail system was in such a decrepit state by this point in the war. They had to take uh, roundabout ways. They had to go way out of the what would seem to be the direct route. Uh, the rolling stock uh, wasn't in good shape. Delay after delay, uh, locomotives would break down. The right cars wouldn't be available. Uh, in the end, only about two-thirds of Longstreet's men would get to Bragg in time for the next fight, but it was still a fairly impressive use of railroads on the Confederacy's part to shift a significant piece of one army to reinforce 
another. Federal intelligence picked up this movement of the reinforcements from Lee to Bragg, but picked it up a little too late. Troops ordered to Rosecrans to counter uh, these reinforcements for Bragg wouldn't arrive in time to participate in the big battle that was looming not far ahead. What Bragg hoped to do, he knew that Rosecrans was scattered around a good part of North Georgia. He hoped to hit pieces of the Union Army before those pieces could come together. In other words, to strike in detail at his opponent's army. Get in behind the Federals, he hoped, and cut them off from access to Chattanooga and the Tennessee River. Isolate them in the rugged country of northwest Georgia. That's what each side is trying to do. Let's move on now to the Battle of Chickamauga. Rosecrans figured out just in time that he might be in some danger, and he pulled his army back together. By September 17th, he had about 58,000 men in position a few miles south of Chattanooga in the valley of Chickamauga Creek. Chickamauga is an Indian word. Uh, you'll read in many of the accounts it's an Indian word that means river of death. Uh, well, I really wonder about that. Uh, it seems that most of the Indian words that have any meaning in the Civil War mean river of death or ledge of death or place where people die or something like that. And I wonder whether that is... Uh, people naming those in retrospect or giving a meaning to those words in retrospect. Uh, I'm doubtful whether that's what Chickamauga really means, but that's what soldiers later pretended that it meant. For our purposes, it doesn't matter what the word really meant. All that matters is that is where Rosecrans is marshalling his army uh, in the valley of Chickamauga Creek. When Longstreet's men, the two-thirds of them that got up in time to fight in the battle, were present, Bragg had nearly 70,000 soldiers. It's one of the very unusual times in the war when a major Confederate army outnumbers its Union opponent in one of the big battles of the conflict. Bragg's plan called for an advance through part of Rosecrans's line to interpose the Army of Tennessee between the Federals and Chattanooga, after which the Confederates would try to drive the Federals into a place called McLemore's Cove, a cul-de-sac where the Union troops would have a very difficult time escaping from the encircling Confederates. The terrain around Chickamauga Creek was heavily wooded, much like the terrain at Shiloh. There was light skirmishing on September 18th. The battle proper began on September 19th, and it began much the way the Battle of Gettysburg had begun. Nathan Bedford Forrest's cavalry, some of it, ran into Union infantry, and as at Gettysburg, each side hurried reinforcements forward, and what had begun as a skirmish escalated into a battle as the fighting spread and intensified. The Confederates kept trying to get around the Union left flank, again, to get in between the Federals and the road to Chattanooga. But the action was confused because of the terrain. There were nasty little fights between brigades, even regiments, sometimes divisions that would flare up and then die down. Uh, John Hood's division from Lee's army had a little bit of success on that day, but neither side really gained uh, the upper hand, and the fighting came to a halt at the end of the day on the 19th as each side braced for an even bigger battle the next day. Longstreet arrived that night, sort of stumbled through the dark, 
Uh, there was no one to meet him at the little train station. He didn't know where Bragg's headquarters were. He got in late. He made his way through the dark. He and a staff officer finally found Bragg's headquarters, uh, had a discussion, and Bragg announced that Longstreet would be given half of the army on the next day. Uh, Longstreet doesn't even know what's going on, basically, but he's going to command the left wing of Bragg's army. Bishop Polk will command the right. And the plan is that the assaults, the Confederate assaults on the 20th, would begin on Polk's flank and work their way down the line toward Longstreet's end of the line, engaging the Federals all along uh, this very extensive battle line. That was the plan. That's not how the fight worked out on the 20th. Bragg woke up. He'd hoped to have the assaults begin early, and he listened, and there was no sound of firing from his right flank, and he waited, and no sound. He sent couriers. Couldn't find out what was happening with Polk. Finally, a staff officer found Polk at his headquarters. Polk uh, and a coterie of his people were sitting around tables having an enormous breakfast, and the staff officer, barely containing his anger, said, we thought the attacks would be going now. General Bragg thought the attacks would be going now. And Polk answered something like, yes, my heart is overflowing with anxiety about these attacks. Well, Polk was in charge of the attacks. He's the one who could make the attacks go. Uh, he was not doing his job here. Uh, in the end, uh, Bragg stepped in, ordered the assaults to begin, and the Confederates began to attack the Union line. The attacks were not making much headway until by sheer luck, one Union officer thought that he spotted a gap in Rosecrans's line. Rosecrans ordered a division to pull out of the line at another point to plug the gap. In fact, there hadn't been an original gap, but when the division pulled out, there was one, and James Longstreet's troops, right at the moment that the gap appeared, drove a powerful assault right through that gap in the Union lines. A piece of tremendous luck for the Confederates. They shattered the right third of the Army of the Cumberland. Drove it from the field, absolutely drove a third of the Union Army from the field. Rosecrans's entire right wing, in essence, sprinted for safety. Uh, one northern witness said, I saw our lines break and melt away like leaves before the wind. Uh, a man on the spot said that he saw Rosecrans, who was a Catholic, make the sign of the cross. And he said, parenthetically, he didn't think that was a good sign, probably, that the commanding general was making the sign of the cross. At any rate, a big chunk of the Union Army is leaving the field, Rosecrans along with it. And many of those Federals didn't stop until they reached the outskirts of Chattanooga. Confederates captured 8,000 men, 15,000 muskets, 51 cannons, and a huge amount of materiel. It's a shattering defeat for that end of the Union line. The Confederates renewed their pressure on the Union left. It's the Union right that's gone, and their officers urged them forward to finish the job. Uh, one officer, Benjamin Franklin Cheatham, uh, a Confederate major general and a tremendously hard swearing man, was urging his men forward, give them hell and lots of other much more profane language than that. Uh, Polk, the bishop, uh, of Louisiana, of the Southwest, couldn't bring himself to curse that way, but he was riding along and he hollered out at his men to give him what General Cheatham says to give him. <laughs> well, even with that kind of sterling leadership on Leonidas Polk's part, the Confederates couldn't finish the job against the Federals. This is another example of how resilient Civil War armies were. The key was George H. Thomas. 
who pulled together the left part of the Union Army, the fragments that had not been driven from the field, brought them into a tight uh, horseshoe-shaped position uh, centered on a place called Snodgrass Hill and held off the Confederate assaults for the rest of the day. Uh, Thomas, we'll learn more about him later. He's a Virginian who stayed loyal to the Union, paid a terrible price for it. Uh, His family read him out of the family when he left uh, to stay with the North and not to go with Virginia. Uh, When word came to his family later that he had died after the war, uh, his sisters announced, our brother died in 1861. Uh, There was no contact between his family and him when he remained uh, with the Union. But he did a splendid job of fighting on the afternoon of the 20th. He earned the nickname the Rock of Chickamauga. He held the army together, what was left of it, and withdrew in good order toward Chattanooga. He would later become one of the great Union war heroes. Well, the Confederates sensed their first great battlefield victory. They raised an enormous rebel yell that swept from one end of the line to the other. Uh, Bragg wasn't quite sure that he'd won a victory, couldn't quite believe that he'd won a victory. When a Confederate soldier who had been captured early in the battle and then escaped and made his way back to Confederate lines saw Bragg and said, yes, uh, we have won a victory, General, a great victory. Uh, Bragg looked at him and said, Do you know, excuse me, the man said that the Federals were in retreat all along the line, and Bragg looked at him and said, do you know what a retreat looks like? And the man replied, yes, General, I ought to know I've been with you during your whole campaign, (laughs) and then slipped off uh, into the underbrush. Chickamauga, as I said, was the largest battle fought in the West during the war. Enormous casualties, staggering, 18,500 for the Confederates, 16,000 for the Federals. It's the Confederacy's greatest tactical victory in the West and the last major battlefield victory for the Confederacy in the entire war. It gave a momentary lift to Southern morale. Uh, Rosecrans himself wired Washington, we have met with a severe disaster. But the victory came at a terrible cost to the South and brought no strategic reward because Bragg failed to follow it up. He did not make any attempt to press the Federals toward Chattanooga. The next major action in the war would come at Chattanooga and would result in Grant's elevation to Supreme Northern Command. And that is what we will look at next time. These lectures are part of the Great Courses series. They are produced by The Teaching Company. These lectures are titled, The American Civil War, Part 3. Lecture 25, Grant at Chattanooga. This lecture will conclude our coverage of military events in 1863. We left off last time with the retreat of William S. Rosecrans' Army of the Cumberland into Chattanooga after the Battle of Chickamauga. Now we'll follow that story to its conclusion. We'll look at the difficulties that both Rosecrans and Braxton Bragg faced after Chickamauga. We'll look at the Confederate siege of Chattanooga. Then we'll bring Ulysses S. Grant onto the stage for a successful lifting of the siege during the Battle of Chattanooga. 
And finally, we will wind up with a look at the overall impact of the Union victory at Chattanooga on the war as a whole. But we'll start uh, with the Army of Tennessee and the Army of the Cumberland in the wake of Chickamauga. William S. Rosecrans took his troops into the city, into the defenses of the city uh, after Chickamauga, and began to prepare for what he thought would be a major Confederate effort to retake that important place. As he strengthened his lines, he didn't know it, but as he was strengthening his lines, the high command of the Confederate Army was racked with incredible dissension, bickering, arguing. The same thing had happened to Bragg's high command after the Battle of Perryville. It had happened again after the Battle of Stones River, uh, recriminations and people pointed, pointing fingers at others. We could have done more if only this general had done better or if this general had done something differently. The same thing is happening after Chickamauga. And it's interesting to compare that kind of behavior at the highest echelon of the major Confederate Western Army with what happened at the highest echelon of command in the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, this uh, comparison points up one of Lee's great virtues as a soldier compared uh, to Bragg. Uh, as an army commander, more specifically, it wasn't enough to be a good strategist or a good tactician if you were going to command an army effectively. You had to be able to administer the army well, and you had to be able to work with sometimes difficult personnel. Uh, Lee was brilliant at that. I think he was very like uh, Dwight Eisenhower during World War II in that regard. Uh, just imagine what Eisenhower must have thought each morning uh, when he woke up uh, realizing that Montgomery and Patton were both still under his command. How am I going to keep these two prima donnas happy? Ike must have thought many times, and yet he managed to. He had a very deft touch. Lee was the same way uh, as commander of the Army of Northern Virginia. He had difficult lieutenants as well. Uh, A.P. Hill, very prickly. Stonewall Jackson could be difficult. James Longstreet, all of these egos, all of these men who wanted uh, to be in the limelight, wanted full credit for what they'd done, but Lee managed to handle them without ever having squabbles get into the newspapers. He managed to ease incompetent officers out of the army uh, without a trace. Uh, there was no article in the newspaper when this general or that general would leave. Uh, Lee got rid of John Bankhead Magruder. He got rid of Theophilus Holmes. He got rid of many officers he didn't think were up to their duties in the Army of Northern Virginia, but he did it very smoothly, very deftly, and he simply would not tolerate public squabbles among his subordinates. Well, that stands in great contrast to what happened in the Army of Tennessee after almost every battle. Part of the problem, of course, is that Bragg kept losing battles, and it's easier uh, to have a poisonous atmosphere develop after a loss than after a win, but a good deal of it also is uh, the skills at personnel uh, that Bragg had on the one hand or really didn't have, and Lee uh, had in abundance on the other. After Chickamauga, Bragg's principal subordinate said that Bragg should have pressed the retreating army of the Cumberland. How could you have passed up that kind of opportunity was basically the question. Uh, the un stated part of that was this is the only victory we've won out here in the war and we fumbled our opportunity to make it an even greater victory. Bragg responded to this criticism by saying it had been his subordinates fault. That's what had gone wrong with the battle. He was very unhappy with Bishop Polk. Uh, he was happy, or excuse me, unhappy with others in his army as well. It got 
so acrimonious at headquarters for the Army of Tennessee that Jefferson Davis decided that he had better visit Army headquarters and try to straighten out this mess. He arrived. He spoke to the principals. In fact, he went right around the group of major subordinates and asked them point blank, should Bragg be retained in command or should he not? Right around uh, all of the major commanders said, get rid of Bragg. Bragg is a problem. We need new leadership. Uh, Longstreet said Joseph Johnston would be the man to bring in. Uh, Davis may actually have been thinking for a time anyway of making Longstreet the army commander. That would have been a disaster. Uh, But Longstreet said that Joe Johnston was the man for the job. Davis, of course, his enmity toward Johnston uh, made clear or made certain that he wouldn't make that change. Uh, Longstreet even wrote to the Secretary of War. He said, nothing but the hand of God can save us or help us as long as we have our present commander. Davis listened to all of this. He listened to Bragg's response. And in the end, he decided to stick with Bragg. Uh, It was an example, I think, of two things at work. One, uh, there was no immediately available person that Davis thought would do a better job. Johnston was out of the question. But he also, I think, tended to be loyal to Bragg because Bragg had been so loyal to him in the past. The upshot is all of these unhappy subordinates are left in an army where the man they've said has to go is still their boss. And it is a very bad situation. Bragg got rid of two of his corps commanders, including Bishop General Polk. That was probably a good move. I mean, Polk was not a talented man. Polk had not done a good job at Chickamauga. He really hadn't done a good job anywhere as a Confederate soldier. Uh, So he is out of the army. Uh, Brigadier General Nathan Bedford Forrest, cavalryman who had led the only real Confederate pursuit of fleeing Federals after Chickamauga, and had reported back to Bragg that Rosecrans's army was completely demoralized and should be harassed. Uh, he urged an immediate uh, advance against the Federals. Bragg refused. But a week after the battle, Bragg and Forrest had a major confrontation, a really classic uh, confrontation, an unbelievable one. Uh, Bragg had ordered Forrest to turn his command over to another cavalryman, and Forrest confronted uh, his commanding general face-to-face and said... This is according to an eyewitness. You have played the part of a damned scoundrel and are a coward. If you were any part of a man, I would slap your jaws, Forrest told Bragg. If you ever again try to interfere with me or cross my path, it will be at the peril of your life. Well, this is pretty flagrant insubordination, I would say. Uh, Threatening, directly threatening uh, your commanding general the kind of insubordination that clearly should not go unpunished, but it did go unpunished. And I think it went unpunished because of the nature of the man who did the threatening here. I've mentioned Forrest a couple of times earlier in our course. Let me just talk a little bit more about him now. He's one of the most uh, colorful, doesn't really get at what he was uh, what he was one of the most of. He's absolutely flamboyant in some ways. Uh, there's, he's unique in some ways among Civil War uh, commanders. He had a fierce reputation. Uh, he'd born, uh, been born absolutely hard scrabble, uh, grown up very poor, had to make his way in life very early by his wits. Uh, he had almost no education. He'd become a slave trader in the years before the war, had amassed a fortune, land and slaves. 
Uh, after the war, he was the first imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. He didn't found the Klan, but he was the first imperial wizard of the Klan. He was accused of massacring black soldiers and white Unionist soldiers at Fort Pillow uh, in 1864. Uh, one of the many uh, notorious incidents uh, that clustered around him, he, his partisans have always denied uh, that Forrest had urged his soldiers to kill these black soldiers uh, at Fort Pillow who had surrendered or tried to surrender uh, in books right down to the present day. You'll read that Forrest's men got out of control somehow, uh, but Forrest wasn't involved. Other lost cause writers would argue that there was no slaughter at all. Uh, but in fact, I think Forrest probably took an active role. And let me just quote uh, very quickly from a letter uh, written by a man named Achilles Clark to his sister on April 14th. 1864, right after the Battle of Fort Pillow, this man was in the 20th Tennessee Cavalry, and he's describing he participated in the Fort Pillow battle, and he wrote this, the slaughter was awful, words cannot describe the scene, the poor deluded Negroes would run up to our men, fall upon their knees and with uplifted hands scream for mercy, but they were ordered to their feet and then shot down. I, with several others, tried to stop the butchery and at one time had partially succeeded, but General Forrest ordered them shot down like dogs, and the carnage continued. Finally, our men became sick of blood, and the firing ceased. Uh, Forrest himself was unrepentant, certainly. He wrote, the river was dyed with the blood of the slaughtered for 200 yards. It's hoped that these facts will demonstrate to the northern people that Negro soldiers cannot cope with southerners. I don't think there's much doubt that Forrest not only knew what was going on, but actually approved of what was going on uh, at Fort Pillow. Uh, Fort Pillow became a cause celeb in the North. There was a congressional investigation into what happened at Fort Pillow. Uh, the point is that this is part of a very controversial uh, career. Forrest was a very good cavalryman. He used his Cavalry, more as mounted infantry. He'd get them to a battlefield and then get them off their horses and they'd fight as infantry. He's often quoted as saying that the key to winning battles was to get their firstest with the mostest men. Uh, he actually, if he said it at all, said first with the most. Uh, but he was considered by many then and remains uh, considered today by some historians and other people interested in the Civil War as the greatest genius, military, untutored genius of the war. I think that's greatly exaggerated. Uh, you'll often read that if only he'd been given an army, if only Forrest had been given more responsibility. Uh, I can't even imagine Forrest in command of an army. Uh, it's, it's too scary to contemplate. I think he'd probably reached his level of competency, but he was very good at that level. Uh, William Tecumseh Sherman said once that Forrest would have to be dealt with if it took 10,000 lives and broke the United States Treasury. Uh, Yankee soldiers called him that devil forest, uh, but he always fought on a small scale. He said he had 29 horses killed out from under him during the war and that he had killed at least one more Federal uh, than he had lost horses. Wounded many times. Uh, lots of quotes, very quotable quotations from him. He said once that he liked to be wounded occasionally because it drained his boils. I'll give just one more anecdote about him, and this gets to the, the question of whether he would have been a good army commander or not. Uh, he just didn't have the temperament for paperwork or for going through channels. An officer asked for uh, a leave from him at one point, and Forrest said no, and it went back down, and it came back up. This officer explained in greater detail why he wanted leave. No, went back down. It came back the third time, 
and Forrest scrawled across it, I have told you twice, goddammit, no. Uh, that's Forrest's way of handling paperwork, uh, and I think it's indicative of the kind of, of personality he was. He was the kind of personality that Braxton Bragg did not want to cross, I think. So Bragg listened to this, he kept his mouth shut, uh, and Forrest went away. Bragg lost an excellent cavalry officer. Well, all of this squabbling taking place in the Confederate High Command, Bragg finally moved toward Chattanooga, where he set up a line pinning Rosecrans's army in the city. Bragg occupied two key pieces of high ground at Chattanooga. Missionary Ridge, a 400-foot-high ridge that ran mostly east of the city. He placed troops there, and he placed artillery and troops on Lookout Mountain, a very impressive uh, piece of high ground that loomed over Chattanooga and the Tennessee River, where it made a big loop by the city of Chattanooga. The artillery on Lookout Mountain commanded approaches from the south and west. Union reinforces, excuse me, Union reinforcements were ordered to Chattanooga to bolster Rosecrans's force. Sherman from Mississippi came with 17,000 men, and Joseph Hooker was brought back into active command and sent out with 25,000 men from the Army of the Potomac, the 11th and 12th Corps. They went by rail, and the Union movement by rail of these 25,000 men was a very impressive operation. stood in great contrast to the efficiency of the Confederate rail operation that had sent James Longstreet's two divisions out to reinforce Bragg. Well, inside Chattanooga, supplies were growing very short for Rosecrans because Bragg's army controlled the rail and water communications uh, into the city, and the Federals found themselves depending on one very tenuous uh, outlet uh, along which they could bring materials into the city, one very narrow road for food and other material. By mid-October, thousands of horses had died, and the men were on quarter rations inside the city. It was a situation that was setting itself up to become a true disaster, and the Federal High Command decided that a change was necessary. Let's move now uh, to bring Ulysses S. Grant onto the scene. On October 17th, Lincoln named Grant commander of all Union forces between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River. This is the old command area that Henry Halleck had been given in the wake of his great successes in the early part of that Western campaigning in 1862. It's also the same area uh, that Albert Sidney Johnston had commanded on the Confederate side. And again, it's a measure of the confidence in Grant that Lincoln would give him such wide responsibility. As soon as Grant had the responsibility, he removed William S. Rosecrans from command of the Army of the Cumberland. Lincoln approved of this. As Lincoln put it, he thought Rosecrans had, quote, become confused and stunned like a duck hit on the head after Chickamauga. Grant next went personally to Chattanooga, and things began to look up for the Federals once he was on the scene. A series of moves drove the Confederates back from part of their investing position and allowed the Federals to open a more direct supply line. Soon the Confederate siege became almost totally ineffective. Now, Grant was aided in this by the detachment of James Longstreet and about 15,000 troops from Bragg's army. They were sent off to try to recapture Knoxville. Jefferson Davis 
had recommended that to Bragg back when he'd visited the army to see about all these squabbles uh, after Chickamauga. I think Bragg, however, was happy to have Longstreet go because he and Longstreet were not getting along. I'm sure that he knew that Longstreet didn't approve of his generalship. But off go 15,000 troops, and that leaves Bragg with only about 45,000 as we enter the key last phase of this campaign. And that is Grant's planning of an offensive that would drive the Confederates entirely away from Chattanooga. By mid-November, Grant had built his army up to 75,000 men in the city. He outnumbered Bragg by about 30,000. Bragg still sat in his lines on Missionary Ridge and on Lookout Mountain. Along Missionary Ridge, there were trenches at the base of the ridge. And there were trenches at the top of the ridge. And then there was a line of rifle pits about midway up. So three groups of defensive positions on this ridge. Three southern brigades held 2,000-foot-high Lookout Mountain. Seemed to be a very strong position, if you don't look at it too carefully. A 400-foot-high ridge with all these works on it and Lookout Mountain. Grant looked at his problem, and he decided to do this. He wanted Hooker's soldiers from the Army of the Potomac to capture Lookout Mountain. As that was going on, Sherman's men from the Army of the Tennessee, not to be confused with the Army of Tennessee, the Union Army of the Tennessee would attack Bragg's right flank at the northern end of Missionary Ridge. And Thomas's Army of the Cumberland in the center would demonstrate uh, against the front of Missionary Ridge to hold the Confederates' attention. Thomas and his soldiers felt that they had been slighted in this plan. They were given the least important part of this plan, and they didn't think that was right. They're the ones who had been routed at Chickamauga, or many of them had been routed at Chickamauga. That battle stood uh, as an event that besmirched their record as soldiers, which had been very good before that. They believed that they should be given uh, the post of honor in any attempt to defeat Bragg's army, and yet here they were consigned to a decidedly secondary role a good deal of grumbling among soldiers in the Army of the Cumberland. November 24th, Joseph Hooker captured Lookout Mountain. It's a very dramatic scene. Uh, clouds had dropped low so that part of the mountain was shrouded in clouds. It was called the Battle Above the Clouds eventually. I mean, Hooker was on his horse surveying all of this, thousands of troops in view. Not very much heavy fighting, uh, but it resulted in a quite dramatic Union victory the Federal seized Lookout Mountain on the 24th. Sherman had less success. Uh, he ran into the best Confederate division uh, in Bragg's army. It was a division commanded by a man born in Ireland. His name was Patrick R. Claiborne. Claiborne, an absolutely first-rate division commander, uh, kept his troops well in hand and repulsed Sherman's attacks on the 24th. The next day, on the 25th, Grant ordered Thomas's troops to make a diversionary attack toward the base of Missionary Ridge. Wanted them to capture that first line of trenches at the base of the ridge, and that's all. Uh, he never would have ordered them to attack the top of the ridge. It would have been unthinkable uh, to order troops to assault a 400-foot-high ridge. So he wanted them to take the line of works at the base of the ridge. The troops moved forward that day. Grant and Thomas were back on a little knob uh, in, Chance, uh, excuse me, in Chattanooga watching the action to see how this attack went. 
The Federals captured the works at the foot of Missionary Ridge, and there was a pause. They stayed there. They were taking fire from higher up the ridge. And then, as Grant and Thomas looked on in amazement, the Federals began to move up the face of Missionary Ridge. They didn't have orders to do that. They went up in big inverted Vs, uh, up, straight up, into the teeth of Braxton Bragg's position on Missionary Ridge. Incredibly, the attack swept all the way to the top of the ridge and drove Bragg's entire army off this extremely strong position. There's absolutely nothing else like this in the history of the Civil War. It went against everything that any trained soldier would say was possible. It's a frontal attack. It's a frontal attack against fortified defenders. It's a frontal attack against fortified defenders on top of a 400-foot-high ridge. And it succeeded. As the Federals reached the crest and saw the Confederates break into retreat, many of them started to chant Chickamauga, Chickamauga, and taunt the Confederates who were falling back. It's similar to what some of the Union soldiers did at the angle on Cemetery Ridge during the Battle of Gettysburg. Men who had watched their comrades slaughtered at Fredericksburg attacking up Marie's Heights when they repulsed the Pickett-Pettigrew assault and the Confederates began to retreat. They chanted Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg as the Confederates fell back. We have the same phenomenon going on here. Claiborne's division covered the Confederate retreat and Braxton Bragg dropped back about 25 miles to a position near Dalton, Georgia. Well, what do we make of this battle? How important uh, is the Battle of Chattanooga? Well, the attack up Missionary Ridge is the most successful example of a frontal assault against a strong position in the entire war, as I said earlier. There's no question about that. Uh, the overall battle of Chattanooga was not especially bloody. Uh, there were not quite 6,000 Union casualties and a shade more than 6,500 Confederate casualties. Uh, many of those Confederates were prisoners captured in the wild flight from Missionary Ridge. Now, these losses are small by Civil War standards. They're very small if compared, to, for example, to the losses at Chickamauga that had come in the previous battle in this theater. Very small. But the battle itself was important. Chattanooga is now irretrievably lost to the Confederacy. There seemed, I mean, it had been lost when Bragg abandoned it, but it seemed that the Confederates were about to retake it in the wake of Chickamauga. Now there's no chance that that is going to happen. Absolutely none. It is gone. Uh, at the same time that it is gone, uh, James Longstreet was experiencing nothing but frustration in his effort to retake Knoxville. There's no chance that Knoxville is going to come back to the Confederates either. Uh, whatever Longstreet's talents, and he had a number of talents, uh, independent command was not one of them, and he showed that uh, without any uh, area left open for debate in his mishandling of his attempt to recapture Knoxville from Ambrose E. Burnside. He mounted a very ineffective siege. He launched silly frontal attacks. He began to argue Longstreet did with key subordinates, including Lafayette McClaws, one of his old friends. In fact, he arrested key officers in his army. Longstreet just pretty much fell apart in his independent operation against Knoxville. That city's gone. Chattanooga is gone uh, forever. Uh, those rail connections between Virginia and the Western Confederacy, they're severed, and the Confederates are not going to be able to put them back into position at any time during the war. So all those big Tennessee cities, as we mentioned last time, are gone. 
uh, Memphis and Nashville and Chattanooga and Knoxville. This battle also completed that wonderful string of Union victories that had begun in the East and West at Gettysburg and Vicksburg and Port Hudson. A Tullahoma campaign also should be added to that list. Now there had been an unqualified Confederate disaster in every one of the theaters. Gettysburg in the east, Vicksburg on the river, and now Chattanooga in the Tennessee, North Georgia theater. This completely reversed the trend that had been in place the preceding May, when things seemed to be going so badly for the Federals in almost all of the theaters, when Grant seemed frustrated and stymied in his effort to capture Vicksburg, uh, when Hooker's army had been thrown back across the Rappahannock in the Battle of Chancellorsville, and when there was nothing going on in Tennessee that gave any indication that the Federals were going to win there. You had that picture in place in May of 1863, and now by the end of the year, by the end of November, there is Union success across the entire board. It, it is really an impressive change in the strategic picture. This battle also brought important changes of leadership in both armies. Braxton Bragg finally was removed from command of the Army of Tennessee. Uh, he very forthrightly conceded to Davis, and I'll quote him here, the disaster admits of no palliation and is justly disparaging to me as a commander. I fear we both erred in the conclusion for me to retain command here after the clamor raised against me. Braxton Bragg is out of Army command. Very reluctantly, Jefferson Davis picked Joseph Johnston to replace him. That must have almost killed Davis to do that uh, as deeply as he disliked Joseph Johnston. Now, Bragg doesn't disappear from the scene. Uh, Bragg isn't thrown out uh, into purgatory somewhere. He goes to Richmond, where he becomes Jefferson Davis's principal military advisor. Uh, he takes up the job that Robert E. Lee had had uh, just before the seven days. He'll be behind a desk in Richmond, but he will be right at Jefferson Davis's elbow, and he'll be on the scene right to the end of the war. Uh, he'll take the field again very briefly, right almost at the end of the war in North Carolina. But between Chattanooga and then, he will mainly be a desk general. On the Union side, Ulysses S. Grant was confirmed as the preeminent northern soldier without question. Now, he probably had already been that after he captured Vicksburg, but now there's no question, no question. Less than three months later, uh, he would be given command of all United States armies. For now, he's just commander still uh, of all United States forces between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River, but Chattanooga would propel him to an even higher level, and that is the level as general-in-chief. We'll talk about that in a future lecture. Now, other men also moved up with Grant, other soldiers who were successful at Chattanooga. George H. Thomas, commander of the Army of the Cumberland, would now be a major figure in the Western War for the remainder of the conflict. He'd be a subordinate of Sherman's, and then he would be an independent Army commander on his own. He'll command the Army of the Cumberland for the rest of the war. William Tecumseh Sherman, also part of the victorious team at Chattanooga, he will end up as the principal Union commander in this theater, in this very important Tennessee, North Georgia theater. And Philip Henry Sheridan, 
also one of Grant's inner circle, he will move up with Grant as well, and he'll move on east when Grant goes. These four men, Grant and Sherman and Sheridan and Thomas, will be, as I've mentioned once before, the great quartet of Union war heroes at the end of the war. They will overshadow all others. Grant clearly the most important, Sherman clearly second, but Sheridan coming third and Thomas coming fourth. And the three besides Grant were all subordinates of Grant's at Chattanooga, all marked for enlarged duties just as Grant was. These four men among them would do more than any other military figures to win the war for the United States over the remainder of the conflict. So we'll leave Chattanooga now, and in fact, we'll leave the military arena now. We've had a long run of lectures on military events in 1863. A lot was happening in 1863. Uh, all those military events culminating in this stirring Union success at Chattanooga. Next time, we'll shift away from the battlefield, and we will devote a lecture to the diplomatic front. We'll see how Union and Confederate diplomatic relations played out with Great Britain and France and other great powers. Lecture 26, The Diplomatic Front. We turn away from the battlefield with this lecture, uh, moving to look at the world of Civil War diplomacy. As I've said before, both sides knew that foreign policy might prove crucial in deciding the outcome of the war. From the very beginning, uh, there had been a great sensitivity, both in Washington and in Richmond, uh, to the fact that Great Britain or France, uh, among the European powers, might be able to uh, perform as a crucial actor in our American drama. And they had, of course, in mind the example of the American Revolution. Everyone remembered that. We've mentioned it several times in class, but the French stepping in after Saratoga, uh, sending not only money, but also troops and a fleet, had been absolutely essential to the success of the colonies against the British Empire. The Confederacy bent every diplomatic effort to secure recognition from Britain and France, as well as other powers, but the key powers were Britain and France, and they hoped also uh, to get uh, in their wildest dreams, I suppose you could say, uh, military and financial aid as well, not just uh, formal recognition, but formal recognition was the first thing they wanted, while the North sought to prevent recognition. What we'll do in this lecture is look first at the Confederacy's King Cotton diplomacy, as it was called, then we'll look at the Northern blockade as a source of tension, between the United States and Great Britain. The Trent Affair of 1861, which threatened to disrupt relations between the United States and Great Britain. The diplomatic crisis for the North in the summer and autumn of 1862, uh, which was brought on by Robert E. Lee's victories at the Seven Days and Second Manassas. We'll then move to the crisis between the United States and Britain over the Laird Rams in the summer of 1863. And we will finish with a look at French intervention in Mexico under Napoleon III that threatened to disrupt relations with the United States as well. So those will be our topics. And here we go. Uh, as we judge strengths and weaknesses 
uh, earlier in the course and tallied the North had these advantages and the Confederacy had these advantages. We left as a wild card uh, the potential for European intervention in the war, uh, intervention of some kind, recognition or perhaps uh, even more than that. And as I said just a minute ago, most of the diplomatic efforts of the Confederacy were directed toward achieving uh, that recognition, the North trying to counter them. In the end, the North prevailed in the diplomatic arena, and it did so for several reasons. It had very skillful diplomats, and I would single out Charles Francis Adams, uh, who was the United States minister to the court of St. James. Uh, The anti-slavery sentiments of most Europeans also would be very important in the course of the diplomatic struggles. Fears on the part of Britain and France of the economic and military consequences of a conflict with the United States also loomed large. They did not want to alienate the United States, uh, which was a world power. But I think the most important factor in the end was that the Confederacy did not win enough consecutive victories on the battlefield to persuade uh, observers in London and Paris that the South was going to be able to sustain its independence. They didn't want to back a loser, uh, in other words, uh, they came close, as we'll see, I think, one time to believing the Confederacy actually was going to win its war on the battlefield, but in the end, they backed away. Let's begin by looking at King Cotton diplomacy. The South went into the war believing that its cotton was absolutely necessary to the British economy. Uh, the Confederacy knew, Confederate leaders knew, that 80% of England's cotton came from the South. Uh, they knew that England manufactured about $600 million worth of goods from that southern cotton each year, an enormous amount of money. If we made the conversion to modern dollars, it would be a staggering uh, sum of money. That wasn't uh, uh, a question that that the Confederates had only uh, an indifferent grasp of. They knew the degree to which Great Britain was dependent on their cotton, and they believed that if that supply were denied to Great Britain, that the British economy, this big portion of which was tied up with the textile industry, would be disrupted. Workers would be thrown out of their jobs, a starvation might even set in, and there would be such pressure, such a groundswell of pressure on the British government to get that cotton flowing freely to England again, that the British would take whatever steps necessary to make certain that they would have access to Confederate cotton, including breaking the Union blockade of the Confederate coastline. And thus, in the Confederate scenario, if everything went perfectly, Britain would step in, break the blockade, so alienate the North that the North would feel compelled to go to war with Britain, and so you would have the best of all worlds. Cotton flowing to England, money coming back to the Confederacy from the sale of that cotton, and the United States and Great Britain at war because the Royal Navy had broken the blockade. The Confederacy didn't wait for the Union blockade to cut cotton off from Great Britain. It pursued an embargo of cotton shipments to Britain in the hope of drastically reducing uh, British stockpiles more quickly. Now, this was not an official Confederate embargo. The Confederate Congress, uh, the Jefferson Davis administration, didn't say, we will not ship any cotton uh, to England. However, it was understood that that would be a good policy, and it was carried out by local 
committees of public safety in seaports across the Confederacy, which did not allow cotton to ship out. Much of the 1861 crop, in fact, was burned uh, in an effort to produce a faster shortage in Great Britain. But the Confederates didn't count on a couple of factors. One was that the 1860 crop, which had been a very large one, had already been shipped. And in eight, <clears throat> and Britain had stockpiles on hand from the late antebellum years. So there's a little bit of a cushion for the British here. But having said that, uh, the <clears throat> shortage of cotton did come. And in 1862, because the Confederacy was not shipping cotton, Britain imported only about 1% as much southern cotton as it had imported in the last antebellum shipment. So it, it is effective in that sense. The Confederates do stop the flow of cotton, but it didn't really work for a number of reasons. One thing I've already mentioned, bumper crops, crops from the late 1850s uh, had left Great Britain with a surplus at the outset of the Civil War. It wasn't until the second half of 1862 that a pinch began to be felt in Britain and in France. Once the pits did begin, though, there was real hardship in the British textile industry. This came in the late summer and fall of 1862. Thousands of British workers were thrown out of their jobs as the shortage of cotton took hold. There, was, there has been, over the years, a debate about whether uh, there was a clear division in Britain in sentiment about the American War. An old view was that the aristocrats and those with more... Uh, property and so forth, tended to favor the Confederacy, and the, the workers uh, who were more likely to be abolitionists, according to the old formulation, tended to favor the Union. Even workers thrown out of their jobs uh, because of this shortage of cotton, uh, some historians have argued, tended to favor the North. Uh, it's really much more complicated than that. There were people of all classes who supported both the North and the South, but many of these workers who were thrown out of their jobs in the summer and fall of 62 desperately wanted cotton to begin flowing back to England so they would have uh, their old means of livelihood back. That was the high point of effectiveness for the King Cotton Diplomacy, summer and fall of 1862. It's also just about the time that Lee is having his string of victories, as we'll see in a minute. These things are happening at the same time, the seven days Manassas. But the strategy was doomed in the long term. First of all, Britain developed alternate sources of cotton. Uh, by 1864, British imports had reached 75% of their antebellum average, most of the new cotton coming from India and Egypt. Now, initially, the Indian and Egyptian cotton was poorer quality than the southern cotton, but it was good enough to feed the looms in Great Britain. Uh, there was also a, an increasing volume of American cotton coming into Britain from ports controlled by the United States military as the war went on. Some cotton would come out of ports that the U.S. controlled. Another factor was that although textiles were hurting in Britain, the American War gave a boost to other segments of the economy that created new jobs. Uh, most prominent here were shipbuilding, iron, and munitions. So that helped make up some of that problem. Also, wool and linen production increased in Great Britain, also helping to take up the slack in cotton production. Increased production in these other areas provided jobs for many of those put out of work due to the cotton shortage, and in the end, King Cotton diplomacy proved to be an abject failure for the Confederacy. It was a gamble. Uh, they thought they knew what the economic situation was, and they simply 
miscalculated. Let's move on to the blockade, a part of the war that caused a good deal of tension between the United States, the North, and the Europeans. It was especially important during the first year of the war, not because it stopped all foreign shipping coming into the Confederacy or Confederate shipping going out, which it certainly did not, but because it posed legal and political questions that were difficult for the North. European nations issued proclamations of neutrality in the late spring and summer of 1861. Great Britain's came on May the 12th. They thus recognized the belligerent status of the Confederacy in the language of, the, of international law. Uh, if both sides were not belligerents, there'd be no need to issue a proclamation of neutrality. But here the British and the French are saying we recognize the belligerent status of the Confederacy. Now that meant a number of things under international law. It meant the South could contract for loans and purchase supplies in neutral countries and could exercise belligerent rights on the high seas. In other words, could commission privateers to prey on United States shipping. It brought rejoicing in the South, this uh, recognition of belligerent rights, and concern in the North, because both sides thought that recognition of belligerency was perhaps a prelude to formal diplomatic recognition. Now, the question of whether to recognize belligerent status, I think, seemed largely uncomplicated uh, to the European powers. Uh, the Lincoln government might be trying to finesse uh, the question of whether the Confederate states were a nation or were really just states temporarily under the control of, uh, of evil people, but really still in the United States. When, when London and Paris looked at what was going on in America, they saw a Confederate nation with a written constitution, with a formal government, with an army in the field, uh, with a foreign policy, and they said, that's, that's a belligerent. And the United States, after all, is blockading the Confederacy. Uh, that also suggests that they're both belligerent. So it seemed an easy call to the Europeans. It upset many in the North. Secretary of State William Henry Seward was livid uh, when he heard about this. Uh, he went to uh, Charles Sumner, at one point, and said, God damn them. God damn them. I'll give them hell, talking about uh, the British especially. He said, maybe we ought to start a war uh, with Britain. Maybe it's time to go back to the bad old days when we don't get along with Britain anymore. That was Seward's sort of uh, gut reaction uh, to what was going on during this phase. But as soon, as soon became clear, the Europeans did not see belligerency as prelude to formal recognition. Their proclamations of neutrality, in fact, favored the North over the long haul because they constituted official acceptance of the blockade. Now, international law said a blockade must be effective to be legally binding on neutral nations. The Union blockade wasn't effective, as we've already seen, couldn't be early on. But England did not challenge this. The reason was that as a maritime power, Britain often blockaded its enemies. And Britain always had argued that a blockade was legal if the patrolling ships, which were usually British, of course, made an attempt to prevent neutral ships from moving in and out of the ports of the nation that Britain was uh, opposed to. To insist that the Union blockade, in fact, cover every southern port, might come back to haunt the British down the road. And so the British said, yes, we will accept this as a blockade. The North is trying to blockade the Confederacy, even if they're not sealing 
every port. Now, the United States, as a neutral in earlier wars, had taken the opposite position. You can't blockade us, they would say to Great Britain, uh, unless you really blockade us, unless you can seal off every port, it's not really a blockade. Thus, the U.S. uh, had reversed its argument here. The Confederacy was now arguing the old United States position. This isn't a real blockade unless you really seal us off. Uh, But Britain did accept it. Britain also accepted the North's application of what was called the Doctrine of Continuous Voyage, which meant that the United States could intercept ships traveling between neutral harbors if there was evidence that the cargoes were destined eventually to go to the Confederacy. Uh, For example, if a cargo was going from London to Bermuda, two neutral ports, but in fact was going to end up in Charleston, uh, that would be considered a continuous voyage from London to Charleston, even though there was an intermediate uh, neutral stop. And therefore, uh, that would be subject to being seized by the United States Navy, that cargo uh, in this continuous voyage. Again, the British themselves used this notion when they were blockading other countries and they didn't, again, want to set a precedent that might come back uh, to work against them. Now, British merchants uh, who wished to trade with the South raised great opposition when the British government did nothing in response to northern seizures of British cargoes under this doctrine, Uh, but their opposition had little effect on British policy. So these were two decisions on the part of Britain that favored the North in the blockade. Let's look at the biggest individual incident uh, at sea that arose between the United States and Great Britain. The closest Britain came to war with the North over maritime rights occurred with the Trent Affair of November 1861. Confederate commissioners, a pair of them, James Mason of Virginia and John Slidell of Louisiana, were bound for Britain and France, respectively, aboard the British ship Trent. When the USS warship San Jacinto, under the command of Captain Charles Wilkes, forced the Trent to stop. This was on November 8, 1861. They were about 250 miles east of Havana. Wilkes took Mason and Slidell off the Trent. Now, he'd he'd had legal advice before he did this not to do it. Don't take these people off a British vessel. But Wilkes went ahead and did it. And they end, he ended up carrying them to a northern prison in Boston. Well, the North at first hailed Wilkes as a great hero. There hadn't been a lot of good news for the North from the battlefield to this point in the war. Manassas was still a sort of uh, festering sore uh, for many in the North. And here is someone who's done something uh, to the rebels, taken their uh, two diplomats off uh, this vessel. He's a good guy. House of Representatives voted Wilkes a medal. Uh, early on. But England accused Wilkes of perpetrating an act of violence against passengers on a neutral vessel and reacted quickly and ominously. British naval squadron in North America was reinforced. 8,000 troops were sent to Canada uh, pending the outbreak of possible fighting with the United States, and Britain demanded an official apology and release of Mason and Slidell. Britain worried about how vulnerable Canada was to the United States. And, of course, it was completely vulnerable if the United States had decided, uh, with its enormous armies in place during the Civil War, uh, to march against Canada. Britain would have been helpless to stop it, really. War seemed possible for a tense period, but both sides soon realized it would be against their best interests. Wilkes had acted on his own, and Secretary of State Seward admitted that the captain's behavior had been improper, admitted that uh, to the British. Lincoln ordered the release of Mason and Slidell, 
They were released on January 1st, 1862, and soon they were on their way to London and Paris. The crisis had passed, uh, but it was not the last crisis, nor the closest the Confederacy came to achieving a major diplomatic success. Let's turn to that right now, and that is the northern diplomatic crisis in the summer and fall of 1862. The Confederacy, I believe, almost did win European recognition in that season of the war. They did so because of the prowess of Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia, the success that Lee had at the Seven Days and then following up on that at Second Manassas and then carrying the war north of the Potomac onto United States territory. People uh, looked at that rather than, we've been over this several times, they looked at what was going on Virginia in Virginia more than what was going on, all the wonderful Union things that were going on out in the Western Theater, and they decided that the Confederacy was probably winning the war. Many leaders in Britain and in France had decided that, and they decided further that perhaps the time had come to step into the United States war and try to mediate an end to it. They had almost decided that the Confederacy's going to win, and therefore, it's to our national advantage now to step in if, in fact, they are going to win. Emperor Napoleon III of France was ready to move after the seven days. On July 18th, the British Parliament debated the question of recognition, but decided it was a little too soon. This debate convinced Lord John Russell, the Foreign Secretary of Britain, that the majority of the British people wanted recognition. And Chancellor of the Exchequer, William Gladstone, was very much in favor of stepping in in some way. He was later Prime Minister, of course. He gave a very famous speech at Newcastle uh, in October in which he said, Jefferson Davis and other leaders of the South have made an army. They are making, it appears, a navy, and they have made what is more than either. They have made a nation. Well, at the time that Gladstone gave that speech in October, the prime moment for the Confederacy actually had passed. That moment was earlier in September. On September 17th, the day that Lee's and McClellan's soldiers fought each other at Antietam, Lord Russell told Prime Minister Palmerston that Britain and France should try to mediate an end to the conflict. If the North refused, he said, Britain ought to recognize the South unilaterally. Palmerston said, let's wait and see what happens in this next round of campaigning, Lee's next round of campaigning. If Lee were successful, the implication being that recognition would come. The northern victory at Antietam dampened European enthusiasm for recognition. Britain and France continued to consider action through the end of the year, but the South's last great chance for recognition, I believe, slipped away on the bank's of Antietam Creek. Uh, that was especially the case because Lincoln chose Antietam as the pretext to issue his preliminary proclamation of emancipation. And it became obvious very quickly that anti-slavery elements in Britain could never side with the slaveholding Confederacy. Now, the United States is still a slaveholding society, too, at this time. As we know, there are still four slave states in the Union, uh, Missouri and Kentucky and Maryland and Delaware. But there seems to be a striking difference between the United States, which has these four states that still hold slaves, and the Confederacy, which is an overtly slaveholding republic. And Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation seems to put the North at odds 
with this slaveholding confederacy. Charles Francis Adams, uh, the accomplished, the brilliant United States minister to Great Britain, as his father had been, as his grandfather had been uh, before him, uh, he wrote at the time, the Emancipation Proclamation has done more for us here than all our former victories and all our diplomacy. It is creating an almost convulsive reaction in our favor. I believe the autumn of 1862 was a moment of real crisis for the North, uh, but Union arms at Antietam saved the day. Let's move on to one last uh, crisis. I think the Confederacy's last slim hope for British and French recognition came in the summer of 63 uh, after Lee's victories at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville and when Lee moved north again uh, in the campaign that ended at Gettysburg. I think until Gettysburg, there was a slim chance that Europe might do something. Uh, after that, I think there was no serious chance that Britain would do anything. But there was still going to be trouble between the United States and Great Britain, and that centered on some powerful ships called the Laird Rams. The Laird Rams. Early in the war, Britain had built and sold to the Confederacy two commerce raiders that eventually became the Confederate ships Florida and Alabama. We'll talk more about them later. They're the most famous southern raiders. Between them, they sank or captured more than 100 American merchant vessels. Now, Britain said it was legal to build and sell these raiders because they were not outfitted as warships in England. The vessels were built. They were not armed in England, however. They were sold unarmed to the Confederates, who later outfitted them. In 1863, however, the North learned that two ironclad ships were being built for the Confederacy at the Laird shipyards. Now, these were clearly warships. Uh, there was no other way uh, to interpret uh, what was happening at the Laird shipyards. These were going to be 1,400-ton vessels, about 225 feet long, powerfully armed. Uh, they even had Confederate names ready to go. They would have become the Confederate North Carolina and the Confederate Mississippi. They were designed to help lift the blockade, to be more powerful than any of the Union blockading vessels. The idea was to use these powerful Laird rams, uh, the rams constructed in the Laird shipyards, to first break the Union blockade at key Confederate cities, and then perhaps even to carry the war to northern cities and try to terrorize some coastal areas of the north. Uh, they were ironclad, clearly powerful vessels, and they posed a serious threat. Uh, the Laird shipyards had also built uh, the Alabama. Well, through the summer of 1863, Charles Francis Adams continuously sent messages to the British government saying, look, we know what's going on in the Laird shipyards, and we protest we want you to stop the construction of these vessels that are obviously meant for Confederate service. Uh, we will consider this an act uh, very much against the interests of the United States. Finally, as construction went forward and forward, uh, Adams sent on September 5th, 1863, a warning to Lord Russell, a very famous message, uh, which said that if the rams were allowed to leave British ports, and I'll quote Adams here, it would be superfluous in me to point out to your lordship that this is war. Well, that seems to be a very stirring message. And uh, at one time, it was thought that that message actually forced the British to back away uh, from uh, allowing the Laird Rams to be built. But in fact, 
this tough message turned out to be unnecessary because two days before Adams sent it, the British had decided to seize the rams. The Confederacy was very upset at the decision and, in fact, expelled British diplomats from the South and ordered James Mason to go from London to Paris. All hope of help from Britain was dead. Uh, the British government turned these two rams into HMS Scorpion and HMS Wyvern, and they had a uh, sort of mundane career, each of the vessels, down through the end of the 19th century. Let's move away from Britain now, and for our last topic in this lecture, take up uh, French relations with the United States, especially French relations uh, as complicated by French actions in Mexico. There was some chance, some slim chance, I think, that France might have recognized the Confederacy as a result of the Mexican adventure of the French government in the early 1860s. France and Britain and Spain had sent troops to Mexico in the early 60s to collect debts owed by Mexico to European creditors. Britain and Spain then withdrew, but Napoleon III kept his French forces in Mexico and eventually reinforced them to a total of 35,000 men in 1863. These French troops took Mexico City and overthrew the government of Benito Juarez in June of 1863. Napoleon III then arranged for the Austrian Archduke Ferdinand Maximilian, Maximilian excuse me, to be the Emperor of Mexico. The Confederacy went to Maximilian and said, listen, we will recognize your regime in Mexico, this French puppet regime in Mexico, if France will recognize the Confederacy. Maximilian seemed friendly to the Confederacy and probably made some effort in the Confederacy's behalf in this regard. But Napoleon III, who was personally very pro-Southern, I think, stopped short of ever agreeing to this kind of a deal. He toyed with the Confederates, really. It would seem that Napoleon III was about to extend recognition, and then he would pull back. Long before the end of the war, it was clear that France was unwilling to risk war with the United States by recognizing the Confederacy. Uh, Lincoln worried about it, however, if you'll remember in the wake of the Vicksburg campaign when the North debated how best to uh, pursue a strategy following the capture of Vicksburg, uh, Lincoln had argued for the Trans-Mississippi in part because he wanted the United States military to have a presence in Texas that would send a message to the French uh, who were then in the midst of this intrigue in Mexico. At the end of the war, the United States sent about 50,000 troops uh, to the Mexican border, uh, a very strong gesture uh, to the French. Napoleon, in the end, recalled his troops. Uh, Maximilian, uh, who I think was working with very limited candle power uh, mentally, decided that he would stay on. He thought the Mexican people loved him uh, as their leader. Well, they loved him enough to execute him in 1867, and that was the end of this whole French adventure. I believe that, that two principal factors ensured that the North would win the diplomatic struggle during the war. As I said earlier, I think the more important of the two is the failure of the Confederacy to string enough victories uh, together in Virginia. And the other key factor was the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, the North suffered temporary setbacks, I think had several close calls, 
Uh, but the Lincoln government clearly had the better of this duel uh, on the diplomatic front. We will leave uh, foreign affairs uh, with this lecture, and next time we will turn uh, to the first of a pair of lectures on the African-American experience in the North and the South during the war. Lecture 27, African-Americans in Wartime, Part 1. In a pair of earlier lectures, we looked at the process by which emancipation was added to the roster of Union war aims. In this lecture, we'll begin a two-part examination of African-Americans in the North and the Confederacy during the war. And in this lecture, we'll take up two main topics. Uh, first, we'll look at the experience of contrabands, that is, slaves who ran away from their owners to Union lines and tried to make a new life for themselves there. And secondly, we'll look at the experience of black soldiers in the United States Army, the United States Colored Troops, or USCTs, as they were called uh, during the conflict. But we'll begin with contrabands. Uh, we've seen during our discussion of the Emancipation Proclamation that that very famous pronouncement by Abraham Lincoln did not immediately convey freedom uh, to anyone. But once the armies moved, they took freedom with them uh, into the South, just as before the Emancipation Proclamation, the presence of armies, United States armies in different parts of the Confederacy, had held out the opportunity uh, to slaves who might be willing to risk a very great deal uh, to flee from their masters toward Union lines. In the course of the war, freedom came in many different ways and at different times to black people across the South. Many slaves became contrabands when their masters became refugees, that is, when the white masters fled their farms uh, as Union armies approached. Others ran away to Union lines when a federal army came near. Most slaves did not avail themselves of the chance uh, to break free of their bondage. By the end of the war, about one and a half million of the three and a half million slaves in the Confederacy uh, were in areas or had been in areas directly influenced by northern military operations. Of those one and a half million, probably about a half a million were in areas completely controlled by the Union. Uh, about one in seven, half a million of the three and a half million slaves in the Confederacy, in other words, uh, took it upon themselves during the course of the war uh, to make their way uh, to freedom. What to do with them became a major problem for the federal government, and we've talked about that before uh, as well. Their actions put great pressure on Union leadership, both military leadership on the scene and political leadership back in Washington to deal with this growing problem of larger and larger numbers of black people congregating behind Union military lines. This is uh, one of the main arguments put forward by those who believe that African Americans themselves uh, were most responsible for their emancipation. The notion of self-emancipation uh, is tied quite closely to the fact that hundreds of thousands of slaves made their way to Union lines. The United States government never developed a coherent, uniform policy uh, to deal with contrabands. Responsibility was divided among the military, the Treasury Department, 
which was in charge of confiscated property in the South, and a variety of freedmen's and missionary societies created to bring education and relief to the freed people. The practical power was in the hands of the army officers on the scene, however, and their first priority usually was military efficiency, not how can I best take care of these black refugees who've came in, but who've come in, but how can I maintain uh, peak efficiency in my unit with the presence of these people uh, who have come in. Let's talk about the contraband camps that were created uh, behind Union lines. Uh, that is where uh, the black people were put as they made their way toward what they hoped would be freedom. These camps were usually overcrowded. Uh, disease was rampant in most of them, uh, especially early on. As the war went on, the camps improved somewhat. Uh, guards were posted to keep civilian exploiters and Confederate guerrillas away from the inhabitants of the camps. Uh, black soldiers later in the war often were the ones who would guard uh, the contraband camps. Rations, clothing, and medicine were provided, and missionaries and others from the north uh, often came down to lend a hand uh, in the camps. The military was especially interested in, first, as I've said before, keeping contraband interference with military operations to a minimum. In other words, don't let the presence of these people get in the way of our campaigning against the rebels. That's our main goal here, is to defeat the rebels. The military was also interested in organizing black men to do labor to support the military operations, and black men acted as teamsters, stevedores, uh, pioneers, which in Civil War parlance is essentially construction uh, work. It would cut roads and improve roads and so forth. Uh, hospital, excuse me, hospital orderlies, nurses, cooks, laundresses, all of these uh, non-combatant tasks were carried out uh, by contrabands who were under the protection of the Union military. Eventually, uh, the Army also sought to enroll black men as soldiers uh, as the war progressed, eventually putting them into the USCT units, Regiments of United States Colored Troops. The work that the Northern military had the contrabands do was very similar to that which the Confederates had slave labor do. Uh, working in conjunction with their armies. Now, theoretically, the contrabands received money and were free, but they were often forced to do whatever the United States government wanted them to do, and they did not always receive pay. The same was true of many of the freed people who worked on captured plantations, uh, land seized from rebel uh, owners as the war went on and put to use for the benefit of the Union, or at least in theory put to use for the benefit of the Union. Many money-hungry northern speculators tried to make as, much po as make as much money as possible off these captured plantations. Some southern owners of plantations signed loyalty oaths to the Union in order to keep control of their lands. They were willing uh, to profess uh, allegiance to the Union in, either, in, the, in order to keep their lands under their control. Now, neither one of these groups, neither the speculators who came south nor the southern whites who had conversion experiences and decided that they were loyal to the Union after all, neither of those groups was especially concerned with the welfare of the black people working on the plantations. Most of these plantations were in Louisiana or Mississippi under Nathaniel P. Banks' jurisdiction. Banks was the commander in that area. And Banks issued regulations stating that labor was, as he put it, a public duty. And idleness and vagrancy, according to Banks, 
were crimes. All able-bodied freed people, not otherwise employed, had to sign on for public works uh, in the areas under Nathaniel P. Banks' jurisdiction. They had to sign up with an employer for a year at a time, obligate themselves for a one-year stint working for this employer, in return for which they were supposed to make wages, plus get food and housing. But deductions for clothing, medical care, and other things often ate up all of the wages, and the men ended up working for room and board, which struck them as not being that different from what they had done under slavery. They had worked for room and board, essentially. Abolitionists argued that this was a travesty of free labor. How can you call this free labor, they said, when these men have to work for a year at a time and when they often really don't make any money? Now, not all of the freed people fared poorly. Uh, those who were most skilled uh, naturally tended to do better than those who were less skilled. Others who were on plantations run by the government rather than speculators or white Southerners who'd taken the oath of allegiance, uh, those who were on plantations run by the government did somewhat better. Some army officers tried very hard to help the freed people. But circumstances were difficult at best, and the results were far from ideal. As the war went on, many of the healthiest men were taken into the United States military, the military-age, uh, able-bodied uh, black men were taken into the military, leaving behind in the contraband camps a disproportionate proportion of older uh, or infirm or very young boys and men uh, together with women. Uh, this made the situation even more difficult and probably necessitated some degree of paternalism on the part of the military officers who looked after the contraband camps. Overall, there was a mortality rate of nearly 25% in the contraband camps, 25%, a shockingly high figure. But to put that in perspective, the rate of death by disease among Confederate and black soldiers approached 20%, also a shockingly high figure. And those were populations of mostly young, healthy men, whereas in the contraband camps you didn't have as high a proportion of young, healthy men. A major question facing the United States government was whether to give land to the freed people. Shall we give them land? Should we give them land? This would have avoided the problems of having others have to look after their welfare to such a significant degree. Now, abolitionists and others in the North argued from the beginning, you have to do this. We must give them land. We can't just say they're free. We have to give them a means of economic support. By the end of the war, about 20% of the land under Union control in the South was being farmed independently by black people, uh, including a great deal of land that had been owned by Jefferson Davis and his brother Joseph Davis along the Mississippi River. Much of their uh, former holdings was in the hands of their former slaves and being farmed by them. Now, black people, together with their abolitionists, white abolitionists and radical Republican allies in the North, said this is a great solution to the problem. Give us land. If only you'll give us land, we will be able to sustain ourselves. We won't be so dependent on you. You won't have to worry about us to the degree that you do if we don't have land. This is a great solution to the problem or at least a good start uh, toward building a future where we will be landowning, contributing members of Southern society. 
This is what we want. Without land, they argued, we'll never truly be free. And the abolitionists and radicals agreed with them. But many in the North opposed handing over land to black people, as they put it. Speculators wanted to exploit the land themselves. Uh, They wanted a cheap source of black labor to work the land rather than a vigorous class of black landowners. Speculators didn't want a black yeomanry. Uh, They wanted laborers. In the Sea Islands off the Carolina and Georgia coast, for example, uh, where much land became available, uh, black people got about 5,000 acres. Speculators got about 20,000 acres. And unfortunately, that was usually about the proportion. Lincoln further muddied the waters. In 1862, and we've talked about this before, he said that property could be confiscated from rebel uh, owners only for the life of that owner, not indefinitely. Well, that raises the question. If that money is, if that land is seized and black people end up farming it and then the owner dies, what happens to the land then? Does it go to the owner's descendants? What What is the... Uh, eventual disposition of that land. Lincoln then went on in December of 1863 uh, and said that any Confederate who took the oath of allegiance would have all of his property except slave property restored to him. So again, Lincoln is getting right in the middle of this question of what to do with confiscated and seized lands. Uh, Lincoln's last, his December 1863 pronouncement, provoked one radical Republican to observe If the president can restore to these traitors all their rights to the land, the Confiscation Act is a farce, and the war will have been a gigantic failure. In 1864, Radical Congressman George W. Julian of Indiana offered a bill that would have made the Homestead Act applicable to abandoned and confiscated lands in the Confederacy. The Homestead Act... Uh, we'll talk about that later, but very quickly now, it was passed in 1862, and it made available to settlers, male or female, 160 acres if they would live on it and improve it for five years. At the end of that five years, the land would belong, this, this is government land, would belong to the settler. Julian is saying, let's apply a version of this to the South. He would have given each head of a freed family, each Confederate Unionist, and each Union veteran, 40 or 80 acres of confiscated land. But the closest Congress came to this, Julian's bill did not pass, the closest Congress came was in March 1865 when it created the Freedmen's Bureau. Part of this legislation said that any freed person or unionist could lease 40 acres of abandoned or confiscated land with an option to buy it after three years. Uh, Even before this, William Tecumseh Sherman had put into practice his own land redistribution program. Uh, it's ironic, Sherman was, was a deeply racist uh, man who cared nothing at all uh, for the welfare of black people, really. That simply was not anything he was concerned uh, about. But he was concerned about the fact that thousands of black refugees had attached themselves to his, to his army as he marched across Georgia and toward the Carolinas and into the Carolinas, and he wanted to be shed of all of those civilians who were trailing his army, and so he came up, well, with a plan. Uh, He met with a group of black leaders who told him that what they wanted was land, and if they had land, they would be able to uh, have a good chance of making it on their own. Sherman agreed, and on January 16, 1865, 
he set aside the coastlines and riverbanks 30 miles inland from Charleston, South Carolina, as an area where freed black people could resettle. Each family would get 40 acres of land, and they would have a possessory title, as Sherman put it, to the land until such time as Congress would regulate the final title. By the end of June 1865, the military had settled more than 40,000 freed people on that land uh, that Sherman had set aside. 40,000 had settled. That was a start, but the future actions of Congress, of course, would determine their final state. These people were on the land in the short term. Uh, The question was, would they be on it in the long term? I think that the United States government's performance in relation to freed black people was a mixed bag some successes and some failures. The government was faced with an unprecedented situation where more than three and a half million slaves were potentially to come under its control. The government found it difficult to put together a well-thought-out, consistent policy. Uh, The U.S. government had never had to handle such a gigantic refugee population. There was no bureaucracy to deal with it. There were no agencies, no departments that were charged with overseeing this massive shift uh, from an enslaved population to a free population. No society anywhere uh, had freed so many slaves at one stroke. No other society had set up anything quite like the Freedmen's Bureau to deal uh, with the newly freed people's problems. Some cruel and exploitive people did great damage to many uh, of the freed slaves. In one especially horrifying episode, officials in Kentucky seized several hundred refugees from Tennessee and Alabama who had followed a Union Army north, attached themselves to the Union Army. Those people had been free in the Confederacy while moving along with the, uh, with the Union Army under the Confiscation Act and the Emancipation Proclamation. But once in Kentucky, they were imprisoned and then sold as slaves. Uh, slavery was still legal in Kentucky. Uh, the 13th Amendment still lay a good ways off in the future. So there was exploitation. There was great cruelty. Other people simply treated black people as a resource to be used to further the war effort. But overall, I think, the United States effort was about as successful as could be expected uh, given the time and the circumstances. One of the main ways uh, that the United States government made use of black people as a war resource, of course, was as soldiers in the United States Army. Radical Republicans had called for this from an early point in the war, really from the spring of 1862. The Confiscation Act of July 62 said that the president could use contrabands for the suppression of the rebellion in any way he saw fit. The Militia Act of the same month said essentially the same thing. Those two pieces of legislation gave Lincoln the power to put black men in uniform, give them muskets, but did not require Lincoln to do so. And he was wary of doing so at that point in the war because he worried about the reaction of the border states. He preferred to use these men as laborers at that point. But by the early days of 1863, Lincoln was ready to move. As he put it, the colored population is the great available and yet unavailed of force for restoring the Union. The bare sight of 50,000 armed and drilled black soldiers Upon the banks of the Mississippi, said Lincoln, will end the rebellion at once. 
Soon the War Department had a Bureau of Colored Troops to oversee recruiting. In Louisiana, General Banks began to form what he called his Corps d'Afrique. And elsewhere, in Union-occupied territory, enlistment of black men went forward. It went forward in Nashville, and it went forward in New Orleans, and it went forward in parts of Virginia and North Carolina. General Lorenzo Thomas was sent to the Mississippi Valley to recruit black men for Union service, and by the end of the war, he had enrolled 76,000, more than 40% of those 180,000 or so who would serve in the Union Army. Now, I don't want to put too rosy a picture on this. Many of those men who were recruited uh, were, in effect, not given a choice. They were uh, really drafted into the United States Army. Many volunteered freely, uh, but at least a number did not. The black military experience was very different from that of white soldiers in important ways. First, the officers for black regiments rigidly segregated. Remember that there are black units and there are white units. And of course, it would stay that way until after World War II. Harry Truman is the one who ended that in American history. So there are black regiments. The officers for the black regiments, overwhelmingly white which made sense at first because there were very few black men with any significant military service. It really wouldn't have made sense early on to have black officers. But even as the war went on and black men showed aptitude for fighting and for command, they generally were denied commissions. There were 166 black regiments raised during the war. There were only about 100 black officers commissioned, the vast majority of them at the rank of captain or lower. Racism largely explains why black men were kept from assuming posts of leadership in their own units as the war went on. As I said, it made sense in the beginning, but as the war went on, it did not. Many white officers were initially opposed to arming black men, but a number of the officers stepping back and assessing their own potential for advancement in white units decided that one way to get more rank would be to take a commission in a black regiment, and many of them did that. But a number of the white officers never really reconciled themselves uh, to having black men in uniform. And I will quote William Tecumseh Sherman on this. Uh, He felt that way. He wrote in April of 1863 that he was opposed to raising black regiments. He said, I would prefer to have this a white man's war and provide for the Negro after the storm has passed. But we are in a revolution, and I must not pretend to judge. With my own opinions of Negroes and my experience, yea, prejudice, I cannot trust them yet. And I think probably Sherman never did really trust black soldiers. So one difference is that there are white officers commanding black troops. The black troops do not have uh, their own black officers for the most part. Black soldiers also made less money for much of the war, $10 a month, as opposed to $13 plus a $3.50 clothing allowance for white soldiers. Abolitionists were furious about that. They said, black soldiers are risking their lives. Why don't they make the same money as white soldiers who risk their lives? Uh, To which Lincoln answered that many people in the North, many white people, still didn't believe black men should be fighting at all. And he believed, Lincoln did, that if black soldiers were paid the same from the beginning, there would be a revulsion against that among a significant number of white northerners. Well, finally, in June of 1864, the pay was made equal, but for all the period down until then, from the time when black men first went into uniform in large numbers, beginning in early 1863, 
they made less money. Black soldiers were also often given more menial duties. In fact, many units functioned more as laborers than soldiers. Uh, others guarded rear areas, garrisoned forts, Fort Pillow, for example. Uh, we talked about the slaughter uh, at Fort Pillow. Uh, those were black troops who'd been assigned a sort of garrison duty. There were many reasons behind uh, black units being given less combat duty and more non-combat duty. Uh, some white officers doubted that they'd make good soldiers, doubted that they would be able to fight their former masters after so many generations of being slaves uh, under the control of those white masters. Many others believed that they were better suited to garrison posts in the Deep South where the weather was so hot and where uh, it was difficult for white soldiers, especially from the more northern areas of the United States, uh, to hold off disease and other debilitating effects of the climate. An important factor was that commanders believed that if black troops fought less often, they were less likely to be taken prisoner. And it was a tremendous problem when black soldiers were taken prisoner because the Confederate government announced it would not treat captured black soldiers as prisoners of war. It would treat them as runaway slaves and said it would not treat officers commanding black soldiers as prisoners of war, but would treat them as criminals who had incited black men to insurrection that would execute, at least potentially execute, uh, either black soldiers or white commanders. Lincoln retaliated by saying a rebel soldier would be killed for every black man or white officer killed. Uh, so this was a complicating factor, and some people genuinely tried to keep black men out of a situation where, there'd be uh, where they would be captured. And there were a number of instances where black soldiers were killed uh, rather than being taken prisoner. The most famous was Fort Pillow, but there were others. It happened in the Battle of the Crater at the end of July 1864. It happened in the Battle of Alusty, Florida uh, in February 1864. It happened at the Battle of Saltville, Virginia uh, in October 1864. Now let me just read a quick account from a Confederate soldier's diary. Uh, this is a man who talked to the Confederate commander from the Battle of Saltville and who rode over the battlefield right after uh, that small engagement. He wrote in his diary on October 2nd, In returning, I met General Robertson, the Confederate commander, who knew me by name in the dark, though I'd never seen him before today. He said he had killed nearly all of the Negroes. Those are the black soldiers. And then again, he wrote in his diary, Scouts were sent out and went all over the battlefield, and the continued ring of the rifle sung the death knell of many a poor Negro who was unfortunate enough not to be killed yesterday. Our men took no Negro prisoners. Great numbers of them were killed yesterday and today. That is at Saltville. Uh, so there was a danger, and that is one reason why some white officers said that they would rather have black men in essentially uh, support laboring roles. Now, the use of black soldiers for these kinds of things made many white soldiers favor black enlistments. They would rather have black men uh, clearing roads and helping on fortifications and doing these kinds of things than to do them themselves. But it also attached a stigma to the black units that the black soldiers deeply resented. Black men said, what we want is an opportunity to prove ourselves as soldiers, to show you that we can be just as good as soldiers as white soldiers can be. When black men did get into combat, they compiled a record very much like white soldiers. Some of the unit, units did exceptionally well. 
Uh, some performed at a competent but not outstanding level, and some units didn't do as well. And it was the same with individual soldiers. They run the gamut, of course. Uh, some of the most uh, famous duty for black soldiers came at Port Hudson, Louisiana, in May of 1863. I mentioned that earlier. I mentioned that some of the white soldiers who fought alongside them were impressed. One white officer wrote right after watching uh, the black troops at Port Hudson, he wrote, you have no idea how my prejudices with regard to Negro troops have been dispelled by the battle the other day. Uh, black soldiers also fought elsewhere in Mississippi and Louisiana. They fought along the Carolina coast at the crater and other places during the siege of Richmond and Petersburg. Perhaps the single most famous uh, engagement in which they participated was the assault against Battery Wagner down near Charleston, the 54th Massachusetts. It was the subject of the movie Glory. Uh, the regiment, the 54th, took very heavy casualties there, uh, lost their commander, the Robert Gould Shaw, the son of abolitionists uh, from New England. Uh, that was one of many, many examples of black troops getting into combat uh, and doing well, although they didn't capture Fort uh, Wagner, Battery Wagner. Uh, they were sacrificed there along with a number of white soldiers. Overall, black soldiers saw much less combat than white soldiers. Six percent of all white troops were killed in action. About one and a half percent of all black soldiers were killed in action. Uh, black soldiers were about twice as likely to die from disease as white soldiers in the United States Army. About 19 percent as against about 10 percent. After the war, many of the black troops stayed in the army, and they made up a significant part of the Union garrisons that were stationed in the South during Reconstruction. Well before the end of the war, I believe most Northerners who initially had opposed enrollment of black troops came to accept the idea. Uh, they accepted it as a necessary tool or means to help achieve what I think was most white people's principal goal, which was restoration of the Union. But the use of black soldiers in the United States Army was extremely important for African Americans uh, in two ways, I think. Number one, it allowed them an absolutely active, direct, vigorous role in achieving emancipation. There's no more direct role uh, than you can have. Picking up a musket and fighting for not only your freedom, but for the freedom of other enslaved black people. The second thing that black military service did was establish a very firm claim to citizenship in the United States after the war. How could you deny citizenship to someone who picked up a musket and risked his life uh, for the United States? Next time we will continue our look at African Americans during the war. We'll look at the experience of black people who lived in the North and then shift and look at those people who remain slaves in the Confederacy. Lecture 28, African Americans in Wartime, Part 2. In our last lecture, we looked at the experience of contrabands, slaves who made their way to Union lines in the course of the war, 
and at the black men who served in the United States colored troops. Uh, In this lecture, we'll continue our look at African Americans during the war, uh, but we will change our focus to those gains that black people made in the North in the course of the war and to the ways in which the war affected the lives of black people who remained slaves in the Confederacy. And we'll start uh, in the North. The Emancipation Proclamation is the great dividing line in the popular mind about uh, the impact of the war on African Americans, but of course we know that it did not affect black people who lived in the North, uh, nor did it change attitudes in the North really toward black people and what their position was in United States society. Never mind freeing slaves in Kentucky and Missouri and Maryland and Delaware. It really didn't mark a sea change in northern attitudes. We've seen the deep racism and profound fears on the part of many northern whites that came to the surface during the debate over emancipation, the debate over whether to arm and enroll black men in the Union Army, and during the implementation of the draft. The riots in New York City were just one evidence of the antipathy toward black people across much of the white North. But having said all of that, and with the understanding that the United States remained a very racist nation in the mid-19th century, it is also true that from 1862 on, there were persistent efforts by abolitionists and radical Republicans to end slavery in the North, that is in the border states, and to give free black people more of the rights held by white people across the North or in the United States, if you prefer to put it that way. Democratic opposition, when coupled with conservative Republicans who wanted to go very slowly on some of these issues, managed to frustrate the early efforts of the radicals and of abolitionists. But the latter two groups persisted. And the centerpiece of their efforts in many ways came to be the 13th Amendment, the key piece of legislation uh, enacted by the United States Congress uh, during the war. On April 8, 1864, the Senate passed an amendment to abolish slavery in the United States. This This will eventually, after a long and somewhat torturous road, become the 13th Amendment. But they were not able to get it through the House of Representatives. In June of 1864, it came to a vote, and it was voted down. Democrats voted against it. Even some conservative Republicans were not yet ready to move on this. Now, what would be the 13th Amendment, of course, ending slavery, would be the first of the trio of great Civil War era amendments, the 13th, the 14th, and then the 15th. The 15th gave uh, the franchise to black men. The 14th guaranteed equal protection under the laws and so forth. You're all familiar with those amendments. Uh, One of the the many ironies associated with the war is that what might have been the 13th Amendment, if you'll remember back to the discussions about how to avert war uh, in the late uh, winter of 60 and the winter and spring of 1861, was a proposal to have a constitutional amendment guaranteeing that slavery could go into the territories. That could have been the 13th Amendment instead of the 13th Amendment that we will see uh, finally passed that killed slavery. The elections of 1864, November 64, brought huge Republican majorities in both houses of Congress. And as we've seen, uh, 
would change the political complexion down the road. We've talked before about how uh, the representatives and senators elected in that November 64 uh, canvas would not take office until well into 65. So there's not going to be an immediate change on an issue such as the 13th Amendment in the House of Representatives. Voted down earlier in 64, those same people in the House will be voting until well into 1865. So there's nothing guaranteed uh, in the way of a change immediately. But Lincoln, together with supporters of the amendment, decided to push forward again before the new Congress took their seats later in 1865. Lincoln decided to throw the full weight of his administration behind an effort to lobby with Democrats and others in Congress. Lincoln said, if I have to, I'll call the new Congress into a special session in March of 1865, but I'd rather have this Congress do it on their own uh, without my having to call the new one into special session. The 13th Amendment came before the House again in January 1865. Lincoln and his allies worked hard, as did the radicals. Remember, you need two-thirds majority for a constitutional amendment. Some Democrats decided to change their votes, and they did so, I think, because they simply recognized that inevitably this amendment was going to pass at some time, and so why fight it any longer? As one Democrat put it, uh, he said he thought that the Democrats had lost ground in the 1864 elections because, quote, we would not venture to cut loose from the dead carcass of Negro slavery. Other Democrats refused, however, and down to the last minute, the issue was in doubt. The final vote came on January 31st, 1865, and it was 119 to 56 in favor of passage. The supporters, in, a, in other words, had a two-vote margin. 13th Amendment has now passed Congress. The packed galleries in the House erupted in applause. Tremendous cheering on the floor as well. People embraced, people wept. There were many black people uh, in the galleries, many of them weeping openly. The House adjourned for the rest of the day in honor of what it called this immortal and sublime event. All northern and border state legislatures except New Jersey, Kentucky, and Delaware, these are the states that George B. McClellan, the Democratic candidate, would carry in, had carried in the 1864 election. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But all the other northern states quickly ratified. When the Union-controlled legislatures of Tennessee and Louisiana joined the ratifiers, it was up to the former states of the Confederacy to provide the necessary three-quarters approval from the states, which they did as a condition of readmission to the Union under Andrew Johnson's Reconstruction policy in 1865. The amendment became part of the Constitution in December 1865. The great war aim of freedom had been carried out by the United States Congress, uh, with all of the other hands involved that we've seen along the way, whether from contrabands running away to Union lines or military officers trying to push it. Uh, all of the people had a hand in it, but Congress provided the capstone with passage of the 13th Amendment. The cancer of slavery, which had so bedeviled the nation for so many years, at last had been removed. Before the war ended, there were other signs of progress for black people in the North. Let me just run down a few of them. Uh, some came in the border states. On November 1st, 1864, a new Maryland state constitution abolished slavery. January 11th, 1865, a new Missouri state constitutional 
uh, Convention abolish slavery. Kentucky would not do it. Kentucky was the great holdout among the border states. It went kicking and screaming into the new age, and only with uh, ratification of the 13th Amendment were slaves freed in Kentucky. On March 3, 1865, Congress freed all wives and children of black men who were serving in the United States Army. I think a symbolic indication of the progress black people were making was their presence in the House galleries for that climactic vote on the 13th Amendment on January 31, 1865. Until 1864, black people had been denied the right to observe Congress in action. In 1865, Blacks were invited to White House receptions for the first time. Lincoln had talked to the group of black leaders about colonization back in 62. We talked about that, but this was a social event to which black people were invited. Other federal legislation in 1864 and 65 did such things as prohibit exclusion of witnesses from federal courts on the basis of race, prohibit segregation on streetcars in the District of Columbia, and repealed a law passed in 1810 that forbade blacks from carrying the mail in the United States. Beyond the federal level, between 1863 and 1866, a number of northern states repealed what were called black laws, that is, laws that discriminated against black people in various ways. And many northern cities outlawed segregation and public transportation. A most symbolic event took place on February 1st, 1865, when Chief Justice of the Federal Supreme Court, Salmon P. Chase, admitted John Rock of Massachusetts as a lawyer before the Supreme Court. Rock was a black man just eight years before. Along with all other black people in the United States, he had been declared ineligible for United States citizenship by Chief Justice Roger B. Taney in the Dred Scott decision. And now here he is, one of the elite lawyers who could argue cases uh, before that august court. Now, none of this is to say that black people faced a wonderful future in the United States. They still couldn't vote across much of the North. There's still racism, still discrimination, but I believe the gains were real. And they would not have taken place so rapidly had the war not come and pushed the North forward in many of these ways. Let's shift southward now, shift our uh, gaze below the Potomac River and talk about the kinds of experiences that people who remained slaves in the Confederacy had in the course of the war. I made the point earlier, and I'll reiterate here, that without the contribution of black people, the Confederate war effort would have suffered tremendously because black labor, slave labor behind the lines kept the Confederate economy running and freed up that enormously high percentage of military-age white men to go into the Confederate service. It doesn't mean that all the slaves are good pro-Confederates in there fighting to help the Confederacy. You hear that argument occasionally these days, and of course that's not true. But by the fact of their labor, they enabled the Confederacy to fight a much longer, uh, a, a much more costly war than the Confederacy could have fought Otherwise, their presence kept the agricultural system working, and thousands of black laborers were either employed or impressed by the Confederate government to dig fortifications and to serve as teamsters or cooks or nurses or orderlies to do all the kinds of things that we discussed they're doing with the Union Army 
uh, when they were pulled out of the contraband camps to help the Union effort. As the war went on, the experience of the vast majority of black people in the South became one of living under a system of slavery that was undergoing profound changes. Early in the war, white people in the South feared that approaching Union armies would stir uh, revolts among the slaves. And elaborate precautions were taken to guard against Nat Turner-like uprisings. Slave patrols were increased. Mass arrests followed rumors of plots. And near hysteria uh, broke out at different times in different places. Uh, Memories went back to John Brown's raid in 1859 and to those mysterious Texas fires in the summer of 1860. Those kinds of rumors uh, swept through parts of the White South early in the war. Uh, The situation was aggravated by the fact, of course, that most of the able-bodied white men were leaving neighborhoods, often leaving neighborhoods with very few white men present in the midst of a large population of slaves. And so the women and children and older men left behind became more and more anxious about even the slightest hint or expression of insubordination among their slaves. As time passed, and no mass slave revolts or bloodbaths took place, and there were none in the course of the war in the Confederacy, the repressive atmosphere relaxed somewhat. People were a little less on their guard, but never really willing to drop their guard. If you read diaries and letters from the time of of white people on the home front, especially slaveholders on the home front, you can tell that they are very anxious about anything that suggests that their slaves may be getting ready either to run away or perhaps to do something more violent than that. That is a great fear of people on the home front. You'll often read something that reads uh, roughly, uh, the Yankee army is coming, we're afraid of what happened uh, elsewhere when the Yankee army came. We don't know what will happen if they come here, but we're not as scared of that as we are of what might happen with our slaves if the Union army comes. What if our slaves rise against us? Black Southerners, as I said, did not resort to any large-scale violence against their Confederate masters. Now, most of the 180,000 black men who fought in the Union Army were from the South. They were not from the North. Most of them did come from the South. In that regard, you could say that many black Southern men did fight uh, against their masters, but not in an insurrectionary uh, mode. Now, the reason was not the one given by white Southerners after the war, namely that slaves were really happy, they were well cared for, it was a a paternalistic system in the best sense of that world. We took care of them. We looked after them when they were too old to work. Uh, In the North, of course, they cast workers aside when they get too old or when they're main, but we don't do that with our slaves. That's the white Southern explanation after the war. Slaves are happy and well taken care of, didn't want anything to do with the Yankees. That is really not what was going on. There were a number of reasons why black people didn't either, why all black people didn't run away uh, from their masters or engage in overt acts uh, of violence. Uh, First of all, many of them didn't live in an area penetrated by Union armies during the war. If you're not close to a Union army, there's really no place to run away to. So that would foreclose that option for many slaves uh, in the Confederacy. Many slaves didn't want to break up families. They lived together as families on plantations, and the notion of one or two of them running away and leaving the rest behind didn't make sense. They thought it made more sense to stay together as a family and see what happened. 
Many also believed that as rumors told them, and they would pick up rumors of what was happening from overhearing conversations uh, among their masters or using a network that ran uh, from plantation to plantation, they might have heard that a Union army seemed to be approaching and it would make sense to wait a while and see whether it showed up whether than, rather than taking off uh, into the unknown, so to speak. And a number of southern blacks, southern slaves, probably didn't trust white northerners much more than they trusted white southerners. So they would also take a wait-and-see attitude. There are a number of reasons uh, why they might not have engaged uh, in uh, either running away or overt rebellion. The last one, of course, would be that there were extremely harsh penalties if you were caught uh, rising up against a white master. On a practical level, the institution weakened in the Confederacy as the war went on. With so many masters away, control of the day-to-day existence was left with older men, women, or young people who simply could not exercise the same degree of control that white males could. So there was an inevitable weakening of white control. The experience of the Shepherd Pryor family and their slaves on a Georgia farm, I think, illustrates this point. Pryor was a slave owner with 13 slaves at the time he went off to war. He went to fight in the Army in Northern Virginia, fought through uh, the majority of the war. During the time he was gone, his wife gave more and more responsibility to a slave named Will, whom Pryor had appointed overseer because Will knew a great deal about the workings of the Pryor farm, when to get the crops in, how to get them in, uh, and so forth. Pryor knew that Will understood these things. Will dutifully got in the crop in 1862 and prepared in 1863. But at the same time, he harbored runaways from other farms. When Shepherd Pryor found out about this, he wrote his wife, I'm truly sorry that it happened with Will, for I think a great deal of him. It's true that he did very wrong in denying the charges after he was caught, but dear, I never could blame a Negro much for assisting one that was running away. Will's too old to be whipped and not to do anything to deserve it, don't have him whipped unless nothing else will do. I think that Will and Shepard Pryor tacitly acknowledged that the game had changed. The war had worked a significant uh, revolution in relations on this one Georgia farm, and that act would have played out again and again and again and again across the South, where there is a shift in relations between slaves on the one hand and their masters on the other, almost always with more power passing from the masters to the slaves because of the circumstances of war. On some farms and plantations, roles almost reversed with slaves taking care of elderly or youthful whites and their property. Now, that doesn't mean that these are Sambos or Uncle Toms who are doing this, who are selling out uh, to the white people. It's just an instance or an example of people responding to changing circumstances in their own way. In doing so, uh, these people, like Will, took the first step toward a kind of freedom uh, while they were still slaves. Now, other factors than masters going to the army weakened the structure of the institution of slavery. I think masters going off is a crucial one, but other factors are at play as well during the war. Black people who were taken along with masters who became refugees. That is, if a planter decided that he would take his chances 
uh, by fleeing in the uh, face of a Union invasion and tried to take his slaves with him, uh, that master almost never could exert the same degree of control that he had been able to exert before. These slaves were less likely to remain loyal, less likely to be diligent workers than those who remained in their usual surroundings. The impressment of slaves by the government to work in war-related industries also weakened uh, the bonds of slavery. Blacks left home. They went usually to cities. They left their loved ones behind, uh, and they were thrown in among a, a large group of people they hadn't known before in circumstances that were unfamiliar to them, and usually in urban settings. It was always, almost always anyway, more difficult to maintain rigorous control over slaves in an urban setting than it was in a more remote plantation setting. The congregation of black workers in cities uh, to support the war effort uh, meant that there was greater potential for a loosening of slavery bonds on those grounds. Scarcities of food and clothing and other necessities also created the impression that masters couldn't provide the things that had been taken for granted before, and that diminished the stature of slaveholders in the minds of many slaves. All of these things came together uh, to help create a situation where the institution was eroding from a white point of view. The urban setting, very important. You had a mixture there of slaves who were impressed by the government and free black people who had lived uh, in the urban settings before. Uh, that uh, was most problematical for many slaveholders. This hit in Jefferson Davis's own household. Uh, Davis, before the war, certainly would have counted himself among the more enlightened uh, slaveholders in the South. And by a mid-19th century standard, that probably would have been true. But three of the Davis family slaves ran away in one month in 1864 in January, and one of them tried to set fire uh, to the White House of the Confederacy as a sort of parting gift uh, to the Davis family. Uh, I think Davis genuinely wondered why they would have done that. I think that he really did not understand. He thought that incidents of northern provocation probably uh, led these slaves to try to run away. But the truth is, I think, that these three people had gotten a taste, a small taste perhaps, of a less uh, oppressive system, and they were ready to strike out on their own. The most dramatic example of the changing nature of the institution of slavery in the Confederacy was the debate that took place among white Southerners over whether to put black men into Confederate uniforms, to put them in the Confederate army, and perhaps promise them freedom if they would fight for the Confederacy. Now, severe manpower shortages eventually brought Jefferson Davis to the decision where he believed the Confederacy needed to embrace this idea, but the road was a very long one. As early as 1861, several groups of free black men, and I mentioned those in New Orleans before, had offered their services to the Confederacy. The War Department said, no, we don't want you. The Confederate government said, we do not want black men in our army. This war is not the kind of war uh, that needs that kind of assistance. Robert E. Lee said after the war, in a, group, in, in a series of conversations with former staff officers, that he had gone to Jefferson Davis very early in the war and argued that slavery would be on balance 
a negative factor in the Confederacy, and that the Confederacy should try to come up with some way to free slaves, even if it were a long process, that that would help the Confederacy, would help its image, and would help in other ways. Uh, Lee said that Davis wasn't interested in hearing that early on. Others were thinking along the same lines. Uh, Confederate General Richard Stoddart Ewell, who ended up as a corps commander in the Army of Northern Virginia, he wrote a letter in mid July 1862, in which he said, It's astonishing to me that our people do not pass laws to form regiments of blacks. He said, The North is using foreigners. We should use our blacks as soldiers. Now, he didn't say whether he would free them or not, or whether he thought slaves would fight for the Confederacy, but Ewell is saying that he thought this is an idea the Confederacy should consider. In 1863, a number of individuals, as well as the Alabama legislature, recommended enlistment of slave soldiers in the Confederate Army. The first comprehensive proposal came from General Patrick R. Claiborne in January 1864. We've mentioned Claiborne before as a, as a splendidly uh, gifted division commander, a native of Ireland who'd been in the British Army before the American Civil War, but he'd moved to Arkansas in the antebellum years and then gone into the Confederate Army, fought always with the Army of Tennessee. Had a reputation and the nickname as the Stonewall Jackson of the West. Well, Patrick Claiborne, in January of 1864, the night of January 2nd, in fact, proposed at a meeting of leaders from the Army of Tennessee that the South should train a large number of slaves for military service and give them freedom if they agreed to fight. Dwindling Southern white manpower, a lack of supplies, and the inability to use most effectively this huge resource of black males had brought the Confederacy to dire straits, argued Claiborne, and this might be a way out. I think Claiborne's part of his argument overlooked the fact that it's not an underutilized resource of black males in one regard, because most of those black men are working in agricultural or other pursuits that really are supporting the Confederacy, but nonetheless, this is the argument that Claiborne made. And he went on to say that as between the loss of independence and the loss of slavery, we assume that every patriot will freely give up the latter. Give up the Negro slave rather than be a slave himself. The proposal started a heated debate at the meeting and later in the Confederate government. No decision was made in the meantime, but Claiborne, uh, interestingly enough, who was, as I said earlier, the most gifted division commander in the Western theater, uh, was never promoted again. So the question has come out in the open in a very uh, important way. And that choice, Claiborne's choice, choose to get rid of our slaves or choose to be an independent country, that's how he framed it. That choice would remain before the Confederates as their cause seemed to become more and more problematical. What was more important to them? Keeping property or doing anything necessary to win the war? On November 7, 1864, Jefferson Davis proposed a limited form of emancipation. Many white Southerners were still not willing to give up this critical part of their civilization. They'd already given up so much in the way of personal rights and state rights to a central government that was drafting people and impressing slaves and taxing people directly and indirectly. They already seemingly had given up so much of what they had gone to war to protect, it just seemed beyond the pale to ask them to give up slavery. 
Hal Cobb of Georgia, one of the leading political figures of the South, put the problem succinctly. He said, the day you make soldiers of them is the beginning of the end of the revolution. If slaves will make good soldiers, our whole theory of slavery is wrong. Of course, Cobb was right. And I suspect that secretly uh, he was afraid that slaves might make good soldiers. In the end, necessity, together with the endorsement of Robert E. Lee, finally brought Davis and the government to a decision. Lee's approval was critical. Both sides had sought his public opinion for months. Lee had a private opinion, but he believed in a rigorous separation of the military sphere and the civilian sphere. Civilians ran the government, made the policy, he believed. Soldiers did their duty. They carried out the policies of the government. But he finally was persuaded uh, to give an opinion on what he considered a political question, and he came out in favor of it. Not only in favor of arming slaves, he said any slave who fights has to be freed. It doesn't make sense otherwise. It's in our self-interest to offer them that package, so to speak, rather than just trying to get slaves to fight with no guarantee of freedom. Lee's weighing in made the difference. And on March 23, 1865, just two weeks before Appomattox, the Confederate War Department issued General Order No. 14, which called for the enlistment of slaves. The Confederate Congress would not take the additional step of promising freedom to any black man who would fight. Before the fall of Richmond in early April, you had the really astonishing image of a handful of black and white soldiers drilling together in the streets of Richmond. Just an absolutely mind-boggling image uh, in this slave-based republic. But of course, it had all come too late uh, to have a real impact on the war. Now, what would have happened if the South had done this earlier and won its independence? Surely, the institution of slavery would never have been the same with numbers of free black men who had fought in the Confederate Army. Uh, That's just a tantalizing what-if. Even without that, however, slavery changed significantly uh, during the war. The institution was not the same. And the war as a whole brought the profoundest change of all, the freedom of three and a half million black Southerners. Uh, A sea change. Uh, Next time we will move away uh, from the institution of slavery, but to a related subject, and that is wartime reconstruction. Lecture 29, Wartime Reconstruction. We turn to the topic of wartime reconstruction with this lecture. Well before the end of the conflict, the North engaged in a debate over how best to try to bring the wayward southern states back into the Union in the event that they won the war, of course, that the North won the war. The debate often set Republicans against Democrats, but the more important struggle took place within the Republican Party itself. Would Republicans in Congress control the process, or would President Lincoln be the key actor? Would the radical Republican view carry the day, or would a more moderate course be taken? These are the questions that we'll address in this lecture. The end of the war, of course, did not bring an end to the bitterness 
and division that had racked the country for the four previous years, and in fact for uh, part of the period in the late antebellum era as well. In many ways, the decade uh, plus a couple of years of Reconstruction spawned even more bitter memories among white Southerners and among some people in the North than the war years had. Uh, a great deal of, of very angry uh, debate took place during Reconstruction, and the scars left by that process uh, remained for many, many decades. There was a great deal at stake. That's one reason that people became so passionate about it. Uh, what changes in Southern society would the victorious North uh, impose? Would the entire Confederate leadership be denied a role in governing the post-war South, all of the generals and colonels and all of the members of Congress and other men who'd led the Confederate uh, experiment in rebellion? Would black men be granted full political rights? Uh, would all of the freed people be given something close to social equality? And what actions would the southern states have to take before they were granted final, full restoration to the Union? In sum, what price would the South be made to pay for its decision to try to leave the United States in April of 1861? The answers to all of these questions would be influenced mightily by the answer to another one, and that is uh, what I hinted at a minute ago. That is what group in the North would exercise control over the process of coming up with the rules under which the white South would come back into the United States. Moderate Republicans, a coalition of Republicans and Democrats, or the radical Republicans. Let's begin our look at wartime reconstruction, which is all that we're going to cover in this course. We're going to look at the beginnings of the North's uh, effort to come up with a reconstruction policy, which occurred during the war. We'll look at the first rounds of debate in this lecture, and we'll begin by looking at Abraham Lincoln and the plan for reconstruction that he put together. The question about how best to ease the southern states back into the Union arose fairly early in the conflict. And by 1863, Abraham Lincoln had formulated a plan. He was ready to announce that plan by the end of the year, and we've talked about parts of this uh, before in class, but now we'll specifically talk about what he offered the country in December 1863. He based his plan on his ability to use the presidential pardon uh, to clear offenders uh, in the southern states of whatever transgressions they had perpetrated against the national polity. He issued what he called a proclamation of amnesty and reconstruction. It was really quite simple. It offered full pardons and restoration of all property except slaves to any rebel who would do just two things. That former rebel would have to swear allegiance to the United States government, take an oath of allegiance, and would have to swear further to accept all proclamations and laws of the United States government and the president that had anything to do with slavery or emancipation. The only two conditions, swear an oath of allegiance, accept everything on the books at that point regarding slavery and emancipation. Now, Lincoln exempted all civil and diplomatic officials of the Confederacy. They were not eligible for this, this easy pardon. All high military and naval officers and a few other classes of people. But the vast majority of white Southerners who had supported the Confederacy would be eligible for Lincoln's plan. When 
of the 1860 voting population of any rebel state met these conditions, Lincoln said they could establish a state government. He would say reestablish a state government, and Lincoln promised that he would recognize that state government. The state government would have to accept emancipation, but Lincoln said he would accept what he called a temporary arrangement whereby freed black people would remain essentially a landless laboring class. This plan for reconstruction was comprehensive and disarmingly simple. It demanded acceptance of the degree of emancipation in force as of December 1863. It allowed southern states to enact labor laws that would keep black people in a subservient position and thus ease the transition from a slaveholding society to one in which free labor would be the rule. As Lincoln put it, he was seeking to cushion the shock of a total revolution of labor and thus enable blacks and whites to gradually live themselves out of their old relation to one another. It also provided for a smooth political restoration to full partnership in the Union, put into effect with just 10% of the 1860 voting population and no harsh punishments for treason. It seemed a very mild set of conditions, especially when you add in the fact that confiscated property would be limited to slaves. Any other property that had been confiscated would return to the owners. Now, that's admittedly a big exception, saying that slave property would be uh, set aside in a special category, but that wouldn't affect the vast majority of ex-Confederates, of course, because most of the men who fought in the Confederate Army and otherwise supported the Confederacy did not own any slaves. The big losers in this part of Lincoln's plan would be uh, freed people who had managed to settle on confiscated lands before the end of the war and might see those lands taken away and restored to their former owners. Now, the areas where Lincoln's plan might have immediate effect were those parts of the Confederacy held by Union forces in December 1863. That is, almost all of Tennessee, the Union Army held most of Tennessee, uh, parts of East Tennessee were still indifferently controlled by the Union, significant part of Louisiana, including the most populous parts, a big chunk of Arkansas, considerable stretches of Mississippi, and key areas in Virginia, in northern Virginia and along the Virginia Peninsula. Those would be the main states where Lincoln could move rather quickly to try to implement his plan. He was an old Whig, remember? That had been his party before he joined the Republican Party. He'd had many Southern friends before the war in the Whig Party, and he was still at this stage of the war hoping that that old element of the antebellum political scene, the old Whig element, would rally to this offer of an easy way to get back into the Union. His 10% plan, he thought, would appeal to these men, and he hoped that the plan would spawn new civil governments in these states and would also tend to undercut the Confederate government's authority and power, he hoped. He hoped that it, with an easy option uh, for having all sins forgiven, enough white Southerners would come to the Union banner that it would significantly work against the Confederacy's ability to wage the war, bring over a lot of people who either had been loyalists all along or who had been on the fence for part of the time, bring them over to the Union side and deny them to the Confederacy. So that's Lincoln's plan. It's out on the table in December 1863. And as you might imagine, it provoked quite a reaction from the radical Republicans once they found out about it. 
The radicals were not at all happy with what Abraham Lincoln was trying to do. Now, we've seen before that the radicals had a different agenda uh, than Lincoln did in several respects. They wanted a better deal for freed people, for example, more guarantees, including land of their own, so they could support themselves economically once they were freed of the shackles of slavery. Lincoln's plan, said the radicals, leaves the door wide open for continued oppression of black people in the South. This business of, of keeping them essentially a propertyless laboring class is, is terrible, they argued. The radicals also vigorously opposed the leniency of the political terms. They said 10% of the 1860 population. That's not nearly enough. What does that really give us? That's a tiny toehold, certainly not enough to warrant building new state governments on. That's just not enough people, they said. We would need to have more people than that. Moreover, argued the radicals, or at least many of them, the South was guilty of treason. Treason. What higher crime could they have committed against the United States? And you are essentially telling them that's all right. Just take the oath and we're going to forget that you committed treason against the American nation and against the American flag. They should be punished more severely. There should be large confiscations of property. There should be severe and long-term political disabilities. That's what we need to be thinking about, not this plan that the president has offered. The radicals, in short, would fight for a better deal for the freed people and a much harsher deal especially for the slave-owning class of the Confederacy, for all rebels, but especially for the slave-owning class who supported the Confederacy. Whereas Lincoln preeminently sought restoration of the Union, without slavery, of course, rather than a revolution, the radicals had no desire to avoid inflicting pain on the South and indeed sought to remake the Confederate states. Wendell Phillips, an abolitionist and radical Republican, uh, whom I've quoted before, put it this way. The whole social system of the Gulf states must be taken to pieces. This is primarily a social revolution. The war can only be ended by annihilating the oligarchy which formed and rules the South. Thaddeus Stevens agreed, declaring that Reconstruction, and I'll quote him here, must revolutionize Southern institutions, habits, and manners. The foundations of their institutions must be broken up and relayed or all our blood and treasure have been spent in vain. Many Union military men in the South agreed with Phillips's and Stevens's view, as did a fair proportion of the northern population. Probably not a majority, but certainly a fair proportion. Uh, others lined up with Lincoln and counseled against too severe an approach. Nathaniel Prentice Banks was among the latter. There he is down in Louisiana in command of one of the key areas where uh, Lincoln's plan might conceivably be put into place. He warned, quote, that the history of the world shows that revolutions which are not controlled and held within reasonable limits produce counter-revolutions. In other words, Banks feared that the harsh measures that radical Republicans favored might call forth an extreme reaction from white Southerners, a bitter response that would in effect extend uh, the period of conflict rather than bringing it to a quick end as Lincoln hoped, or at least a quicker end as Lincoln hoped. And in fact, post-war uh, reconstruction with the Ku Klux Klan, uh, the rifle clubs, and other evidences of violent groups of ex-Confederates suggest 
uh, that Banks's ideas certainly were not all wrong. Uh, there is a point at which uh, imposing a very harsh settlement uh, only stiffens resistance. Well, the different wings of the Republican Party debated and argued the questions relating to Reconstruction for the rest of the war. A critical and increasingly important aspect of the debate centered on the question of exactly who should control the process, the president through executive decisions or Congress through legislation. Presidential or congressional reconstruction, which kind are we going to have? Lincoln argued that the union was indissoluble. Now, again, we've seen Lincoln argue this both ways. He argued it depending on what his needs were. Uh, If he's imposing a blockade, then he's at least tacitly accepting the existence of a Confederate nation. But here he is arguing that the Union was indissoluble, that the southern states could not legally leave the Union and had not left the Union. Thus, Reconstruction was merely a process whereby loyal citizens in these states would reassert or regain control. Most Republicans opposed Lincoln's wish to allow rebels to come back into the Union merely by taking a loyalty oath. They wanted Reconstruction in the southern states in the hands of men who had been Unionists all along. Radicals also wanted to guarantee the freedom and civil rights of black people in the South by forcing the southern states to accept a range of conditions, a much larger uh, list of conditions than Abraham Lincoln had put forward not only larger, but also harsher. To accomplish this, Congress would have to interfere with the constitutional rights of the states. They understood that. If the states have never left the Union, that was going to be a terrible problem. You can't, if they're still in the Union, the Constitution still applies, and you can't do whatever you want. You don't have carte blanche to remake these states. Well, the radicals came up with several ways to get around that inconvenient problem of the Constitution. Thaddeus Stevens argued that the states had indeed left the Union and should be treated treated under international law, he said, as conquered provinces. Well, this was too radical even for most radical Republicans. Stevens, as as was often the case, was way out in front uh, of the rest of his party, even of many of the radicals. Uh, in his party. People could sort of glimpse him on the the horizon, uh, but didn't really want to catch up with him in terms of the positions he was taking. Charles Sumner came up with a more moderate idea, another mainstream radical Republican. He said the southern states have in effect committed state suicide and have reverted to the status of federal territories. They're still in the Union. They didn't leave the Union, but they ceased to be states. They are now federal territories which could be admitted to the Union only after meeting all the conditions laid down by Congress. Congress, of course, controls what happens in the federal territories. And so if, by Sumner's thinking, the Confederate states aren't states but they're territories, that opens the way for Congress to control the process of Reconstruction. Well, even Sumner's idea was too radical for many in the North at the midpoint of the war, although that idea would surface again later. Well, Lincoln knew the radicals were unhappy, but as was his usual pattern, he went ahead with his plan, and he named governors, military governors as he called them, in four occupied states. He named them in Tennessee. Andrew Johnson was the military governor of Tennessee. Johnson had been the only southern senator, senator from a confederate state, 
who remained in the United States Senate uh, after the formation of the Confederacy. Andrew Johnson in Tennessee and governors also in Louisiana, Arkansas, and Virginia. This is a step forward in presidential reconstruction. The radicals, meanwhile, urged that Southern black men be given the ballot and land, the two things that would make certain their freedom. That's optimistic, I think, uh, to argue that the ballot and land alone would make certain uh, the freedom and the position of black people in the South. Education, uh, equal access to the courts would be, ju- would be important as well. But nonetheless, the radicals are saying land and the ballot. They subsequently argued, did the radicals, that blacks constituted the largest and truest unionist sentiment in the South. Never mind these pre-war Whigs that Lincoln liked to talk about. You want to know who the real loyal union men in the South are? It's the freed people, said the radicals. Those are the people we should look to. They have in mind building a long-term Republican presence in the South. If they're going to be the majority party in a reunited nation, they need a southern wing. And many of the radicals saw the key to that southern wing in black voters. They said these men, these black men, had won the right to land and the vote by fighting under the United States flag on many battlefields. One abolitionist told a packed lecture hall in 1864, before we leave him, the southern black man, we ought to leave him on his own soil, in his own house, with the ballot, and the schoolhouse within reach. Unless we have done that, the North has let the cunning of politics filch the fruits of this war. The North in 1864 was not willing to go along with this view. Emancipation was enough for many white Northerners at that stage, but it foreshadowed the path ahead. The approaches of Lincoln and the radicals clashed head-on in Louisiana. That became the obvious battleground. There was an election held in 1864 for a state convention to write a new constitution. There was a division between the radicals and their allies on the one hand and moderate Republicans on the other here. The radicals in Louisiana, which included free black men, wanted a constitutional convention first. Let's get the convention and a new constitution, and then we'll have elections for state officers and for national offices under this new constitution, the right kind of constitution. The conservatives and moderates, and Nathaniel P. Banks fell in that category, said, no, let's have the election for officers first, and then we'll move on to have our constitutional convention and write a new constitution. The debate was over which way to go. The radicals thinking it was important to get a constitution that embodied their ideas in place before you move to have elections. Lincoln threw his support behind the moderates in this debate, and the moderates won out. Banks used his influence as military commander to influence and encourage a moderate victory. The real radical element in New Orleans, for example, uh, left, uh, was left completely out of the process. Lincoln wanted minimum guarantees for black people in uh, the process in Louisiana. He thought that the vote, for example, should be given to black soldiers who fought for the Union and also to some other intelligent black men, as he put it. That, at a minimum, should happen. Give the franchise to black men uh, on a restricted basis, and he asked Banks to work for that. Banks did not achieve that. A convention met in April, ignored Banks, and only gave the new legislature discretionary power to enfranchise blacks at some point 
in the future. Uh, the new constitution, which was ratified in September 1864 by 10% of the white males of the state, did abolish slavery. And it did create a public school system for both races. But that was not enough to appease the radicals. They damned the Louisiana results as the logical outcome of Abraham Lincoln's course on Reconstruction. Congressional Republicans thought 10% of the voters ridiculous, as I said earlier, especially because no radical unionists were part of the new Louisiana government. Congress had some means with which to strike back at Lincoln in this debate, and they proceeded to use them. When the new regime in Louisiana elected members of Congress, Republicans in Congress refused to seat them. So those men were not given seats, and they later refused to seat representatives elected from Arkansas and ignored electoral votes cast by Tennessee, Arkansas, and Louisiana in the presidential elections of 1864. Now, in this process of Lincoln's plan going into effect, 10% of the voters turned out in Louisiana, as I said. 25% turned out in Arkansas, a higher percentage. But Congress said, forget it. This is a sham, and we are not going to treat it seriously. These aren't real governments. These states aren't really being reconstructed. So how does Congress want to go about it? There wasn't an immediate plan, but by 1864 there was. It was called the Wade-Davis Plan. Out of all the congressional suggestions and proposals for reconstructing the South, this bill finally emerged in mid-1864 that embodied a good part of the thinking of a significant section of the Republican Party. It was sponsored by Congressman Henry Winter Davis of Maryland, and our old friend, Senator Benjamin Franklin Wade, uh, the radical from Ohio. They're the co-sponsors of this bill. Bill had several provisions that differed significantly from Lincoln's plan. First of all, the Wade-Davis bill said 50% rather than 10% of the voters would have to take the oath of allegiance. Uh, the provisional governor would enroll white male citizens. If 50% of them took the oath of loyalty, the process could then continue. To initiate the process, those who took the oath of loyalty would not be able to elect new state officers, but would first have to elect delegates to a state constitutional convention. And the Wade-Davis bill insisted not on a promise of future loyalty, but proof of past loyalty. Thus, the only men who could vote for delegates to the convention were those who took what was called an ironclad oath, swearing that they had always been loyal to the Union. They had never supported the rebellion. The Wade-Davis bill also enacted several safeguards of freed people's liberties, which were to be enforced by the federal courts. And it went along with Lincoln's uh, disenfranchising of Confederate officials uh, and various other classes of uh, former rebels, but went beyond Lincoln in saying that anybody who bore arms against the United States would suffer political disabilities. What the Wade-Davis bill did not do was call for the enfranchisement of all black males of voting age. Many radicals wanted that kind of uh, provision in the bill, but in July of 1864, that was simply too far in advance of what a majority of even the Republican Party would go along with. The radicals at this time made up just about a third of the Republican Party in Congress. Congress passed this measure on July 2nd. Wade and the other radicals hoped, what they really hoped for, was that the 50% requirement would postpone the process of Reconstruction, and they expected that it would. 
would be hard to get 50% of these 1860 white uh, men in the South to take that kind of oath. He hoped that it would postpone the process until later in the war or after the war when the radicals would be more powerful probably in the party and also when the people of the North might be more willing to support black suffrage and harsher terms levied against the South. Lincoln saw the Wade Davis bill and exercised the seldom used pocket veto, presidential power of the pocket veto, whereby a president can kill a measure passed at the end of a session merely by refusing to sign it. He explained after doing this uh, that this bill would undermine his governments that were already being nourished in Louisiana and Arkansas. He said, but listen, I'll do this. I'll, I'll make this agreement with you. Any state in the future, when it's time for them to be coaxed back into the Union, I'll give them the option. They can follow your plan or they can follow my plan. And the radicals, of course, were furious at that. Well, of course, the southern states would follow Lincoln's plan. It was much easier on them. Uh, the radicals were so incensed that they issued a manifesto on August 5th, 1864, called the Wade Davis Manifesto. It said the president's refusal to sign the bill was, quote, a studied outrage on the legislative authority of the people. Moreover, if Lincoln wanted their support, he would have to, as they put it, confine himself to executive duties, to obey and execute, not to make the laws, to suppress by arms armed rebellion and leave political reorganization to Congress. Then the radicals maneuvered to have Lincoln denied the presidential nomination of the Republican Party in 1864. They'd had it with him. They really believed he was so far out of step with, him, with them that he had to go. They thought maybe Solomon P. Chase, Secretary of the Treasury, could be their nominee. Or John Charles Fremont, who had carried the Republican banner back in 1856. Their efforts failed in the end, but at least a third of the Republican Party was not happy with Lincoln as their standard bearer in the 1864 election. Well, after the election, the issue of Reconstruction was sw uh, slightly less divisive for the Republicans. Lincoln's 10% governments were functioning in Louisiana and Arkansas, and one was about to be launched in Tennessee. Lincoln hoped now that Congress would recognize them. He promised to pursue, as he put it, more rigorous methods than heretofore against the South and appointed Chase to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Lincoln and congressional leaders worked out a compromise whereby Congress would accept Lincoln's governments where they were already functioning, and Lincoln said that he would accept something along the Wade Davis model for the rest of the Confederacy. But Congress, and this is still the old Congress, not the one elected in November of 64, they wouldn't take their seats until well into 65, but the, this Congress proved unable to agree on new legislation, black Enfranchisement and other issues proved intractable, and the compromise between Lincoln and Congress broke down, which suited the radicals. They weren't disappointed by this, for they would have much more strength in the next Congress, the one elected in November of 64. They're willing to wait and re-engage once they have stronger numbers. They also, I think, understood that Lincoln might be more attuned to their position in the future. He'd been moving steadily toward them during the war on a number of issues, from limited war uh, to a more total war type of approach, from gradual compensated emancipation to immediate emancipation, from not arming black men 
to arming black men. It seemed that Lincoln was coming toward their positions in a number of key areas, and he might do so again. On April 11, 1865, Lincoln gave a speech in which he hinted that he might indeed be rethinking his position on Reconstruction. He said he would not necessarily stick to the Louisiana-style Reconstruction plan in other states if it proved, quote, adverse to the public interest. At the end of the speech, he promised that a new announcement on Reconstruction would come soon. Uh, Three days later, John Wilkes Booth shot him in Ford's theater, and we'll never know what Lincoln really had in mind. At the time of the Confederate surrenders, black suffrage, the terms under which former Confederate states would return to the Union, and other vexing issues remained unresolved. The North had not been able to fight a mammoth war and settle on a blueprint for peace and reunion at the same time. Only 12 years of Reconstruction would bring resolution to many issues left unresolved in 1865. Next time, we'll move back to the military front, taking up our examination of the naval side of the conflict. Lecture 30, The Naval War. We will return to the military side of the conflict now with this lecture, but we'll move from land uh, to water and begin a two-part consideration of the naval side of the Civil War. In this lecture, we'll look at the naval resources that each side had going into the war and how they tried to make the most of those resources. We'll look at strategic planning in a naval sense on both sides. And then we will have a consideration of the blockade, which was one of the key features of the naval side of the conflict. But let's begin by looking at each side's resources and strategies, and we'll start with the North. The Civil War was one of the great watersheds in American naval history. It brought naval activity on a scale undreamed of at any point earlier in our history. It spurred technological change and experimentation on a wide scale in ordnance, naval architecture, and propulsion. And it taught strategic lessons uh, that were difficult to ignore. For example, the failure of commerce raiding against a powerful naval opponent. The North went into the war without a powerful Navy. We've seen before in class that the United States Navy only had a few dozen ships in commission at the outset of the conflict, and just 42 of those 90 that were uh, available to the Navy, at least in theory, were actually on station, most of them overseas. The Navy had 1,500 officers and 7,600 seamen at the outset of the war. Very few ships available for immediate service against the Confederacy, just a handful. But what the North did have was enormous capacity to build vessels and to arm them. It had the shipbuilding facilities, the industrial capacity to produce engines and ordnance, and tens of thousands of merchant seamen. Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells would prove to be one of the strongest, uh, most effective members of Abraham Lincoln's cabinet. He was a man who actually looked like Father Neptune. He was almost completely bald, but he wore a huge uh, white wig 
that reached almost to his shoulders and had a full white beard. Uh, he attacked the Union's naval problems very diligently, and soon the Navy had more and more and more vessels patrolling the oceans off the coast of the Confederacy and patrolling the rivers that coursed through the Confederacy. The North began by converting merchant vessels into naval vessels and embarked on a mammoth building program. By the end of 1864, three and a half years after the opening of hostilities, the United States Navy had 671 ships in commission, 236 of which were steam warships built during the war, and 70 of which were shallow draft ironclads. Uh, by the end of the war, uh, early in the summer of 1865, the United States Navy was the largest in the world. It had more vessels even than Britain's Royal Navy. 60,000 sailors manned those vessels, and expenditures for the Navy rose from about $12 million in 1861 to $123 million a year uh, by 1865. Northern industrial might was thus brought to bear to create this massive naval strength in a fashion that would anticipate what the United States would do in World War II, for example. Begin with very modest resources and then just outproduce your opponent. Gideon Wells in Congress also brought organizational changes to the Navy as it fought the war. With steam dominating the massive building program, Congress in July 1862 reorganized uh, the naval uh, bureaucracy. It created uh, new bureaus combined to others, and including, or included in this reorganization was a new Bureau of Steam Engineering, uh, which would, of course, focus on that key element of building this new Navy. Wells and Congress worked together to reorganize the staffing of the Navy. They retired many older officers, uh, who were either unfit for service or uh, unfit in terms of their ability or unfit because they were infirm but had remained on the list because there was no paid retirement then, provided, in fact, for mandatory retirement at age 62 or after 45 years of service uh, in the Navy, set up nine ranks for line officers capped by uh, the rank of admiral, which was a rank the United States Navy had not had uh, in the antebellum period. So there are a lot of changes going on structurally within the Navy at the same time that it is exploding in growth. What about strategy on the northern side? We've already talked about Winfield Scott's Anaconda Plan. We know how prominently the Navy figured in that plan. It would be uh, the key element of the northern military forces trying to seal up the Confederacy's ports, of course, with the blockade, but it would also... Uh, in conjunction with the Army, take a prominent role in the attempt to gain control of the Mississippi River. So both on the Mississippi and in the blockade, the Navy figured in Winfield Scott's planning. The most important role would be blockading the southern coast. It was a daunting task because the South, as I said earlier, had 3,500 miles of coastline stretching from Chesapeake Bay south to Florida, along the Gulf Coast to Louisiana and Texas and to the border with Mexico at modern-day Brownsville. Nearly 200 bays and inlets and mouths of rivers and harbors suitable for handling seaborne traffic dotted this vast southern coast. If the north could severely limit the movement of munitions and arms and clothing and medicine and other goods in and out of the Confederacy, the war might indeed be shortened. Uh, in conjunction with blockading efforts, 
the North would mount a number of joint Navy-Army operations against fortified positions on the southern coast. They would target especially key cities such as Charleston and Savannah and New Orleans and Mobile and others that would play a key role in moving goods in and out of the Confederacy. While not as vital as the efforts against the southern coast, the war on the rivers also would be an important part of northern strategy, and the Navy would be vitally involved in a number of key campaigns. We've already touched on the Navy's role in some of these. We've talked about the operations against Fort Henry and Donelson, uh, about the campaign against Vicksburg, the capture of New Orleans. We will devote more attention to those as we go along in our consideration uh, of the Navy. The Navy also supported McClellan's advance up the Virginia Peninsula, uh, as we've seen. On rivers and along the coast, in short, the Navy would play a significant part in safeguarding Union lines of communication and supply and providing supporting firepower to Union land forces as they tried to split the Confederacy along the rivers and make inroads along the coast. What about the Confederacy? We said early on when we uh, toted up the pluses and minuses on each side that the Confederacy began with no Navy. So let's reiterate that now. There is no Confederate States Navy at the opening of the war. There are just a handful of officers, naval officers, who cast their lot with the Confederacy. 237 men resigned from the U.S. Navy to join the Confederacy. All officers, virtually no enlisted men left. Again, if an enlisted man leaves, he's deserting. If an officer leaves, he's just resigning his commission. Uh, another reason to be an officer and not an enlisted man. 237 officers. There was relatively little naval tradition in the South. Few southern sailors, almost no southern merchant marine. There were no shipyards, not a single machine shop in the entire South capable of building a steam engine large enough to propel effectively some of the ships the South would manage to build during the war. They could not build the kind of engine that they needed for the ships they would be uh, using and putting into the water. The South did inherit major U.S. naval facilities. They inherited one at New Orleans, another at Pensacola, and most important at all of all, the one at Norfolk. Captured 2,000 heavy guns at Norfolk, as well as the U.S. frigate Merrimack, uh, which... Uh, the United States tried to scuttle, but the Confederates uh, managed to reclaim it and would turn it into the most famous of their ironclads, the Virginia. We'll talk about that later. So they captured these important naval facilities, but the North had regained all of them in 1862. The Confederacy didn't have any of them for very long. It's a very temporary hold that they have on these key naval facilities. In the face of these tremendous disadvantages, Confederate Secretary of the Navy Stephen R. Mallory really worked a number of minor miracles. The South built or converted 130 vessels during the course of the war, most of them small craft mounting just one or two guns. Of these, 100, <coughs> excuse me, of these 130, 37 were ironclads, either completed or under construction at the end of the war. Some of these ironclads were rams fitted with iron prows designed to punch holes in the sides of wooden vessels, especially blockading vessels uh, that the North put off the southern coastline. None of the ironclads, not one, had an engine sufficiently large to provide full power, again, because the South lacked the machine shops 
necessary to build them. The most famous Confederate ironclad, the Virginia, had to make do with the original and small steam engine of the Merrimack. The Merrimack was a wooden vessel. It didn't weigh nearly as much as the Virginia version, which was covered in iron plates. And so that engine that had been adequate to propelling the Merrimack as a wooden vessel was not nearly sufficient in trying to propel the much heavier Virginia. It was not able to maneuver the way it would need to. We'll talk more about its fate, the Virginia's fate, a little bit later. Well, because it was at a disadvantage in so many categories, the Confederacy adopted a very different naval strategy than the North did. It wasn't going to be able to count on meeting the North face-to-face. It couldn't compete effectively head-to-head with the more powerful Union Navy, so it sought to defeat the blockade through two major avenues. Number one, the Confederacy turned to technological innovation to protect their harbors and keep them open. Part of this technology was ironclad construction, a major program. Early in the war, Secretary of the Navy Mallory convinced the Confederate government to allocate $2 million to purchase ironclads abroad and additional money to build the Virginia at Norfolk. They would also construct ironclads, two others, at Memphis and New Orleans. Many others were eventually built. This was just an initial, initial request on Mallory's part. The Intent at this stage was to use the ironclads to break the Union blockade, get them into the water quickly, send them against the wooden vessels, and prevent the North from sealing off commerce. As Mallory put it, inequality in numbers may be compensated by invulnerability. Thus, not only does economy, but naval success dictate the wisdom and expediency of fighting with iron against wood. If the South could build these ironclads, thought Mallory, they would be able to free up their ports. So that's one part of the technological uh, approach. Another was what were called uh, naval torpedoes at the time. We would call them mines. These would be placed at the entrances to harbors and rivers, and in the course of the war, they sank or damaged 43 Union vessels. The Confederate Navy had a torpedo bureau and a submarine battery service. Uh, set up during the war. They built torpedo boats, what they called torpedo boats. These were small, basically 50 feet long or so, half-submerged, cigar-shaped vessels. They would move along uh, half under the water, just a little bit of their profile showing over the water. They carried contact mines at the end of a bow-mounted spar. Uh, Off they go toward the Union vessel with this mine or torpedo uh, dangling out in front. They would get close enough to the Union vessels make contact, and detonate it. Finally, the South built the world's first successful submarine, the Hunley, a thin cigar-shaped iron boiler with a crew of eight men and one officer. The Hunley was taken to Charleston by its inventor, Horace L. Hunley, in 1863. Uh, Two volunteer crews drowned in trials of the Hunley. They managed to recruit a third crew, and on the moonlit night of February, February 17, 1864, uh, this crew guided the little craft several miles out toward the blockading squadron. Its target was the USS Housatonic, a steam sloop. The Hunley managed to get up to the Housatonic with its uh, torpedo out uh, in front, detonate the torpedo, and sink the Housatonic. Tremendous explosion sent the Union vessel to the bottom of the ocean, the Hunley sank as well. No one knows exactly why it sank this time. It sank on the way back, 
Uh, that's the third crew lost for the Hunley, all dead. Uh, the Confederates had proved uh, that you could sink a ship with a submarine, uh, but they only had the one that was successful. At the rate of three crews per Union vessel sunk, it, it probably wasn't a very good uh, use of manpower. So the South used this approach of technology. The other way they tried to break the blockade was through commerce raiding. This was the traditional manner in which weaker maritime nations try to strike back at a much more powerful navy that is opposing them. To counteract the strength of a mainline navy, the U.S. had used this method against Great Britain, both during the Revolution and during the War of 1812. The U.S. used it against France in the Quasi War at the turn of the 19th century. Through this strategy, Mallory and the Confederate government hoped to hurt northern maritime commerce so badly that Secretary of the Navy Wells would have to pull Union vessels off blockading duty and use them to try to run down these Confederate commerce raiders uh, that were sailing around the ocean. Uh, we'll look at the successes and failures of this strategy in detail later, but for now, we can summarize very quickly that the North throughout the war enjoyed huge advantages in naval numbers, sought first of all to blockade the long southern coastline and seize cities and other points along the coast, and supported federal armies along the rivers of the Confederacy. The South, in contrast, attempted to overcome the disparity in numbers through the use of an aggressive and imaginative employment of technology to break the blockade and reliance on the time-honored practice of commerce raiding. Let's go to the blockade now. This is the centerpiece of what the Union Navy would do during the Civil War and a great focal point for the Confederate uh, efforts to offset what the Navy was trying to do. Let's look at the beginnings of the blockade. On uh, April 19, 1861, Abraham Lincoln proclaimed a blockade of all Confederate ports. Of course, he didn't have the means to enforce that blockade with just a handful of ships available. And during the whole course of the war, the Union blockade never became completely effective. The North never sealed off all of the Confederate coastline. didn't even come close. But with each passing month of the war, it did deny more and more goods to the embattled Confederacy. The Union blockading ships took their first blockade runner on May 11, 1861, just 11 days after Lincoln's proclamation. By the end of May 1861, every major southern port was at least under surveillance by some kind of vessel. By the end of 1864, nearly 500 Union naval vessels were on blockading stations. In the summer of 1861, Union naval strategists made a far-reaching decision. Uh, at that point, their blockading squadrons were based at Hampton Roads, Virginia, and Key West, Florida which placed them more than 600 miles from such key southern ports as Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, and New Orleans. That meant it took an inordinate amount of both time and coal to move Union vessels from their bases to their targets. There had to be a better way to do this, and the North decided to seize key inlets along the southern coast. That would not only close those inlets to southern use, but would also give them bases, coaling bases, and staging bases for their blockading squadrons. Some of those operations would be joint Army-Navy ventures. Others would be all-naval. Operations under this plan began in August and September of 1861 and continued through much of the war. One of the first successes came in August 
of 61 when seven ships and about a thousand soldiers commanded by Benjamin Butler, whom we've seen again and again in the war, captured Hatteras Inlet off the North Carolina coast, thus protecting, taking uh, the Confederates off the board at Pamlico Sound. Blockade runners had been moving in and out of that sound pretty much at will. In September of that same year, 61, uh, they captured the Northern Navy, did Ship Island off Biloxi, uh, Mississippi. That gave them a key point on the Gulf Coast. But the most important place that the Navy seized in terms of bases and prospective bases was at Port Royal, South Carolina, which was the best natural harbor along the entire southern coast, midway between Charleston and Savannah. It's the obvious place to base the South Atlantic blockading fleet. On November 7, 1861, Samuel Francis DuPont, naval officer, led a 12,000-man amb <coughs> amphibious force against Port Royal. There were 14 warships, 26 support vessels, and 25 troop ships, a major Union effort. Uh, they had to overcome a pair of Confederate forts that, per, that were protecting uh, the Confederate installation here. These Confederate forts mounted 43 cannons. There were three small Confederate vessels there to try to dispute the Union uh, approach as well. But DuPont sent his warships, which mounted about 120 guns, steaming between the forts in a long oval pattern, and they would fire first at one fort and then at the other as they made their uh, way through this pattern. Uh, they chewed up the three little Confederate ships, and then the northern troops, Army and Marines, stormed ashore and in four hours seized control of Port Royal. Eventually, the north took the string of coastal islands that extended from Savannah to Charleston. DuPont was promoted to rear admiral for this action, and the Union Navy had an invaluable coaling station, supply depot, and repair area for the rest of the war. And over the course of the rest of the war, the North would tighten and tighten and tighten the blockade. It extended its operations north and south from Port Royal, going as far south as St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, they captured that point. The harbor at Savannah, Georgia, was closed in April 1862 by a combination of naval and military strength. In North Carolina, General Ambrose E. Burnside, who, of course, would later command the Army of the Potomac at the Battle of Fredericksburg, as we've seen, he made his first reputation uh, in a joint operation, commanding 12,000 men uh, in conjunction with a naval flotilla of shallow-draft gunboats, uh, he steamed into Pamlico Sound toward Roanoke Island, where Confederate defenses controlled the channels between Pamlico and Albemarle Sounds. On February 7th and 8th, 1862, Union steamers towed long strings of surf boats full of troops into the shallows near Roanoke. 2,500 Confederate defenders put up the best defense they could as the Union troops came ashore, but once they did get ashore, the Federals overwhelmed the rebels, and over the next two weeks, Burnside's troops fanned up and down uh, this part of the North Carolina coast and soon controlled nearly 150 miles of the Carolina Sound. It's a great victory for Burnside and one that really uh, made him one of the initial Union war heroes and helped explain why he was given wide responsibilities later. The Confederates mounted their most famous effort to break the blockade at Norfolk, Virginia, 
in March 1862 when they sent the ironclad Virginia against the blockading squadron. Now, the ironclad Virginia had been built on the wreck uh, of the old USS Merrimack, as I said earlier. It went into action. It's the most famous uh, Confederate ironclad of the war with a classic design. It's a very large vessel with the sloping metal sides uh, and guns mounted all around uh, the inside, uh, both sides, front and back. It destroyed two Union vessels that day, the 24-gun sloop Cumberland and the 50-gun frigate Congress, and damaged three others. A very successful day's work uh, for the CSS Virginia. Confederates were overjoyed. They thought, this is our key to breaking the blockade. The next day, however, when the Virginia went out to complete its destruction, it had a new opponent. The first famous northern ironclad had arrived on the scene, the Monitor. A very low-slung affair, barely broke water, except for the turret, a revolving turret on top, not much of a target. Uh, the Virginia was a much larger target. The Virginia mounted a number of guns. Uh, the Monitor only mounted two, but in this turret that would turn, uh, they fought their epic uh, duel off Hampton Roads, uh, the first clash of ironclad vessels in history. They fought each other to a draw. Uh, everyone took notice of this. In the U.S. and abroad, the London Times wrote that before the duel off Hampton Roads, the Royal Navy had 149 first-class warships. After the battle, just two. Uh, the British Navy had two ironclads. But the Virginia had had its only great day. Uh, first, the success. That's the great day. Then the standoff with the Monitor. That was the end of its role in the war. As the Union Army moved closer to Richmond, the Confederates had to try to move the Virginia uh, up the James, and it drew too much water to go clear to Richmond and had to be scuttled. Uh, the end of the Virginia in the spring of 1862. The North slowly gained foothold after foothold along the southern coast, including New Orleans, as we've seen in April of 1862. And that was the jewel of the Union efforts there uh, until very late in the war at Mobile. We talked briefly about the capture of New Orleans. It's one of the greatest Union triumphs of the war, and it's a feather in the cap of David Glasgow Farragut, who is the preeminent northern naval hero of the war. David Dixon Porter would be the second most famous Union naval officer, but Farragut's the most famous. He was born in Tennessee, married to a Virginian, but he nevertheless remained with the Union after Fort Sumter. He was 60 years old in 1861. He had joined the Navy at the age of nine fought in the War of 1812, fought in the Mexican War. He was aggressive by nature, and he wanted to take the war to the rebels. Uh, at New Orleans, he used 17 wooden warships. He didn't have any ironclads, 210 guns on those vessels, and 20 mortar boats, which were boats that would carry a single uh, piece of artillery that fired a shot in a very high arc that uh, was useful against installations. The Confederates had two forts downriver, from New Orleans that defended it, Forts Jackson and St. Philip, a few light steamboats and a few thousand men. In mid-April, the mortar boats began to bombard the forts between New or or below New Orleans. They fired about 17,000 shells to no significant effect. Farragut grew weary of waiting and said, we'll just run past the forts, which he did with his fleet. Past the forts they went, 2 a.m., on April 24, 1862, single file, the Union vessels uh, went past the forts. A hundred Confederate cannons opened on them. The Federal vessels answered with broadsides. 
Eventually, the little Confederate ships at New Orleans came out to engage the Union Navy. Uh, the Union Navy uh, very easily brushed them aside. It was a big fight for a while. As one Union officer remembered, he said, it sounded like all the earthquakes in the world and all the thunder and lightning storms together in the space of two miles going off at once. Farragut lost one ship sunk and three disabled, but he took New Orleans. One city the North was not able to take was Charleston. They tried again and again. They mounted major naval efforts at Charleston, but Fort Sumter, which was reduced to a pile of shapeless rubble, really, but still with guns in it, and the ring of forts around Charleston Harbor prevented the Federals from capturing the city. It was finally taken when Union forces approached from the land side very late in the war. The Confederates had to give it up. Until then, the Navy had tried, especially in April of 1863, and then later in the summer, on into August 1863, never were able to take uh, that most famous of secessionist cities. The last ports were closed in 1864 and 1865. Farragut, again, played the key role at Mobile, the last of the Confederate ports on the Gulf. This came in August of 1864, August 5th, Farragut assembled 14 wooden ships, four ironclads to bombard two forts uh, that guarded the entrance uh, to Mobile Bay. Uh, He lined up his vessels, decided to run them past uh, these forts. There were also torpedoes, mines in the way, and one Union ironclad waiting, or one Confederate ironclad, excuse me, waiting inside. Uh, The Union vessels went forward. The first one in line was an ironclad. It hit a mine and sank. Uh, Farragut was on his wooden uh, flagship, the Hartford. He pulled his ship to the front of the line, uh, went forward. Uh, Some of his officers were a little jittery about this. They said there are reports of torpedoes ahead, he said in his imperishable naval words. Damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. Uh, He was 60-some years old. The men thought perhaps he had less to lose than some of the younger men on the crew. But nonetheless, there they went forward. They made it into the bay. They defeated the Confederate ironclad that was waiting for them, which was the Tennessee, and closed the last important Confederate uh, city or bay on the Gulf. The very last southern port was Wilmington, North Carolina, which fell to a combined Union Navy and Army operation in January of 1865. That is the last of the ports. The question that historians have debated is how effective the blockade was, and there are a couple of ways to look at it. One way is how many ships got through. Even at the end of the war, about one in two blockaders was getting through, about one in two. The South imported at least 600,000 rifles, 600,000 pairs of shoes, uh, several million pounds of lead and food, and other quantities of material. In all, about 8,500 vessels got through the blockade, 1,500 were captured. Those figures suggest the blockade was a failure. But the real question is how much would have gotten through without the blockade? And looked at that way, 20,000 ships cleared southern ports in the four years prior to the Civil War, 8,500 during the war. And the ones that did get through tended to be smaller, swifter blockade runners that couldn't carry as much in the way of goods as those pre-war vessels had. Overall, I think it's a good estimate that the blockade cut the southern maritime trade to about one-third of its normal level, and much of what did come in early in the war was not war-related material. 
Many luxury goods were imported until the Confederate uh, government passed legislation saying that you had to import war-related materials. Uh, lacking an industrial base equal to the task of producing the cannon and firearms and musician, munitions, medicine, clothing, and other things that their armies needed, the Confederacy needed these imports, and the fact that the blockade cut down on the flow of goods from abroad certainly did hurt the Confederacy. The Union Navy uh, didn't defeat the Confederacy with its blockade, but the blockade was certainly a factor in helping to wear away the ability of the Confederacy to resist. It was an effective part of the Anaconda plan uh, to squeeze the South into submission. Uh, so we'll leave the blockade for now. In our, next, in our next lecture, we'll continue with a review of the Naval War. We'll look at what was going on on the rivers of the South and with the Confederate commerce raiders. Lecture 31, The River War and Confederate Commerce Raiders. This lecture continues our look at the naval side of the war. Uh, last time we assessed the relative strengths and weaknesses of each side's navy and then looked at the Union blockade. Now we'll move inland to see how the United States Navy performed as it supported military operations along the southern rivers. And then we'll turn to the Confederacy's use of privateers and commerce raiders in an attempt to disrupt northern maritime trade and force the North to shift vessels from blockading duty uh, to an effort to capture these southern raiders. Let's begin with Union efforts to build a navy for use in the Western theater. We've seen before that the Western Confederacy was vulnerable along three waterborne routes. The Mississippi plunged all the way through the Confederacy, the Tennessee River dropped down through Tennessee, and the Cumberland also flowed out of Tennessee toward the Ohio. So there are three ways for the North to use rivers. And the United States realized early on that they would need a naval flotilla to operate on these rivers in support of their military operations. The South, as we've seen, built fortifications at many points along these rivers, at Belmont, and Memphis, Vicksburg, Port Hudson, and elsewhere on the Mississippi, and of course Fort Henry on the Tennessee River, and Fort Donelson on the Cumberland. Union leaders envisioned strikes down, especially the Mississippi early on with Winfield Scott's Anaconda campaign, but early in planning on the United States side, it was obvious that both the Tennessee and the Cumberland also would figure prominently. The question was, what kinds of vessels do we need to operate? in this theater? And the answer was that we need vessels that will mount guns heavy enough to challenge the big artillery in the Confederate forts that they'd be facing, but also vessels that were shallow enough in draft that they could navigate in 10 feet or less of water. The first three gunboats built for the West were put together under the supervision of naval officers from Washington, and they were called timberclads the Lexington, the Tyler, and the Conestoga. They were converted flat-bottom side-wheelers, and they were commissioned in June 1861. They would be useful, but the North knew that they wouldn't hold up against the most powerful Confederate batteries. You needed to have uh, more substantial vessels. You needed ironclads. 
And the key man in the ironclad building program on the Western Rivers was a civilian named James B. Eads. He was a salvage contractor, known to be a hard-driving taskmaster. He was a person whose great achievement would be a group of seven ironclads that he would build early in the war, vessels that would see extensive service along these western rivers. They were all virtually identical in size and characteristics. They were designed by a man named Samuel Pook. They were about 175 feet long. They had slanted sides that looked very much like the sides of the Confederate ironclad Virginia. They were armed with 13 guns and powered by high-compression steam engines, a pair on each vessel that could achieve five miles per hour upstream on the rivers and nine miles per hour downstream. Eads had 4,000 men working on these vessels, and they worked, in some cases, virtually around the clock. Uh, beginning construction in August of 61, Eads was able to have the first vessel, the St. Louis, completed in less than 60 days. By January 1862, all seven of the ships were afloat, and they soon became the backbone of the Western River Fleet. They were named after Western River ports, the St. Louis, the Louisville, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Cairo, Carondelet, and Mound City. Um, the men who first saw them thought they were odd in appearance because they weren't used to vessels that looked like this. One midshipman who served on them said that they were, quote, of the mud turtle school of architecture with just a dash of polywog treatment by way of relief. But this man also added that they, quote, struck terror into every guilty soul as they floated down the rebel rivers. They were nicknamed Pook's Turtles by the Union sailors who served on them. Uh, these crews were a mixture of saltwater sailors from the east, uh, some rivermen who had worked on the western rivers before the war, a few freshwater men from the Great Lakes, and just a leavening of regular Navy men uh, scattered throughout the crews. The Eads ironclads were finished just in time to take part in the operations on the Tennessee and Cumberland River we've already talked about, U.S. Grant's campaigns against Forts Henry and Donelson. Now, we've given the background of those campaigns already, and I won't go into details about the, the, uh, uh, the military side of them, the Army's part of them, but we'll focus on the Navy. The key naval officer here is Andrew Hull Foote, uh, who would be commanding this little naval flotilla. He was named a flag officer, which was the equivalent of a general, in the days before the rank of admiral came into use in the United States Navy. He was a very religious man, but a man with a hot temper and tremendous intensity and very careful about money, uh, the, the government's money. He was driven, uh, looked after details, and wanted to smite the rebels. He was given to very uh, severe headaches. Uh, he was brave almost to a fault and very demanding. He and Grant got along well right from the beginning. His little flotilla was based at Cairo, Illinois, where the Ohio River joins the Mississippi. Fort Henry was the first target uh, for this flotilla. It was about three acres in size. I've talked a little bit about it before, but a little more here. It was made of earth, had walls about eight feet high, poorly designed, prone to flooding when the river rose, as we said before. On February 2nd, 1862, foot and seven vessels accorded, uh, escorted Grant's 17,000 soldiers in the strike against Fort Henry. On the morning of February 5th, Confederates awoke in the fort to find two feet of water uh, lapping against the inside walls of the place. Some of the lower guns were actually underwater in Fort Henry. The southern commander looked downstream. He saw Foote's vessels approaching. 
and he sent most of his strength 12 miles east to Fort Donelson. Foote brought his vessels up within range and then gave the order to be sure and not throw ammunition away. Every charge you fire, he said, cost the government $8. Uh, So with those martial words ringing in their ears, uh, the Union gunners stood to their work and soon began to bombard Fort Henry. They eventually came within 300 yards of their target, very close range. The defenders uh, quickly lost their cannons. They got a few rounds in against uh, the Union naval vessels. One uh, burst the boiler on the Essex, sent scalding water uh, all through the inside of the vessel. But after two hours, the fort struck its colors, and the Navy really, without much help from Grant's soldiers, had reduced Fort Henry. A launch from the Cincinnati rode through the fort's main gate because the water was so high, a past cannon completely submerged and took the formal surrender. So Henry's gone. The Tennessee River is now open uh, deep through Tennessee and, and even beyond into the Confederacy. Grant marched his infantry overland toward Fort Donelson. Foote took his flotilla uh, back down the Tennessee to the Ohio, then up the Ohio a few miles, and then turned up the Cumberland to make its way to Fort Donelson, a much more powerful uh, installation. February 15, 1862, the Confederates turned back the initial attack by Foote's flotilla. Uh, Very powerful batteries, Confederate batteries, uh, facing the river at Fort Donelson, and the Federals found out that this was going to be a very different problem than the one they had encountered at Fort Henry. Four of the Union vessels were badly damaged, but the flotilla regrouped and approached the fort again on February 16th. It sealed off the water escape for the defenders of Fort Donelson while Grant's infantry uh, encircled the fort from the land side. And on February 16th, as we've seen before, Fort Donelson surrendered. Now the Cumberland River was open into the heart of Tennessee and to Nashville. Uh, The middle of the Western Confederate defensive line was gone. After Donelson, as we know, the Confederates abandoned Nashville, pulled back into northern Mississippi. Grant pursued uh, along the Tennessee River, uh, setting up the Battle of Shiloh on April 6th and 7th. Once again, the Union vessels played a role in that action, because when the Confederates launched their successful assaults on April 6th and pushed Grant's army back toward the Tennessee River, a pair of Union gunboats, the Lexington and the Tyler, uh, came up and helped hold the Union line, uh, hold off the Confederate attacks on the 6th so that Don Carlos Buell's army could come up and reinforce Grant that night. So good service by these two Union vessels at Shiloh. Overall, Foote and his flotilla played a major part in the operations on the rivers in Tennessee during the first four months of 1862. Let's move to the Upper Mississippi River now, the big river in the West. Uh, we saw last, <coughs> saw uh, earlier how David Farragut uh, had captured New Orleans at the end of April in 1862, the great prize on the Mississippi. He then had moved on uh, against Baton Rouge. The North also took steps on the northern reaches of the Mississippi, where the Confederates had strong fortifications in several places. After Belmont was abandoned, the Confederate position at Belmont as part of Albert Sidney Johnston's general withdrawal, that left the next major Confederate installation at a place called Island Number 10. It was a big bend in the Mississippi River near New Madrid, Missouri, 
uh, just across the river from the northwest tip of Tennessee. It was called Island Number 10 because it was the 10th island uh, south of the confluence of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. Confederates had strong uh, positions there uh, with which they could hold up Union progress downriver. So the North had to find a way to get rid of that position at Island Number 10. March 1862, a force that included 20,000 troops under Major General John Pope, who would, of course, end up in Virginia for the Second Manassas Campaign, together with a mixture of ironclads and other vessels under Andrew Foote, approached Island Number 10. They had very little success early on, however, until one of Foote's subordinates, a man named Captain Henry Walk, who was commander of the ironclad Carondelet, suggested that he would run his vessel past the batteries at Island Number 10, get below the southern position, and try to make it untenable. He lashed a barge, piled high with hay to the side of his vessel, and on a, in the midst of really a furious thunderstorm on the night of April 4th, 1862, he built up a full head of steam and raced past the Confederate positions. Took some damage, but not much. He then attacked Confederate shore batteries once he was below Island Number 10 and was shortly joined by another of the poop turtles that had run past the island. And together, those two vessels helped Pope transport some of his troops into position uh, to reduce the island. The Confederates abandoned the place on April 8, 1862, the day after Shiloh. The next target was Memphis, Tennessee, for the Union naval forces. Andrew Foote stepped aside because of health, replaced by a flag officer named Charles H. Davis. And in May of 62, uh, Davis engaged uh, a small group of Confederate rams. The Federals actually had uh, the short end of this fight, two of the ironclad Cincinnati and Mound City uh, were sunk, rammed and sunk. They were raised quickly and put back uh, into good repair, but it was a momentary success for the Confederates, but only momentary. In early June, Davis's flotilla sailed against Memphis. The Confederates sent a little fleet out to engage them, eight Confederate vessels, including those rams that had uh, fought earlier. And on June 6th, 1862, with large crowds uh, on the banks of the river watching, these two uh, fleets engaged uh, in what could only be called a free-for-all. Uh, the end result, seven of the eight Confederate vessels were sunk, burned, or captured. Memphis had fallen to the United States, another success uh, for the Navy. The biggest success on the Mississippi uh, after the capture of New Orleans, of course, came at Vicksburg, which we have talked about in, in quite a bit of detail. We've talked about how the Confederates controlled only that 250 miles of river between Port Hudson in Louisiana and Vicksburg in Mississippi, their strong points, and how Grant tried hard to get at uh, Vicksburg through the winter of 62 and into the spring of 63, and how he decided finally that the only way to get his army in position was to run the naval vessels past those long lines of batteries at Vicksburg so that Grant's soldiers could be ferried across the Mississippi south of Vicksburg. The naval officer in charge was David Dixon Porter. Uh, we've talked about him before. Uh, he wasn't thrilled about the idea, as I said. He thought it would be dangerous for his vessels, but he would carry out Grant's orders. He learned, did Porter, that there'd be a grand ball in Vicksburg on the night of April 16, 1863. He thought that might divert Confederate attention. He made that the target night. Uh, he lashed transports and gunboats to the sides of his ironclads, told the 
the ships to put all pets ashore, all dogs, so there wouldn't be barks as the vessels moved uh, toward Vicksburg. He wanted it absolutely quiet. He had cotton bales stacked on the decks to give further protection, and in pitch black that night, the ships moved toward the imposing bluffs of Vicksburg. Before they'd gone far, however, Confederate sentries picked them up. Uh, They lit the bonfires I talked about before, huge bonfires alongside the river that illuminated the approaching Union vessels. Tremendous fire from the Confederate batteries. Grant and his 12-year-old son watched from the west bank of the river. And as I said last time, the little boy remembered later that the fires lit up the river as if by sunlight as he put it. A Union officer on board the first ship described the scene. He said the sky above is black, lighted only by sparks from the burning fires. Down on the river, it's a sheet of flame. One of the steamers and a few of the barges have caught fire and are burning up. The men escaping in lifeboats and by swimming to the western shore. It's as if hell itself is loose that night on the Mississippi River. Took two and a half hours for the Union vessels to make their passage, but they were successful. They lost a transport in a few barges, and then later more vessels ran past, as we have seen. City fell on July 4th. A Union naval vessels also participated later uh, in the Red River campaign, uh, which we will talk about uh, in, a, in a lecture down the road a little ways. Overall, without the staunch naval support uh, of the United States, Uh, seaborne and waterborne forces, uh, the Western War would not have gone nearly as well as it did in 1862 and on down into 1863. Uh, Naval support was immensely valuable both along the Mississippi and along the Tennessee and the Cumberland. So great success for the Union Navy there. Uh, There would also be success elsewhere on the high seas, and we will turn to that now, to the topic of Confederate commerce raiders, and privateers. The Confederacy was unable to contend with the much stronger Union Navy head-to-head, and so it resorted to a strategy that many weaker naval powers had used in the past, and that is to try to use privateers and commerce raiding as an offensive naval arm to strike at the maritime uh, commerce of your stronger naval opponent. Don't try to engage their navy. Try to come at them indirectly. Uh, Gideon Wells and other northern naval planners understood early on that the Confederates would try to do this, that the Confederates hoped to disrupt the northern blockade by forcing blockading vessels to shift toward chasing these raiders. The Confederates even uh, hoped to spread terror along the northern coast if their raiders could be successful enough uh, to scare the port cities of the north. Uh, As it turned out, uh, none of that would happen. The United States proved able to deal Uh, in the end with the commerce raiders, although the commerce raiders would inflict significant damage on the U.S. merchant marine. Let's look first at how they procured vessels, the Confederacy. Uh, The main person in this regard was named James D. Bullock. Uh, He was sent uh, to Europe by Secretary uh, of the Navy Stephen Mallory uh, of the Confederacy. Bullock sought to obtain two kinds of ships. The first would end up as commerce raiders. They would be fast, they'd use steam and sail, uh, they would be able to, un, uh, to outrun the heavier Union naval vessels, which would outgun them, but they would be heavily armed enough to capture merchantmen and even engage in duels with some of the smaller vessels in the Union Navy. Second type of ship that Bullock tried to get was a new class of ironclad warship, a seagoing ironclad that would be able to challenge the wooden vessels 
of the blockading fleet and with luck break the blockade off uh, the coast uh, of the south. He hoped to have a small squadron of these kinds of vessels. They wouldn't be like the Virginia or the Tennessee, the ironclad that we saw during the Battle of Mobile Bay, which were vessels designed to work along the coast or on rivers, deep water rivers. These would be seagoing vessels that Bullock had in mind. In the course of the war, Bullock arranged the purchase of several excellent cruisers, mostly built in British shipyards, but not armed in the British shipyards. We talked a little bit about that when we spoke of the Laird uh, shipyards in England and the vessels they built. He also came close to procuring the first of the ironclad rams. Again, those were being built in the Laird shipyards. We saw how pressure from the United States government forced the British government to step in and take control of those Laird rams, the ironclad rams uh, that were being built. Uh, they would have been powerful twin turret ironclad ships that might have given the Union Navy some real trouble. But in the end, the Confederacy didn't get them. As we saw, they went into British service in the end. Near the end of the war, the South did take delivery from Denmark of an ironclad named the Stonewall. It had been built in France, sold to Denmark, and then sold uh, to the Confederates. It arrived in the Confederacy, or off the coast of the Confederacy, too late to take part in the war. This famous picture of this ironclad Stonewall, a photograph, uh, it was for years considered to be a great lost opportunity for the Confederate Navy. If only they'd gotten the Stonewall sooner, a number of writers said. It might have been real trouble for the North. But in fact, it turns out uh, that the Stonewall uh, was barely seaworthy. Uh, its skipper, in fact, reported that its power had been much exaggerated, its seaworthiness very uncertain. In fact, the skipper considered himself lucky to have made the voyage across the Atlantic. Uh, to the American coast. So I think the Stonewall isn't really a great might-have-been. It's a deeply flawed ironclad vessel the Confederacy would have had if it had come a bit sooner, but probably wouldn't have made much of a difference. What about Confederate privateers? Let's talk about them for just a moment here. Jefferson Davis offered commissions in April 1861 uh, to anyone who wanted to function as a privateer. And droves of people stepped forward, uh, hoping to go out and capture prizes which they could then tow uh, to ports, either southern ports or other ports, and sell them, uh, get money, make money out of this operation. Uh, Davis's action of commissioning privateers elicited a very strong response from Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln said, you can't do this. This is where Lincoln argued that the Confederacy was not a nation, one of the instances in which he argued that. He said, uh, you're not empowered to do that, uh, Mr. Davis, because you're not a nation of the world. You're just a, uh, an illegal government in charge of states that are still really in the Union. We won't treat captured privateer skippers and their crews uh, as members uh, empowered to do what they're doing by a legitimate government, we will treat them as traitors and we will hang them, said Lincoln. Several privateer crews were taken by northern ships, but northern judges and juries were reluctant to convict them because the Davis government had said, if you hang our privateers, uh, we will hang an equal number of officers that we have captured from the United States. So there's sort of a standoff. But when the crew of a privateer called the Jeff Davis went on trial, it was the most notorious of the Confederate privateers, the crew was 
found guilty and sentenced to death. Davis instantly ordered a group of Union prisoners of war to draw lots to see who would be executed in retaliation. A Paul Revere's grandson was among the ones who was unlucky enough to draw one of the short straws in that lot. Uh, when notified of this, Lincoln backed down and announced in February 1862 that the Jeff Davis crew and the others would be treated as prisoners of war. In the end, however, privateers were not a real factor in the war because they couldn't find ports at which to sell their prizes. Neutral ports under pressure from the U.S. refused to admit prizes. The blockade made it too difficult to bring prizes into Confederate ports. So the privateers were a negligible factor overall. The real emphasis shifted from privateering to commerce raiders, Confederate naval cruisers, which usually destroyed the merchant vessels they captured rather than trying to sell them. And let's now turn to the commerce raiders. Now, there weren't very many of them in the course of the war, only 20, but they cut a wide swath through northern merchant shipping. The most famous Confederate captain was Raphael Sims, who commanded first the Sumter and then the Alabama. The Alabama would make an epic voyage under Sims. It was by far the most feared of the Confederate commerce raiders. Sims was a Marylander, orphaned as a youngster, joined the Navy as a midshipman at age 16, the United States Navy, and subsequently rose in rank and served in the Mexican War. He also studied law, left the Navy uh, to live in Alabama before the war, uh, but then went back into the Navy, the U.S. Navy, briefly before the war and resigned again when Alabama left the Union in 1861 and he cast his lot with the Confederacy. He was given command of the first Confederate naval commerce raider, a steamer in New Orleans built to ply the New Orleans Havana trade. He renamed it the Sumter. Fitted it to be a commerce raider, collected a crew of 92 that included 20 Confederate Marines, uh, as well as a group of other men, and set sail into the Gulf of Mexico in June 1861. A six-month cruise resulted in the capture of 18 prizes before he was bottled up in Gibraltar. Uh, the Sumter put in at Gibraltar. Uh, the U.S. government put pressure uh, on the local uh, officials, convinced them not to sell any coal uh, to Sam's, and Sam's and his officers discharged the crew and left Gibraltar, uh, eventually went to London. In the summer of 1862, Sam's took command of one of the ships that Bullock had contracted for. It was called the Enrica when it left Liverpool and headed for the Azores. It traveled with another ship that carried ordnance, the guns and so forth, and a third vessel, that carried Sam's and the crew. So these three vessels traveling away from England, they uh, rendezvoused off the Azores, August 20, 1862, and it was in the Azores that the Enrica was converted into the Alabama, a Confederate naval raiding vessel. It was a steam sloop, 220 feet long, and it was fast. It would make 10 knots under steam, 13 with steam and sails. It could outrun the steam frigates of the United States Navy, the heavier frigates. It carried eight guns and a largely British crew. Sam's and the Alabama then set out on a journey that lasted 22 months and covered 75,000 miles. Sailed first due west to the American coast, then worked south through the Caribbean and into the Gulf of Mexico. Back out into the Atlantic, south along the coast of South America, east to Africa, then on to the East Indies, back through the Indian Ocean, and eventually ended up in Cherbourg, France, 
on June 11, 1864. Along this enormously long trail, Semmes left a record of 65 merchantmen captured, 52 of which he burned. As soon as the Alabama docked at Cherbourg, the U.S. minister in Paris telegraphed the news to the U.S. naval vessel Kearsarge, a steam sloop which was off the Dutch coast about 300 miles away. The Kearsarge immediately made for Cherbourg. Its captain was John A. Winslow, a 35-year veteran who'd been a shipmate of Semmes's during the Mexican War. When the Kearsarge appeared off Cherbourg on June 14, Semmes challenged Winslow. And on June 19, the two ships squared off in the second most famous naval confrontation of the war. The Monitor versus the Virginia being the most famous, of course, but Alabama versus Kearsarge is the second most famous. On paper, the vessels were pretty evenly matched, but in fact, the Kearsarge had superior guns, a better trained crew, and was in tip-top condition. The Alabama was in bad need of repair after so many, many months at sea. June 19th was a perfect day for a naval fight. It was bright and cool, just enough breeze to keep the battle smoke cleared. It was a Sunday. Thousands of visitors came out uh, to, the, to the bluffs overlooking the site. Uh, trains, special trains brought people out uh, from Paris to watch this. About 10 a.m., the two ships steamed out. They engaged, and it very quickly became clear that the Alabama was outclassed. The Alabama fired many, many score rounds uh, at, the, uh, at its target, nearly 400 in the end, but only 28 found their mark. Uh, Semmes's gunners were just not very good. Uh, the two vessels made six great circles firing at each other, at the end of which the Alabama sank to the bottom of the ocean. Semmes escaped and made his way to England. Two other commerce raiders uh, merit our attention. The first is the Florida, under the command of a couple of skippers, took 55 prizes before it was rammed uh, in port at Bahia, Brazil. Rammed illegally, but nonetheless rammed by a Union naval vessel. The other of the most famous southern cruisers was the Shenandoah, also built in England. Uh, it took on uh, the U.S. whaling fleet in the Bering Sea, uh, very late in the war and after the war, in fact, it continued its operations well past Appomattox. Uh, over its career, it captured 38 vessels, uh, sailed about 58,000 miles over a 13-month career, eventually surrendered in November 1865. All in all, commerce raiders destroyed 257 northern merchant ships and caused another 700 to transfer to northern flags. It was a devastating blow to the United States Merchant Marine, but it didn't really hurt northern commerce because northern shippers simply shipped in foreign bottoms and avoided the problem of having their uh, materials uh, struck by these Confederate commerce raiders. It's bad uh, for the business side of American maritime shipping, but it doesn't really uh, hurt uh, the North's ability to wage the war because other vessels simply carried the commerce uh, that the Union shipping, the United States shipping, had been carrying. Uh, some estimates say it took about 50 years for the United States Merchant Marine uh, to recover from this. Greatest lessons, naval lessons of the war were that steam had triumphed over sails, that ironclads had triumphed over wooden ships, and strategically that commerce raiders could not have a decisive effect on a major modern war when one side had a much more powerful uh, naval force. Overall, 
a very successful record for the United States Navy, an innovative attempt by the Confederates on the naval side, but in the end, a failure. We'll leave the Navy now, and next time we'll shift back to the home front uh, to begin a two-part look at women during the war. Lecture 32, Women at War, Part 1. With this lecture, we'll begin a two-part examination of women during the war, how the war affected women and how women uh, affected the war. Women made up more than 15 million of the roughly 31 million Americans in 1860, and of course they represented a great range of people. We can't just think of women as if there is one woman representative of women in the North and in the South. They live in the North, they live in the South and in the West, and of course they're old and middle-aged and young, white and black, and immigrants, many immigrant women, rich and poor, middle class, uh, educated women, illiterate women, free and slave women, slave-holding women, abolitionist women, single, married, widowed, radical, moderate, conservative women, run the gamut uh, of all the categories uh, that a population this large and diverse would be expected to have. And as with all groups that size and that diverse, it's really impossible to generalize about what the war meant to women if you try to use that in a singular sense. Uh, but we'll try in these two lectures to get at least a good general picture of American women uh, on the eve of the war and some sense of how the war affected them and of the different roles that they played in the course of the war. We'll start in this lecture by looking at the mid-19th century northern and southern ideals uh, of what middle and upper middle class women should be. We'll then go on to see how many women's lives departed from those ideals. We'll look at areas, areas of commonality between northern and southern white women. And we'll finish this lecture by looking at the changes that the war brought to northern white women on the home front. In many ways, the war reversed the traditional role of women as protector of the family and the home. Women were now called upon to sacrifice uh, their homes in the sense, to send their husbands off where they might be killed, to send their sons off and place them in significant danger. Do this in the name of the nation, of both nations. The popular press exhorted women to endure the consequent hardships and privations with patience and a great sense of sacrifice. Work roles reversed somewhat as women left at home either supervised or performed uh, many of the chores that men traditionally took care of. This was especially true on farms where women, especially small farms, uh, yeoman farms if you like, uh, where women were in effect left to do all the work they'd been doing before as well as taking on much of the work that their husbands had done. There isn't really a universal women's experience, however, as I said, and one of the main differences is that northern women tended to be less touched by the war in a direct way 
than Southern women, whether white or black in the South. And that's, I'll talk more about this later, but that's partly because this, the war took place in the South for the most part. Uh, Northern women found more outlets for work and professionalism, uh, not as extensive as the Rosie the Riveter uh, example from World War II, but enough to alter the notions of the workplace and to provide a core of women who would help change society later in the 19th century. Their experiences during the war would be important later in the century among many of these northern women. Meanwhile, southern women experienced war far more personally than did most women in the north. Both sides suffered the loss of loved ones, but southern women felt the violation of military occupation and the destruction of property much more directly than their northern counterparts. And you can use Scarlett O'Hara from Gone with the Wind as an example here. The kinds of things that Scarlett O'Hara has to deal with are not the kinds of things that most northern women had to deal with. Face armed Yankee soldiers. Uh, Try to keep a household in order amid massive economic dislocation. Try to cope with the dilemma of whether or not to become a refugee. Uh, Worry that Confederate deserters or guerrillas uh, will come by and plunder your property. Very few northern women had to experience those kinds of things during the war. A few in Missouri, some in southern Pennsylvania and Kentucky perhaps, but we need to keep in mind that there is a difference between the north and the south. We should also keep in mind that the, the image, and it's a durable image, of women steadfastly devoted to both causes, never deviating from the goals of their nation, really isn't uh, quite accurate. Most women did support their causes, did encourage uh, their cause, but many women became disenchanted with the war on both sides. Many of them didn't want their men to fight. Many of them encouraged their men to try to stay home, desert if they'd been in the army. Uh, so there's a range there as well. Let's look at the ideals for women uh, at mid-century. Both North and South had them. They're very different from our our ideals today. Never fall into the trap. We've talked about this before in the class of trying to take our understanding of events from our time and apply them to the past to understand how people acted or believed uh, then. If you want to find out how people acted and why they acted, uh, go to what they said, what they wrote. Uh, at the time might be very different. Uh, We can use uh, images about bodies as an example of this. What what was the ideal image for a woman then in terms of how she should look? Body shape. A British visitor in 1868 recorded these observations about American women. The American girls themselves, I think, are nervous about their thinness, for they are constantly having themselves weighed, and every ounce of increase is hailed with delight and talked about with the most dreadful plainness of speech. When I asked one beautiful Connecticut girl, whom I met in Pennsylvania, how she liked the change, oh, immensely, she said, I've gained 18 pounds in flesh since last April. It's wonderful. Well, that, of course, is at odds with what we see in newspapers and see on television now. Uh, We have to remember always to understand people of of a different era. Go to what they said. Go to how they acted. Don't try to impose our understanding. All right, let's look at ideals and start with the northern ideal. It went along lines of something that has come to be called the cult of domesticity uh, by historians, and this applies to upper and upper middle class women, white women in the north. The ideal As manufacturing and industry progressed in the North, work increasingly became separated from the home. There had been a good deal of production in the home earlier in United States history. Things such as cheese and dairy production would have been carried out in the home. 
uh, rather than in a more centralized fashion. That's changing. And as that changed, the idea of separate spheres for men and women came into place, places where men and women were expected to apply uh, their activities. Business and politics belong solely to men under this idea of separate spheres. Women were considered weaker physically and intellectually. To women fell the domestic sphere, the task of nurturing children and maintaining the home and providing the proper guidance and moral tone for the family. Women were considered inherently superior morally to men. If men had greater intellect, if men had greater uh, physical capability, women uh, had a much superior, much more finely developed moral sense, and therefore that skill would be put to work in the home. These ideas about separate spheres became codified, if you like, in this cult of domesticity. There were books and magazines and lecturers and clerics who would hammer on these themes that God granted women special moral gifts to preserve society. Men went out into the world in politics and business where they were subjected to all kinds of evil influences and temptations, and men were weak anyway. Uh, they were, could, be dis, could be expected to give in to these temptations, but women would furnish in the home a moral base to which men could return. Uh, so this is the uh, kind of division of spheres uh, that is popular in thinking in the North as we come toward the Civil War. In the South, the idea of the lady uh, was the ideal for upper-class women and upper-middle-class uh, white women. The image of the ladies... Now, this is not Scarlett O'Hara. Scarlett O'Hara didn't fit that image because she gets out into the rough and tumble of business uh, with her lumber companies afterwards. She goes against the ideal of the lady in many ways. Melanie Wilkes is the character from Gone with the Wind who exemplifies... Uh, these notions about what a lady should be. Manners and purity made the southern lady. She was to be educated, but only to the degree that she could converse with men, to be engaging and uplifting in this conversation. She had to know enough to manage the considerable domestic production of a household, but according to the ideal, a lady would never demean herself, as they would put it, by cooking or cleaning or any kind of hands-on labor. The comments of a man traveling through western Virginia, a region with very few slaves, uh, underscores uh, this ideal. He said, I see the want of slaves in nothing more than I do in the appearances of the white farmers, as I've observed anywhere that there is no slaves. The women appear to me to do all the drudging about the houses. He didn't approve of that. He didn't think women should be doing the drudging about the houses. He was a witness from an upper class uh, point of view. Manners and customs were important throughout the United States, but they were particularly so in the South. So we have these ideas of women at home as a moral force in the North, and that is in place to a degree in the South as well, that women will be a moral force, and the cultured lady presiding over a household in the South. Now let's look at how reality deviated uh, from these ideals start with a few general observations about women at this point in American history. They are decidedly second-class citizens in a legal sense. They couldn't vote anywhere. It wouldn't be until Wyoming gave women in the vote, uh, gave women the vote much later in the 19th century that women were able to vote in the United States. This was a problem with a lot of 
Women in the North especially, who were active in the abolitionist movement and other reform movements, as the abolitionists gained their goal of black freedom, they often moved on to arguing that black men should get the franchise. We've talked about that. And many of the women in the abolitionist movement said, well, we agree that black men should have the franchise, but what about us? We've been working in this. How come you're arguing for black men to get the franchise and you're not saying that we should get the franchise? But women cannot vote. They lost the right to own property when they married. Uh, their property passed to their husband. It was very difficult for women to initiate a lawsuit or to be sued. Uh, educational opportunities generally far more limited for women, and especially so in the South. Women were not admitted to the bar for the most part. Very few admitted to the pulpit, again, more so in the South. They were often refused admission to medical schools. Divorce was uncommon. It was highly disadvantageous to women. It often could mean the loss of their children. Uh, many women remained in absolutely wretched marriages because of the penalties that might accompany a divorce. Uh, the divorce rate uh, at this time in United States history was about 1 in 21 marriages. So divorce, very, very uncommon and often worked against women. Women generally, if they were in the workforce, were paid about half as much as men. There are a number of instances of women disguising themselves as men in the workforce so they could earn the same wages that men earned. Far more women in the workplace in the North uh, than in the Confederacy. That's sort of a general look at the status of women as we move toward the Civil War. Uh, very unequal in many ways. But now let's look at more specifically at how reality differed from these ideals of separate spheres and of the lady. And let's start with the North. Separate spheres say women stay at home. They don't go out into the workforce. But in fact, at mid-century, a quarter of the manufacturing employees and two-thirds of those in the textile industry were women. They were mostly young, mostly single, many girls, not even women, who worked to build a dowry or worked to bring in extra earnings to the family. They'd make their wages and give them to their families. They were expected to give up these jobs and return to the home once they were married. As the Civil War approached, more and more of these kinds of jobs were taken by immigrant women and especially by young Irish women. Women continued to perform invaluable roles as seamstresses, shoemakers, and so forth through what was called the putting-out system. That is, production would be carried out in the home for a, a business would, would parcel out production on a piecework basis that would be, uh, the labor would actually be performed in the home, but it would be for a business. So there are a lot of women working. Women were also active outside the home and exerted considerable political influence beyond their sphere, articulated by the ideal, as reformers becoming involved in the various reform movements in the North. They entered teaching and charity work uh, via the notion that they were especially suited for such nurturing. That was considered nurturing and therefore womanly work, both those kinds of work. But they were also important in the temperance movement, very important in the education reform movement. Again, this is only in the North, but trying to get uh, wider education and better education for a broader section of society. They were important in the prison and asylum improvements reform. 
And most particularly, they were very active in the anti-slavery movement. There are important women from the very beginning in the anti-slavery movement, although the very top individuals in that movement were virtually all men. The women's movement itself, which pushed for equal rights beginning in 1848, proved to be an important phenomenon and, again, a strictly northern phenomenon. The Industrial Revolution of the 1820s through 1860 was much more pervasive in the North, and that was one reason that northern women had so many opportunities to do something outside the home, to go against this notion of a sphere to which they would have to confine their activities. But what about in the South? Except for the very wealthiest slaveholders, even a planter's wife had a fairly hard life in much of the South. They had to oversee a large household, all of the food production in the household, uh, much of the production of clothing and distribution of clothing in the household. They had to uh, oversee medical care frequently, not only for their family, but also for the slaves that they owned. There were a, a range of duties that most slaveholding women had and that only a very small percentage uh, would be shielded from. Only the very wealthiest might be able to avoid a good deal of this kind of work. Uh, women typically oversaw dairy and egg production, uh, the family garden. And remember, people didn't go to stores to buy food. They didn't go to stores to buy clothing. Uh, they produced these things within the household at this stage in, in farming families and in planting families as well. And women oversaw those things also spent a good deal of time in the nursery and in the sick room. Uh, the son of a South Carolina slaveholder remembered this about his family. This isn't a great planter, but this is a slaveholding family. My mother spun, wove cloth, cooked, and occasionally went to the cow pen to milk the cows. Father plowed and drove the wagon, made shoes, and did other work. My mother always seed to her cooking and did a good deal of it, had her spinning and weaving done for the whole plantation, white and black. No cloth or Negro shoes were bought whilst father and mother lived. Father made his own Negro shoes and mother made the clothes. Now, not all planters and their wives would have done all these things, but the point is that there's a great deal of work to be done, even on most plantations, certainly on most slaveholding farms and especially non-slaveholding farms by women. And the vast majority of Southern women, of course, weren't slaveholders. So this notion of the ideal of a lady did not apply to the vast majority of white women in the South. They simply didn't have the luxury of living that kind of life. They lived a life of, of real drudgery in many instances, the same kind of life that many women lived on northern farms. And we should keep that in mind, uh, that despite these different ideals in the North and South, there's a big group of women in the North and a big group of women in the South that have very similar lives. Remember, 80% of the South is engaged in farming. More than 40% of the North is. So these farmers, most of them, what we would call yeoman farmers, there is a certain sameness to their lives. And the women on a small farm uh, in New England or in the Midwest, and a woman on a farm in Arkansas, a small farm or a farm in North Carolina, they would do many of the same kinds of things, and those things would include a vast amount of work, of cooking, cleaning, food production, and so forth that we've talked about. But, but keep in mind the ideals. Uh, each section had a different one, and I think that is indicative of what we talked about all the way uh, back at the beginning of the class, that in 
the minds of Northerners and Southerners, white Northerners and Southerners, there are differences in their civilizations. Even if the differences weren't as great as they thought, perhaps, but there's a notion uh, that they were different uh, from one another. All right, let's shift to the northern home front and look at some of the ways uh, that the war brought changes. Again, keep in mind that there is a stark contrast between a typical experience for a woman in the north and a typical experience for a white woman in the south because of the fact that the war is taking place in the south and it's not taking place in the north. I think Little Women, Louisa May Alcott's Little Women is very instructive in this regard because it shows life behind the lines in the north with the March girls there in Concord. Their father's off in the army. That would be a common experience, and they worry about him. They gather to read his letters at night. Uh, they're terribly concerned when they find out he's wounded. All of those things bring the war home to them. But on a day-to-day -day basis, life, uh, just going through life uh, as you would normally, things have not really changed that much in the March household because the war isn't raging uh, in Massachusetts or anywhere near Massachusetts. They go about their lives pretty much as they had before the war, except that their father's gone and they're worrying about him. Other than that, their lives haven't really changed that much. All right, some of the ways that the war did increase opportunities, increase the sphere within which women could operate in the North. Let's start with benevolence, the world of benevolence, the benevolent societies during the war. The U.S. Sanitary Commission was the most important one, and it was an outgrowth, really, of ladies' or soldiers' aid societies and sewing circles, which sprang up spontaneously in nearly every community uh, when the war came. As many as 20,000 may have been formed. They're formed in the North and the South. We'll talk about the Southern version uh, in our next lecture. But typically... Uh, there's enormous enthusiasm in the beginning. Uh, people worry about how the boys at the front are doing. Do they have enough uh, clothing? Do they have enough food? Do they have enough Bibles? Do they have the things that young men should have uh, when they're off fighting a war? And this enthusiasm resulted in an abundance of material being shipped off to the front, often in a very haphazard fashion. Uh, much of it n not needed. Much of it spoiled along the way. A lot of food would be crated up and sent to the front. Uh, food that would be inedible by the time it got there. So there's this, this initial impulse, impulse to help the boys to come together in these groups, uh, these benevolent groups to help. Organization came fairly quickly in the North. It ceased to be just a sort of spontaneous uh, local effort, uh, and organization came out of this benevolent chaos. Uh, one result was what was called the New York Central Association of Relief, begun in late April 1861, that became linked with the U.S. Sanitary Commission, which was formed by people who were especially concerned with the appalling rate of disease in the armies. We've talked about that before, how subject to disease the men were. Throughout the war, these groups helped raise funds through what were called sanitary fairs. The largest one was in Chicago in 1863, brought in an enormous amount of money. These are almost like a modern world's fair in a sense where you would have a number of exhibits. People would come in and see all the exhibits relating to different parts of American life and different parts of the war and these fairs would yield money. That money would be translated into medical supplies and Bibles and other religious tracts and other things that would help make soldier life more comfortable and more uplifting as well. They worried about the moral condition of the soldiers as well as the physical 
condition. Some of the women in this organization became key organizers for the women's movement later in the 19th century. There was a lot of organizational and, organizational and practical administrative experience that came out of this wartime service. Now, most of the top positions in the U.S. Sanitary Commission were held by men, but women were very active in it at somewhat lower echelons, and it was the kind of practical experience that would serve many of them well later. Uh, these volunteer efforts provided a generation of women uh, with the kind of political and organizational experience that would be important, for example, in the suffrage movement later in the 19th century. Again, top positions mainly held by men. Nursing offered another outlet for women in the North during the war. Louisa May Alcott's a typical example. She wanted to fight. She was loyal to the Union and wanted to participate in the war. How can I do my part, wondered Louisa May Alcott. The way that she could do it in the end was not as a soldier, but as a nurse. And like nearly 8,000 other Northern women, she volunteered to work as a nurse. She worked in Georgetown uh, near Washington, D.C. She only lasted about six weeks uh, before she fell ill but it was a very important uh, part of her life, a very important experience in her life. Before the war, nursing was a male profession. We're so conditioned to think of nursing as a women's profession now. Uh, this is another example of not trying to understand the past uh, through our current understanding. Uh, men were nurses before the Civil War. Men were nurses early uh, in the Civil War. Uh, women had a hard time uh, getting into the profession in many ways. We'll talk a little bit more about that later uh, as well, but the war marked a real turning point in the nursing profession from one that was dominated by men to one that would, that would become dominated by women. Clara Barton, who would found the American Red Cross in 1881, served as a nurse, much as Louisa May Alcott did. The key figure in the North was Dorothea Dix, who in 1861 became the superintendent of nursing for the North. Talk about Barton more, talk about Dorothea Dix more uh, in our next Next lecture. There were also some openings in government, what we would call secretarial and clerk type positions for women in the North during the war. Positions that had also been almost exclusively reserved for men uh, before the war. Stores even began to have a few female sales clerks, although not, not very many. All of these positions in benevolent groups, in nursing, and in clerks' positions. Uh, were largely held by women of the middle class, broadly uh, uh, defined from lower middle class to upper middle class. These are not working class, poor women who are holding these kinds of jobs and getting the kind of experience that I've been talking about. These are mainly uh, women solidly from the middle class. Well, what about working class women and free black women in the North? Here, the picture is much murkier, as it almost is, almost always is, excuse me, with poorer people in American history. They didn't leave uh, as rich a written record as wealthier, more literate uh, Americans have, and it's often more difficult to reconstruct their lives and experiences uh, than those of the wealthier people. We know that while agriculture boomed during the war, industrial workers experienced a decline in the standard of living with inflation outpacing gains in wages. That is both for male workers and for women uh, who are working in industrial jobs. Women's wages increased less than half, at, at a rate less than half that of male workers' wages. 
Uh, yet women filled a quarter of all manufacturing jobs. And I'll use seamstresses to illustrate this wartime trend. Piece rate declined from 17.5 cents for a shirt in 1861 to 8 cents for a shirt in 1864, more than a 50% drop in what a woman would get to make a shirt. And at the same time that that is happening, of course, remember that inflation is taking place as well. The North experiences significant inflation, nothing like the Confederacy, but women are making less money to sew a shirt, and at the same time, inflation is hurting them uh, in a, as well. So it's a double uh, strike at their earning power. When men of the laboring classes or small farmers died, uh, their widows had little recourse uh, to insurance or relief programs. There were, there were a few things uh, they might uh, look for uh, for some assistance, but very few. The number of women arrested increased during the war, sometimes because they preferred to go to prison to try to make a life on the streets. Uh, we don't really know very much yet about how this class of people, these really poor people, and often made poor by the loss of a husband uh, in the army, how they actually fared and, and made ends meet if they were able to make ends meet during the war. It could be a brutal experience for a poor person trying to cope with all uh, that the war was bringing. It's important to remember that many of the generalizations that you'll hear or read about women during the war, uh, many of the examples of what happened to women during the war, how there were new opportunities for women during the war, how their lives were expanded or enlarged during the war, uh, applies only to women of the middle class or higher. It does not really apply to the enormous number of poorer women, immigrant women, free black women. Uh, we just don't know nearly as much about their lives. It's also hard to tell how permanent some of the changes brought by the war were, whether these expanded spheres really carried on uh, after the war. Often, uh, opportunities will expand tremendously for women during the war. It happened during World War II very dramatically. Women surging into the workforce, doing all kinds of things that they hadn't done before. And then when the soldiers come home, when the armies are disbanded, men went back and took most of those jobs that had been given to women, and women were bumped back in uh, to their old positions. Some were happy to go back. Uh, many uh, were less happy to go back. The same thing happened during the Civil War. Uh, when men returned from the army, they often resumed their old positions. If you're the wife of a yeoman farmer and your husband comes home, I can't imagine that you wouldn't be happy to have him back. You don't have to do his work and your work anymore. You can go back to doing your part of that back-breaking work uh, on a small farm. Many women returned to their old roles happily, I'm sure that many did not, uh, that the war had expanded their horizons in some instances, and they would have preferred to have kept those expanded horizons. It was often difficult for them to do so. We'll leave the North here, and next time we'll shift to women behind the lines in the Confederacy and to women North and South who didn't stay at home but actually made their way to the military front and performed a number of jobs there. Lecture 33, Women at War, Part 2.
Our last lecture considered the northern and southern ideals for women uh, as the Civil War approached, the ways in which the real lives of women often departed from those ideals in both sections, and the ways in which the war wrought changes for many women, especially middle-class women, on the northern home front. Now we'll continue our examination of women by looking first at white women on the Confederate home front, then black women in the South, and finally uh, by surveying some of the ways in which women labored at the military front. Let's begin behind the lines in the Confederacy. As we've seen before, and as I've emphasized before, the fact that the war took place on Confederate soil made a very big difference in the respective experiences of women North and South. It was a much more personal violation in many ways uh, for Confederate women. They were as lonely as Northern women with men gone in the army, sons gone, husbands gone, relatives gone. But they also had to contend in many instances with being surrounded by an army, with their property picked over, confiscated, or destroyed. Uh, many Women in the Confederacy became refugees, white women, attempting to stay ahead of advancing Union soldiers. We'll talk more about that uh, in a later lecture. Because of the Confederacy's transportation and supply problems, uh, because they were so much more fragile, uh, the Confederate women also could expect to suffer shortages uh, sooner than many women in the North, and sometimes uh, far more acute shortages than women in the North. Finally, uh, Confederate women experienced a sense of defeat unknown to Northerners. A uh, Georgia woman after the war looked at the wounded around her and commented, uh, there is new pathos in a crutch or an empty sleeve now that we know it was all for nothing. Well, most women in the North didn't have a sense that it had all been for nothing. And that dimension of the Confederate experience, I think, made it even more difficult uh, for many women uh, to cope with what was going on. Let's look at some of the ways that Southern women assumed roles uh, during the war that, would si that were similar to the kinds of roles we discussed for Northern women in our last lecture. Let's start with benevolence. Here, too, Southern women responded uh, with soldiers' aid societies, just as the women in the North did. But there is a major difference, because there was never the organization, the system, if you like, uh, imposed on the uh, process of benevolence in the Confederacy. They didn't develop the extensive nat uh, national reach of things such as the U.S. Sanitary Commission. They remained in the Confederacy, these efforts much more community or state-oriented uh, without the equivalent of this big national group in the North. Women are doing lots of things for the men at the front. Robert E. Lee's wife uh, sewed socks through the entire war. Her correspondence with Lee and his with her is filled with allusions to six dozen socks, three dozen pair of socks uh, that she's sending to him, and then he's distributing among soldiers in the Army in Northern Virginia. That kind of activity continued throughout the war, sending food, sending clothing. Confederate women also became nurses. About a thousand served officially. Not nearly as many served officially as in the North, but many thousands also served on an ad hoc basis. Again, I'll use an example from Gone with the Wind, uh, where the battles for Atlanta are taking place, and Scarlett O'Hara finds herself in one of the large hospitals 
uh, in Atlanta and is pressed into service to act as a nurse. That would have been a fairly common experience in the Confederacy. In the North, there was no equivalent. And again, it's because the battles are taking place in the South. There's a battle near you. Uh, Many women would be pressed into service uh, as nurses, and then they would go back to doing whatever they'd been doing. Not as many official nurses, but many, many Confederate women taking part in nursing uh, in the Confederacy. The war came to them. Louisa May Alcott had gone to the war. In the Confederacy, the war came uh, to the women. In terms of government work, the Confederacy overall uh, hired fewer women, and perhaps a bit more slowly than the Union government, but they did hire a significant number of women. The Treasury Department was one of the more important uh, agencies in the Confederate government that hired women. It employed women for $500 a year, expected them to work only a year in most cases. These women would laboriously sign uh, the certificates on bonds and sign other uh, Confederate paper currency and so forth. Many other departments also hired women. It became more common after 1862 into 1863. Uh, Women rolled a lot of cartridges in the Confederacy, that close handwork. I've talked about rolling cartridges before in class, but it involves a lot of paper and a lot of handwork. A lot of young women did that in the Confederacy, and a number of women were killed or maimed in explosions in Confederate factories uh, where they were handling powder during the war, a major accident in Richmond and major accidents elsewhere. In terms of farming, Confederate women did an enormous amount of work uh, that, they had had, that they had not had to do before the war. This is where most of the story takes, part in the, takes place in the Confederacy, again, because so much of the Confederacy is agricultural. Uh, the huge proportion of military-age white males off to the war, most of them are yeoman farmers. Their wives are left at home to carry on, and they endure enormous hardships. Slaveholding women did as well. Uh, the slave system added a dimension that didn't exist in the North, or at least in most of the North. It would exist to a degree in the slave states that remained loyal to the Union. But for the most part, this is a Southern phenomenon. And diary after diary uh, is filled with complaints about the exasperation women experience trying to run plantations or large farms with slaves on them efficiently. They had a hard time maintaining discipline and order. Uh, on these farms, compelling slaves or free blacks to perform the labor uh, required to keep these areas running. Mistresses were forced to rely on key slaves for help. We talked about the Shepherd Pryor family when we were talking about the erosion of the bonds of slavery during the war in the Confederacy. That was a very common phenomenon. I'll quote from one South Carolina woman who wrote to her husband this way, She said, several pigs have died. I tell you candidly, all this attention to farming is uphill work with me. I can give orders first rate, but when I'm not obeyed, I can't keep my temper. A housekeeper has so much to do independent of field work. Then our Soldiers Aid Society keeps us busy too. I'm ever ready to give you a helping hand, but I must say I'm heartily tired of trying to manage free Negroes. It is so lonesome here, she wrote at the end. She really feels sort of besieged by all the things that she was trying to do. Hardship and fear, I think, prompted many Confederate women to react in ways virtually unknown in the North. 
Uh, there was a great deal of discontent. There's also discontent in the North, discontent with rising prices, discontent with how much work uh, many women had to do, but it took a different form in the Confederacy often. Uh, women who didn't have slaves obviously had to rely on their kinfolk or on their community or on their own labor and wits uh, to make ends meet uh, as the economy became more and more problematical in the Confederacy and as their husbands were away for longer and longer periods of time. Remember, if you're in the army, in the Confederacy, you never get out unless you're wounded or unless there's some other unusual reason because Congress kept changing the rules. Men from the Confederacy were in for the whole war, and so that leaves uh, their families at home for protracted periods. We don't have an accurate picture of how much discontent uh, may have affected support for the Confederacy, but we do know that many women finally reached a point where they simply didn't think they could make a go of it anymore, and they would write letters. Many of these survived. Many of them are pathetic, writing letters to their husbands saying, in effect, we cannot feed ourselves. If you don't come home to help, uh, we're going to starve to death. Now come home. We have to have you come home. These kinds of letters presented Confederate soldiers with an awful dilemma. They had to decide where their real obligation was. Was their real obligation, their first obligation, a patriotic one to the Confederacy? Do my duty no matter what. No, we all have to sacrifice. That means my wife and my children have to sacrifice too. Is that what they should do? Or is my real duty to my wife and to my children? Do I desert? Do I go home? Because that is the greater crisis here. The Confederacy may fail. I would hate that, but I can't have my family starving behind the lines. Uh, that is a dilemma that many Confederate soldiers faced, and they did so because many women were pushed to the wall, I think. Historians have made a great deal out of this kind of sentiment and have argued that it really did undercut the Confederacy. I think it's easy to exaggerate the degree to which it existed, however. I think most women behind the lines and most men in the ranks uh, just sort of gritted their teeth and kept at it, uh, but many Many women did reach their breaking point. Uh, Mary Chestnut uh, recalled one such woman, Mary Chestnut, the famous South Carolina diarist slash uh, memoirist. She recalled a woman waiting to speak to Jefferson Davis's wife, to Verena Davis, about her husband, this, this poor woman's husband. He had deserted to help his family, and then he'd gone to serve near her home so that he could be within reach of helping his family and one of his former officers found him, and this is what the woman told Mrs. Davis, as Mrs. Davis related it. She told her story simply, but over and over. The army had to pass so near her. Poor little Susie had just died, and the boy was ailing. Food was so scarce and so bad. All the children had chills. She was so miserable. The Negroes had all gone to the Yankees. There was nobody to cut wood, and it was so cold. The Yankees were coming nearer. I wrote, and I wrote, she said, if you want to see the baby alive, come. If they won't let you, come anyhow. That's how this woman explained what she had done to get her husband to come home. She was hoping that Verena Davis would be understanding about that. These southern women left alone faced threats really from both armies, uh, different kinds of threats, but threats, even a friendly army coming and staying near your farm for a short time could be disastrous because the odds would be that at least some of your livestock would be taken, some of your fences torn down for firewood, some of your crops 
disrupted. If the enemy's army came, of course, it could be much, much worse. And women were left alone to cope with this in many cases. Uh, soldiers would strip fences, especially the enemy soldiers. They would rob the hen and smoke houses. They would plunder and destroy many homes. Uh, and not just the enemy, Confederate guerrillas, Confederate irregulars often preyed on Confederate civilians. In fact, there are many letters in the Confederate War Department from civilians who say our own troops are acting uh, in more obnoxious ways than the enemy. We fear our own irregular cavalry more than we fear the enemy. We fear guerrillas, our guerrillas, more than we fear the enemy. The old saw about burying the silver in the yard was largely true. Uh, although federal soldiers usually found uh, the treasure, uh, often slaves would point it out where it was if there were slaves on hand to do it. And people don't usually have really imaginative places to hide things anyway. Soldiers became pretty adept at figuring out what the usual places uh, for hiding valuables might be. Even those women who managed to save their property from troops might face the prospect of eviction by army medical officers who wanted to use their quarters as a field hospital or by an enemy officer who wanted to set up headquarters in a nice house. If you happen to be in a nice house, it would be all the more uh, attractive to some officer who wanted a comfortable headquarters. Women wrote extensively in their diaries about the personal violation they felt upon contact with Union soldiers. This is one woman who captured the scene of soldiers rifling through the contents of one of her friend's homes. The daughter's hat and garments were placed on the floor and loathsomely polluted. They compelled her and her little daughter to remain and witness the destruction. And finally, when there was nothing more to break and steal, one of them approached Mrs. Clark and thrust his fist in her face. As she raised her head to avoid it, he struck her forehead, seized her by the throat, cursing her furiously. Seizing the neck of her dress, he tore it open, snatched the gold watch which hung by a ribbon, tore it off, and left her. Another woman summed up the despair such events could bring. She wrote, We're suffering from such lawless times as existed in the dark ages, but no knights errant rise up with the times to protect the helpless and redress grievances. There really was a sense of almost complete helplessness in the face of what the war was bringing to many people in the Confederacy. And many women became refugees, fleeing their farms and heading for places they thought would be more secure. Uh, Richmond swelled uh, from about 40,000 in population in 1860 to more than 100,000 in the course of the war. Much of that is from uh, increased industrial production, all kinds of defense-related uh, workers coming in, but many thousands of those people are refugees who thought if any place would be safe, the capital of the Confederacy would be safe. Uh, that experience of becoming a refugee uh, and packing into cities such as Richmond, uh, together with inflation, brought a series of bread riots in the Confederacy. In 1863, there was a shortage of bread, uh, money wouldn't go far enough, and many women took to the streets. Most famously in Richmond, in early April 1863, they rampaged through town, uh, shattering windows, stealing food, eventually being confronted by Jefferson Davis, who tried to placate them. He offered all the money he had. Uh, other politicians did as well. Uh, when they still seemed intent, the women on continuing uh, their rioting, Jefferson Davis said he would order the military to fire on them if they didn't disperse. And in the end, they did. The war extracted a far higher toll 
uh, on Confederate than on Northern families uh, in a couple of obvious ways. Talked about the high casualty rates among Confederate men. A quarter of the military-age white men killed, another quarter maimed. Uh, One of the practical results on that was that families were more perilously uh, situated in the Confederacy than in the North. By 1870, there were 25,000 more women than men in North Carolina, 36,000 more women than men in Georgia, 15,000 in Virginia, 8,000 in South Carolina. Uh, Many of these women were presiding as heads of family, uh, looking after farms, uh, trying to rear families uh, pretty much on their own. By 1890, 60,000 Confederate widows remained unmarried, and current research shows that the Confederacy did not have as dramatic a permanent change in work and other values as you found in the North, but in this sense, in having thousands of women who became widows and never remarried, thousands of women who remained as heads of households, uh, there was a significant change that the war wrought in the lives of these Southerners, of these white Southerners. Patterns of work and patterns of authority uh, were changed because of this uh, in the post-war South. Let's turn just briefly uh, to the experience of free black women and slave women in the Confederacy. Now, we've already touched on much of the experience of black women who would make their way to Union lines, the contraband experience. We've talked about that and the great changes that would bring, contraband camps being very difficult places, uh, these people taking a great risk to make their way to freedom. We've also talked about how the bonds of slavery loosened in the course of the war, how white masters could not exert quite the level of control over their slaves uh, as they had exerted before the Civil War. In the end, of course, uh, slave women were huge winners in the war because they were freed from their bondage, and the war created a number of changes uh, that went beyond the fact of being emancipated. Some of these changes uh, would have very long-term consequences, others a shorter-term consequences. But some of the things that it did, the war and the bringing of emancipation, was to make possible true families, real marriages, legal marriages uh, for slave women. There had been uh, marriages, sort of common law marriages, if you like, functional marriages, but not marriages that were recognized by law uh, before the war. Now there could be families, families with the kinds of legal bonds that white families uh, would have. Uh, Many... Uh, Slave women tried to set up their own ideal of what a woman should do after the war, what kinds of work were uh, proper for women. They tried to set up a a sort of version of the domestic household that was the ideal in the North. They didn't want to do field work anymore. Women should not be in the field. They should be nurturing. They should be uh, setting up the kind of household that, that the North had held up as an ideal and the South, too, for white women before the war. This was an opportunity for them to try to get away from the the slave conventions of just utter drudgery, working in the field, uh, back-breaking labor from sunup to sundown. Some scholars have tried to to, uh, preach a sort of sisterhood between white slave-holding women and slave women to say that the most important bond was a gender bond, that they were all women first and that the other things came Uh, secondarily, and they'll quote these scholars, they'll quote Mary Chestnut, for example, uh, saying that she believes slavery was a monstrous institution. 
Uh, I don't think that that is accurate. I think that there was an enormous gulf between enslaved women and the white women uh, who owned them or who lived in the families that owned them. I think that many white women disliked some elements of slavery in the South. They didn't like the fact that their husbands would slip down to the quarters at night and father children uh, by slave women. But I think the vast majority of slaveholding women in the South were completely comfortable uh, in most ways with the institution of slavery. They did not want to take on the work that slave women did. They didn't want to find themselves pulled off the position that they held and forced to make their way in a more difficult world. And I think most slave women, upon receiving their freedom, very quickly distanced themselves uh, from their former owners, uh, parted company as quickly as they could, and as I said, tried to set up their own form of this ideal of how a woman should behave and what kinds of work a woman should engage in. Major changes uh, for black women in the South because of the war. Let's move to the front now and see some of the things that women did uh, at the front during the Civil War. Start with the medical profession. Nursing is the biggest example of women entering the workforce here. Uh, this was a male profession before the war, as I've said. Black and white men were nurses early in the war, uh, Walt Whitman being the most famous of the uh, male nurses, I think, during the war. Women worked hard uh, to gain acceptance as nurses. They were not welcome at first. Clara Barton worked very hard uh, to have a presence on the battlefield, and Tatum was her first real experience in the field. It wasn't easy for her to get there and to do the work she did with the Union wounded at Antietam in September 1862. She would later uh, go on to do a number of other things during the war, including uh, work at Andersonville to try to identify uh, the Union soldiers who had died in that Confederate prison camp uh, throughout 1864 and into 1865. There were concerns on the part of many bureaucrats that it would be dangerous to put young women uh, as nurses in close proximity to young men who'd been wounded, young men in the army that somehow violated Victorian notions of propriety. And so Dorothea Dix, uh, the head of union nurses to combat that, uh, insisted that only women over 30 be allowed to be nurses and said in writing that they should be as plain as possible. No attractive women should apply to be nurses. No young women should apply to be nurses. We will try to make these women as little appealing uh, in a sexual sense, as possible to the soldiers, and that will help avoid some of these problems. Like Louisa May Alcott, who had to be sent home because of her illness, many other nurses faced unsanitary conditions, ripe with dysentery, typhoid, other infectious diseases, and suffered tremendously, as well as from a routine that tended to be very boring most of the time and then have enormous influxes of wounded after battles when the nurses would be overwhelmed. A Pennsylvania woman captured the exhaustion that she felt in her diary. She said, I am wet through and through, every garment saturated. saturated. I derobed and bathing with bay rum was glad to lie down, every bone aching, head and heart throbbing, unwilling to cease work where so much was to be done and yet wholly unwilling to do more. There I lay with the sick, wounded, and dying all around and slept from sheer exhaustion, the last sounds falling upon my ears being groans from the operating room, just completely worn out uh, this woman was. That would be 
a common experience. Most northern nurses were middle-class white women who hadn't previously worked away from home. Many had been inspired by Florence Nightingale's example during the Crimean War. An account of Nightingale's uh, service in the war had come out just before the Civil War. About half of them left a child at home to go to the front. Some were widowed. Some wanted to be near their spouses. Some hoped to take part in the great experience of their lifetime. There was one woman doctor uh, who stood out, a woman named Mary Walker. She received a commission as an army surgeon. She was awarded a Medal of Honor, uh, but the Medal of Honor was revoked in 1917 on the grounds that only soldiers could be recognized. Um, She, during the war, angered and shocked many observers because she wore men's clothes, uh, Mary Walker did. She was called a madwoman, but she was quite effective. Uh, By the end of the war, women's place in nursing was assured. Uh, Women's place uh, as a surgeon or a physician uh, was not uh, in the same position because of the war. All right. Nurses. What about soldiers? Uh, Pension records and other sources tell us that at least 400 women served in the army, served as soldiers, dressed up like men and served as soldiers, fought in the armies. Uh, That estimate might be low, at least 400. One woman who served with the Sanitary Commission in the Western Theater claimed that she knew 50 women who were passing as soldiers, uh, just in the area that had come under her view. There were various reasons for women to go into the army and fight, and they ranged from those who were unmarried and patriotic and wanted to do their part to those who followed their husbands into the service, wanted to be near their husbands, as closely uh, tied to their husbands as they could. And there were instances of prostitutes who were passing as soldiers who would carry weapons but would also ply their trade uh, when the armies weren't engaged in an active campaign. Northern women were more than twice as likely to enter the army. And again, I think that's partly because the war seemed far off and maybe a bit more romantic in some ways to them. Uh, The war was right in the southern neighborhoods, and most southern women didn't think uh, they needed to join the army. Uh, Most women who were found out were found out for one of two reasons. They were either wounded, and the physicians, if they were any good at all, uh, could tell that this was a woman they were treated and not a man, or they became pregnant and they were given away that way. Uh, Many women uh, who did serve uh, were not doing it secretly in terms of what their immediate uh, unit knew. Many men in the units would know that there were women, and they would sort of keep their secret with them. So at at least 400 and maybe more. Women also served as spies and what were called camp followers. Most famous spies were Rose O'Neill Greenow and Belle Boyd on the Confederate side, Uh, Their exploits are typically overplayed, although they did provide some useful information. They and many unknown, unnamed women uh, who would have pointed out directions or relayed useful information. Uh, There are not as many Union spies because uh, the activity, again, is in the Confederacy. The most famous Union spy in the South was a woman named Elizabeth Van Loo, who lived in Richmond and passed along a great deal of useful information to the United States. Now, camp followers would have included women who acted as laundresses, as teamsters, uh, runaway slaves would have fit into this group. They're women who followed along with the armies. Uh, Many of them were from lower classes. They're not all middle class, although a significant proportion of these camp followers were wives of officers, some who were very uh, determined to follow their husbands as much as they could. A British 
uh, soldier who was at Brandy Station in 1863 said that he saw 50 women in camp whom he considered ladies. He said they were upper-class women who added great tone uh, to the camp uh, near Brandy Station who brought much to the conversation around the campfire. More camp followers were southern women than northern. Proximity, again, played an important role. And most were not the stereotypical prostitutes. Camp follower has a negative connotation many times. Most of these women were not prostitutes following the armies. Uh, Many of them added to the sense of community in camp, uh, organizing religious services, helping out with hygiene and so forth. But they weren't all uplifting. There were plenty of prostitutes with the armies, especially armies that were close to cities. Uh, Hordes of prostitutes would descend on the environs of the army. Uh, Georgia soldier wrote home, a man named Theodore Fogel wrote home that camp life was not uplifting. He said he was shocked to see women dressed in inappropriate ways. He said, I don't like their looks. Uh, They're too free and easy. That was a nice way to say uh, that he thought there were some loose women uh, too close to his unit. Very large rates of venereal disease in both Union and Confederate armies during the war. And on more than one occasion, the army, both armies took steps to try to keep prostitutes away from the soldiers. All right, just a few words about the impact of the war on women. It did create more opportunities, especially in the North. And women who went into the public sphere often carried that experience later into the 19th century with them. Opportunities opened for work and health care, as we've seen. The secretaries and sales clerks, mainly a late 19th century phenomenon, but some of that began during the war. So there is some of this enlarging of the women's sphere. In the South, more white women had to do field work, uh, while similar work for black women became secondary, especially at least in the short term when many of the slaves were freed and they tried to avoid that kind of work. Domestic service, however, was still reserved uh, for black people almost entirely. Teaching became more respectable as an outlet for women. In terms of marriage and family roles, it's unclear yet the exact extent of this impact, but women after the war could remain spinsters without the antebellum stigma attached uh, to that position. The fact that there were so many war widows after the war made people more sympathetic to single women, and more women remained as unmarried heads of households. There's been a debate about whether women becoming disaffected with the war actually hurt the Confederate war effort. I think the stronger arguments are on the other side of that, that women, in fact, were a main support for the war and not really a kind of uh, uh, interior weakness uh, for the Confederate war effort. Many women underwent a similar kind of hardening process as men did during the war. They saw things and experienced things they simply hadn't seen before. We'll leave women here, the North and the Confederacy's women, and return to the battlefront. Uh, We'll rejoin Ulysses S. Grant as he becomes General-in-Chief of the Union Armies. Lecture 34, Stalemate in 1864. With this lecture, we bring Ulysses S. Grant to center stage uh, in the military drama of the war. Uh, We've seen his great success in the West, 
And that great success, extending through 1862 and 1863, brought him the post of General-in-Chief of United States Armies in the spring of 1864. In this lecture, we'll look at his strategic planning for the Western Theater just before he was promoted to General-in-Chief. Then we'll come east with him to Washington and Virginia, where he planned for the entire Union military effort across the board in the spring of 1864. And then we'll look at three failures of execution by Union commanders as Grant's strategy went into effect in early and mid-May of that year of 1864. But let's begin with Grant out west and get him promoted to General-in-Chief. We left him last time in the wake of the Union victory at Chattanooga in November 1863. Following that success for the North, there ensued a winter season of planting and not really much significant action of any kind in Virginia. George G. Meade and his Army of the Potomac faced Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, engaged in some winter sparring, I think, would be a good way to put it, in the Mine Run campaign uh, before settling into winter quarters along the old Rappahannock, Rapidan River frontiers. James Longstreet's Confederate Army was bogged down in an ineffective siege of Knoxville. A little was happening in the Trans-Mississippi and Joseph Johnston replaced Braxton Bragg as commander of the Army of Tennessee in North Georgia. Grant looked toward a master plan for action in his huge western theater. Remember, he commands uh, the area that Henry Halleck had commanded after his initial successes in the spring of 1862. What Grant had in mind as he looked toward what should happen in the west was a type of campaigning, a type of warfare that scholars, uh, some scholars anyway, have come to call a strategy of exhaustion. Strategy of exhaustion. This is not the same as a strategy of attrition. A strategy of attrition seeks to wear down the manpower of your opponent, to kill or maim or capture as many of the enemy's soldiers as possible and remove them as effective uh, tools for your enemy. Grant's strategy of exhaustion, in contrast, sought to destroy the logistical underpinnings of the Confederate war effort, to strike at the industrial capacity, at the transportation network, at the food production and distribution capacity of the Confederacy. If we do that, argued Grant, we don't have to kill their soldiers or capture them or wound them because the Confederate government will not be able to arm and clothe those soldiers and, in effect, will accomplish the same thing. So a strategy of exhaustion, uh, quite different from a strategy of attrition. Grant, as most commanders on both sides, understood very well how hard it was literally to destroy an enemy army. Now, Grant had managed to accomplish it twice. He had captured a Confederate army at Fort Donelson back in February of 1862, and he did it again at Vicksburg in July of 1863, but that almost never happened. And in both those instances, Grant had been up against second-rate Confederate leaders, uh, Floyd and Pillow, initially for the Confederates at Fort Donelson, and then Pemberton at Vicksburg. He couldn't count on being up against second-rate Confederate soldiers uh, in the future. The principal Confederate commanders in the field were Joseph Johnston in the West, who was able, uh, at least in comparison to these other Confederates, and, of course, Robert E. Lee in the East. 
Knowing how many soldiers it took to protect long lines of communication and supply, Grant decided not to try to occupy permanently large parts of the Confederacy. As Union armies sliced into the Confederacy, said Grant, we don't have to keep control over every mile of ground we gain. We should just go through and continue on our way without trying to protect all that land. We should conduct what in effect are large-scale raids. We'll destroy things as we go along. Destroy anything that could be valuable to the Confederacy as we go along, and we don't have to occupy the territory. We'll do our damage without allocating all the men and resources necessary actually to occupy huge chunks of this vast Confederate countryside. We won't have to deploy all those men to watch long supply lines. We won't have to deploy men to protect logistical bases against the kinds of raids uh, that Earl Van Dorn and Nathan Bedford Forrest, for example, carried out against Grant's rear areas in the initial stage of the Vicksburg campaign. Now, Grant worked this strategy out for the Western Theater initially. He thought that major raids would be aimed at Mobile, And once that port was taken, then the army would strike inland toward Montgomery, Alabama, and eventually would veer over toward Georgia, probably toward Atlanta, laying waste to these regions as they went. The federal forces would thus really hurt the logistical areas of that part of the Confederacy. He also envisioned another movement out of Chattanooga toward Atlanta, first a conventional move along the railroad to Atlanta, but once the Federals had Atlanta, they would strike from there into the interior of Georgia. So these two big raids going into Alabama and Georgia. In February 1864, Sherman led a 20,000-man force from Vicksburg to Meridian, Mississippi, in a sort of practice run for what Grant envisioned on a much broader scale later in the war. Uh, Sherman was to see whether Grant's thinking was workable in the field, and the Meridian raid indicated that it was something that would work. Uh, Sherman soldiers lived off the land, they destroyed railroads, they destroyed foodstuffs and other supplies en route, spent a few days in Meridian when they got there, uh, destroying what they could, and then made their way back to Vicksburg. They tore up about 115 miles of railroad, destroyed several dozen bridges, and a number of rolling stock and locomotives. Now applied to the east, Grant's theory involved expeditions into southwestern Virginia and into North Carolina that would deny Lee the supplies that his army pulled from those areas. So go at Lee indirectly, just as he is in essence going at the Confederates indirectly in much of the western theater. But for Virginia, Grant's thinking uh, was at odds with what Lincoln and Halleck wanted. Henry Halleck and Lincoln wanted Lee's army to be the target. They wanted the Army of the Potomac to engage Lee's army and inflict the greatest damage possible on that army. So he wasn't going to get his way in Virginia. All that planning took place in the wake of Chattanooga, planning for the West, and before Grant was named General-in-Chief. That promotion came in March of 1864. He was called to Washington, was Grant, and asked to assume command of all the United States armies. So here's the progression we've had. Winfield Scott, the first general-in-chief, then McClellan, then Halleck, and now Grant, the fourth and final general-in-chief of the Union armies. Congress had revived the rank of lieutenant general, previously held only by George Washington and by Winfield Scott by Brevet, revived it specifically for Grant, an indication of the enormous regard Congress had for Grant and the northern people had for Grant. He becomes the North's only uh, 
three-star general uh, in the Civil War. Halleck was bumped down to chief of staff, and Grant now had responsibility for planning the entire strategy for the North in the spring of 1864, and he quickly got to work. Now, he already had his plans in place for the West, the strategy of exhaustion concentrating on Mobile, Montgomery, and Atlanta. For the East, Grant soon realized that he wasn't going to be able to use an indirect approach, a strategy of exhaustion there. He realized that there was enormous political pressure for him to make Lee and his army his target. An enormous amount of political pressure, a really groundswell of pressure from the North also for Grant to campaign with the Army of the Potomac, to move his headquarters east, to run the war from the east, to be actively engaged in opposing Lee. He would have preferred to stay in the west. His friend Sherman urged him not to go to the east where all of the the political intrigue in Washington might ensnare Grant, but Grant figured out very quickly that the campaign in Virginia would have overwhelming importance to people in the north who saw Lee as the best general commanding the best rebel army. He knew that he would be expected as the new top soldier of the United States to go against Lee in the field. We have here, in effect, the two champions of the respective nations who would soon be battling head-to-head. He didn't relish the role. Uh, He knew there could be problems for an officer coming from the west, taking command in the east. John Pope had done that. Uh, As you'll remember, Pope had come from the West, from his successes in the West, and had presided over an ignominious failure in the campaign of Second Manassas back in the summer of 1862. Grant was aware of that, and he had some trepidation about coming to the East as a Westerner and trying to impose his will. But in the end, he knew that he had to. He had to accompany the Army of the Potomac. Now, technically, George Meade would still be the Army's commander, All the way through the rest of the war, Meade will command all the way through to Appomattox. But, of course, in the popular mind, once Grant traveled with the Army of the Potomac, it became his army. It was Grant's army facing Lee, not Meade's army facing Lee. So Grant had not only been forced to modify his strategy for the East, away from what he would have preferred, this strategy of exhaustion to concentrate on logistics rather than Lee. He's been forced to concentrate on Lee, not logistics, but he also has been drawn into a confrontation with Robert E. Lee, who was the best field commander, in my opinion, uh, developed on either side during the war, the best commander at maneuvering an army and fighting an army in the field. I think Grant may well have been the best soldier in the war in terms of his overall strategic reach and so forth, but I think Lee was the best field commander. Grant would not be directing the dual advances against Mobile, Montgomery, and Atlanta as he originally anticipated. He would be overseeing from Virginia the entire strategic picture. And he understood what part would have the most impact on the North. As he wrote in his memoirs, he said, Lee, with the capital of the Confederacy, was the main end to which all were working. Uh, Atlanta and Johnston, as targets for William Tecumseh Sherman, were certainly important in Grant's thinking, but they were secondary. Because, as he put it, they would not produce so immediate and decisive a result in closing the rebellion as would the possession of Richmond, Lee, and his army. Here is Grant's realization that the Eastern Theater, we've talked about this a great deal in the course, The Eastern Theater is more important than any other theater. 
Grant's final plans called for five simultaneous advances. He wanted pressure across the board against many key points in the Confederacy. This is what he envisioned. First, Nathaniel P. Banks would take 30,000 men from Louisiana toward Mobile, Alabama, then turn north to Montgomery, and eventually strike off toward Georgia. There was no Confederate army in this area. There were various small Confederate forces, but no real army that would be opposing Banks. Sherman would have about 100,000 men in three different armies, the armies of the Tennessee, the Cumberland, and the Ohio, which would march south from Chattanooga to Atlanta along the railroad initially. But once in Atlanta, uh, either linking up with Banks or not, uh, would move into the Confederate interior somewhere and begin to implement the strategy of exhaustion. That's the second component. In Sherman's way, uh, one of the two major Confederate armies, the Army of Tennessee, commanded by Joseph Johnston. Johnston would begin the campaign with about 65,000 men. So Banks and Sherman. Third component of this strategy, the Army of the Potomac, commanded by Meade slash Grant in Virginia. About 115,000 men would go against the 64,000 uh, men of the Army of Northern Virginia. After defeating Lee, if things went well, Grant would continue on to Richmond. Thus, he had a hierarchy of goals in Virginia. First, come to grips with Lee, bleed him as much as possible. Second, prevent Lee from shifting any strength westward uh, to reinforce Johnston in North Georgia, the way that Longstreet had been sent west to reinforce Braxton Bragg the preceding summer. And third, if all went well in the fighting, uh, capture Richmond, the great uh, emotional and psychological uh, success that would come from that uh, would help the Union war effort tremendously, and Grant understood that. There were two less important elements of this overall strategy, uh, both in Virginia. One, Benjamin F. Butler, with about 30,000 men in a force called the Army of the James, would move up the James River from Fort Monroe to threaten Richmond from the south try to prevent Lee from getting any reinforcements. Uh, so we have a double threat coming against Richmond, one from the south in Butler's army, one from the north in the Army of the Potomac. And the last of the five-pronged offensives would be one uh, commanded by a German named Franz Siegel, who had a small army that would move out of West Virginia into the Shenandoah Valley, trying to take control of the logistical resources in that valley and to disrupt the rail connections between the valley and Lee's army east of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Deny that great granary to the Confederacy. Uh, Lincoln, looking over the board in his usual apt way, said it seemed to him, as he looked at these five components, which were important and which were not, he said the roles of Butler and Siegel were, quote, those not skinning can hold a leg. Uh, so the main part of this offensive will be Grant and Sherman and Banks, uh, but Siegel and Butler will play a role. They'll be annoyances to the Confederacy as well. Grant managed to slip at least a minor element of his strategy of exhaustion into all of this by uh, calling for small raiding parties from West Virginia to strike into western Virginia, southwestern Virginia, against the railroads and perhaps uh, do some damage in North Carolina as well. But that's a decidedly secondary part of what is going on. In all, this is not a brand new approach. George B. McClellan, for example, had tried to apply simultaneous pressure at various points when he was general-in-chief back in early 1862. 
but he hadn't been able to accomplish it. He hadn't even come close, McClellan hadn't. Uh, Grant has a well-conceived, ambitious plan for the United States in the spring of 64, apply pressure all the way from Virginia to the Gulf Coast and threaten the key cities of Mobile, Atlanta, and Richmond. By applying that pressure all across the board, Grant thought that he would deny the Confederacy the option of using railroads to bring troops together as they had before the Battle of Shiloh and as they had before the Battle of Chickamauga. They're not going to be able to shift troops around. They're going to have to try to match all of these Union advances, and Grant didn't think they would be able to do that. Within the scope of the strategy of exhaustion, Sherman's army probably had the most important role in this. The most good in that sense would be accomplished by Sherman once he got past Atlanta and into the interior of Georgia. Uh, The expedition from Mobile would also do some good there. But the attention, as always, would be focused mainly on Virginia because of the presence of Grant and Lee and the capitals and all the other factors that we've talked about in the past. Grant wanted his simultaneous advances to commence in early May. All right, let's look now at what happened to three of the five parts of Grant's grand strategy. We'll start with Nathaniel P. Banks. Plans seldom work as well in practice as on paper. And here, as the war uh, went into its fourth spring, Grant would learn that lesson uh, much to his disappointment. Nathaniel Banks never even launched his campaign against Mobile. Instead, he bogged down in a movement along the Red River in Louisiana. This resulted from the summer 1863 plans for an expedition into the Trans-Mississippi. We talked about that earlier, how after Vicksburg, the North needed to decide what to do next, and the decision had been, uh, Lincoln had been for it, Halleck had been for it, and others that the focus should be on the Trans-Mississippi, knock that section out of the Confederate uh, war effort. Lincoln hoped uh, to get state governments up and running in Louisiana and Arkansas, his Reconstruction governments. He wanted to send a message to the French in Mexico, all the things we talked about before. Banks also, Banks was from Massachusetts. Uh, He was very attuned to the fact that the textile industry in Massachusetts had been somewhat hard hit by the loss of southern cotton. He wanted to gain control of a good supply of cotton. Banks was to be in control of the Union forces that would strike into the Trans-Mississippi. He'd managed a few landings along the Texas coast during 1863. Then in March 64, he mounted a full campaign into Louisiana along the Red River. Sherman supported this idea. He thought that if Banks made good progress, he'd be able to conduct this raid into Louisiana and get back in time for his part of Grant's overall strategy uh, for his strike against Mobile. Sherman expected about a 30-day raid of destruction, uh, much like he had carried out during the Meridian Raid. He even sent troops uh, to Banks, sent 10,000 troops to augment Banks' force. Well, Sherman might have been able to follow an ambitious timetable, but the less talented Banks could not. He didn't even begin his campaign until the second week of March, 1864. And then he moved very cautiously up the Red River with about 27,000 men. Another 15,000 Federals were moving south from Little Rock. And accompanying uh, Banks' army was a Union Naval flotilla under David Dixon Porter. 
There were ironclads and other vessels. It was a strong Union force. The Confederates in front of them only amounted to about 15,000 men under General Richard Taylor. Taylor was Zachary Taylor's son. He was Jefferson Davis's brother-in-law. Jefferson Davis's first wife had been Richard Taylor's sister. Uh, She had died shortly after uh, she married Jefferson Davis. Banks fell into a pattern of magnifying the strength of the enemy. He found excuse after excuse for delay as he moved into Louisiana. By April 6th, he was about 40 miles south of Shreveport. He had not made that much progress. On April 8th and 9th, he and Taylor fought uh, two of the largest battles fought in the Trans-Mississippi Theater. On April 8th, They fought at the Battle of Mansfield, or Sabine Crossroads, as it was also called. The next day, they fought the Battle of Pleasant Hill. The first was a tactical Southern victory, Mansfield. The second, a tactical Union victory. Banks lost about 3,600 men. Uh, Taylor's army lost about 1,000 fewer than the Federals had lost. Banks was certainly not beaten soundly as a result of these two actions, but he was beaten mentally, and he decided on a retreat. He'd learned that the Union column coming out of Arkansas was not doing well, and he decided that the best thing for him to do was retreat. Uh, Taylor wanted to come to grips with Banks again, to fight him again, but his theater commander, who was Edmund Kirby Smith, we last saw him during the Kentucky campaign of 1862, Edmund Kirby Smith said, no, uh, just let him go if he's going to go. As Banks withdrew, his ironclad escort found itself in trouble because the Red River was falling. Excuse me, falling. Uh, The water level was dropping, and there was danger that the vessels would draw too much water to get out. Uh, Now, that specter did not please Grant at all. He ordered Banks to save these ships, and Union engineers came up with the idea of building jetties out into the uh, Red River, narrowing and deepening the channel. Uh, the Union ironclads would get up steam and would sort of shoot through uh, rapids to make their way to safety. They just managed to make it, uh, but they did. Banks finally limped back into New Orleans, past the date when he should have been outside Mobile, having accomplished virtually nothing, and the failure being due mostly to his incompetence. Porter, David Dixon Porter, disgustedly wrote Sherman, I imagine your disappointment at having your well-laid plans interfered with and having part of your command mixed up in an affair, the management of which would be discreditable to a boy nine years of age. Uh, So Porter is saying that uh, Banks is not quite a 10-year-old when it comes to commanding armies, but I guess he's approaching that 10-year-old threshold of competence. It's a very... uh, Disappointing fiasco. Mobile would be safe for the moment. The interior of Alabama would be safe from Union armies bent on logistical destruction. A major part of Grant's strategy of exhaustion had come to nothing. Let's now move to Virginia and look at the two men who were going to hold uh, a leg while the others skin at Benjamin Butler and Franz Siegel. We'll start with Butler. Butler fared little better than Banks, although he did begin quickly and he did move uh, in quite good fashion up to within 15 miles of Richmond. He got to that point on May the 5th, so he started when Grant wanted him to start and he made good progress. Uh, He had several times the number of men then defending the Richmond-Petersburg line, but Butler 
was overcome by a sort of strange paralysis when he got that close to Richmond, and he began to creep forward, uh, giving time to the Confederates to assemble a force of nearly 18,000 to defend uh, that crucial approach to Richmond. Uh, Gustav Tutan Beauregard was in command of these forces, and he attacked Butler on May 16th at Drury's Bluff, seven miles south of Richmond. That was enough for Butler. He decided to fall back to a line between the Appomattox and James Rivers, where he entrenched. It was right there in a V where the rivers uh, came together. He entrenched, Beauregard followed him, and entrenched opposite Butler. So there is Butler hunkered down between those two rivers. Uh, That whole movement had the effect of sealing Butler up, taking him off the strategic map. As Grant put it later, Butler's army was, quote, as completely shut off from further operations directly against Richmond as if it had been in a bottle strongly corked. So there is Butler corked. Beauregard then sends reinforcements to Lee's army, uh, something that was absolutely the worst thing in terms of what Grant wanted to happen. He was hoping Butler would tie down men here Beauregard is able to reinforce Lee, while Butler's 30,000 men sat uselessly behind their entrenchments. Banks and Butler shared one thing that we've mentioned before. They're both political generals. They're two of the important political generals that remain in command for virtually the whole war. And here they both have done some pretty poor work for Lincoln. Franz Siegel, meanwhile, had gathered his small army. It's not really an army. It's about 6,500 men uh, for his campaign in the Shenandoah Valley. Stanton, an important rail center, the Virginia Central Railroad came in there, was his immediate goal. Now, Siegel and most of his officers were Germans. Many of their soldiers were German-speaking men. Didn't, many of them didn't even really speak English. And there was tremendous antipathy on the part of soldiers who called themselves Americans, uh, true Americans, antipathy directed by them toward these German soldiers. It was a phenomenon not just in Siegel's little force. It had also been present elsewhere in the Army of the Potomac, for example. The 11th Corps, uh, a lot of German soldiers in the 11th Corps. The 11th Corps had been routed by Stonewall Jackson at Chancellorsville and then had been driven from the field on the first day at Gettysburg. And many of the non-German soldiers had, had disparaged uh, the performance of the Germans. Said, what do you expect? They're Germans. They're not, they're not really good soldiers. A lot of anti-German, anti-ethnically uh, uh, based prejudice against these German soldiers and officers. Siegel's German soldiers loved him, considered him a great hero. That's one reason that he remained in command, because he was an important rallying uh, figure for German Americans, and Lincoln knew how important Germans would be to the Union war effort. But you have this division within this little Union army that marches into the Shenandoah Valley, tensions between the German and non-German soldiers. Many of the Germans said proudly, I fight Smith Siegel. I mean, they wanted to fight with Siegel. He was their idea of a good officer. Now, opposing Siegel was a little Confederate force commanded by John C. Breckinridge. We've seen Breckinridge before as James Buchanan's vice president. We've seen him before as the Southern Democratic candidate in the election of 1860. Now he's a Confederate Major General. He has 5,000 men, a motley array of units, including some of John S. Mosby's partisan rangers, uh, some kind of home guard troops, and the 247 cadets from the Virginia Military Institute, also attached 
to this little Confederate army in the valley. The boys from the Institute were happy to be in a real army, but many of the veterans taunted them, said they weren't really soldiers. Some of the veterans would whistle or sing nursery rhymes when the VMI cadets would go by, uh, letting them know that they didn't take them very seriously. Breckenridge uh, was worried about having these, these boys in his army, really. He said that he would use them only in an emergency. Well, these two little armies clashed on May 15, 1864, at the Battle of Newmarket. It was a sharp battle. In the end, every Confederate was needed, including the VMI cadets. Uh, Put the boys in, said Breckenridge grimly, when the moment came, and may God forgive me for the order. Well, the cadets took part in a crucial assault. Late in the day, captured uh, some Union cannons, covered themselves with glory in their view and in the view of most Confederates behind the lines, helped turn the tide. It was a Confederate victory at Newmarket. Siegel retreated northward down the valley, and the casualties amounted to about 530 for the south and about 850 for the north. Ten of the VMI cadets were killed uh, in this action, and nearly 50 others were wounded. But Siegel, the key thing is that Siegel retreats northward. He takes him out of the campaign, and so here we have the third failure among Grant's five anticipated offensives against the Confederacy. Banks has failed, Butler's failed, Siegel has failed. That meant that hopes for Union success now rested entirely with the two major armies, Grant against Lee, Sherman against Joe Johnston in North Georgia. Those are the operations that would dominate headlines in the North and the South for the next several months as Richmond and Atlanta loomed larger and larger as key points, people began to focus more and more. They always focused on Richmond, but now Atlanta, much as Vicksburg had become a great focal point before, Atlanta will become a great psychological uh, focal point now. And next time, we will look at the first stage of William Tecumseh Sherman's operations against Atlanta. Lecture 35, Sherman versus Johnston in Georgia. This lecture continues our examination of military events in the early part of 1864. Uh, Last time we saw how Nathaniel P. Banks and Benjamin Butler and Franz Siegel failed in executing or attempting to execute their parts of Ulysses S. Grant's overall strategy in the spring of 1864. Now we're going to switch to Grant's close friend, William Tecumseh Sherman, who will be at the heart of our lecture today. We'll look at Sherman's relationship with Grant, which I believe was the critical military relationship, uh, certainly on the northern side during the war. We'll examine the respective forces at the outset of the Atlanta campaign, the size of the armies, the commanders who would be leading them. We'll discuss Early's, excuse me, Sherman's early progress toward Atlanta in the initial stages of his campaign in May and June. And we'll finish by looking at the reasons behind the removal of Joseph E. Johnston as commander of the Army of Tennessee in mid-July 1864, shortly after the army settled into what would become a famous siege of that famous southern city. But let's begin 
uh, by looking at the background of the Atlanta campaign and at Sherman and Grant. This campaign pitted two very famous generals against one another. Sherman, of course, one of the two most famous Union generals, along with Grant and Joseph E. Johnston, probably uh, the Confederate Army commander with the highest reputation uh, after Robert E. Lee. Uh, I don't think that reputation is deserved, as I've already suggested in some of my previous lectures, and as I will flesh out a little bit more today. But nonetheless, he's a very well-known uh, and quite famous both in his time and in our time, a Confederate Army commander. Johnston and Sherman preferred to maneuver and fight only if necessary, and they would conduct a campaign uh, that showed that element of their military personalities. It'll be very different from the campaign that Grant and Lee would carry out in Virginia. Grant and Lee would fight and then maneuver in North Georgia, as we'll see. Sherman and Johnston would maneuver and then fight. Let's talk about Sherman. Sherman and Grant, to begin with, they enjoyed a bond of friendship and trust, I think, these two Union commanders, unexcelled in United States military history. It was a bond that paid very handsome dividends for the United States during the Civil War. In January 1865, Grant remarked on how noble a man, as he put it, his friend Sherman was, adding, I'm glad to say that I appreciated Sherman from the first, feeling him to be what he has proven to the world he is. Although Grant treated some of his subordinates less than fairly uh, in his memoirs, his famous and widely read memoirs, George H. Thomas is a perfect example of that. Uh, Grant's loyal chief of staff, John Rawlins, is another example of that. He always gave Sherman full credit for everything Sherman did. Uh, the memoirs uh, really quite generous to Sherman, perhaps too generous to him in some regards. The failure of generals such as Banks and Butler and Siegel in early 1864 made Sherman's part of the overall Union strategy that much more important. As we saw last time, so much would be riding on what Sherman did in North Georgia and what Grant did in Virginia. Sherman was to take Atlanta and then strike into the interior of Georgia in a great destructive raid. Uh, Grant's strategy of, of exhaustion. Now, Sherman would add his own twist to this strategy by emphasizing the psychological dimension of what that kind of campaign could achieve. He would argue that a large-scale Union raid that cut deep into previously untouched Confederate territory would terrorize Southern civilians, not just those in the path of the Army, but those from afar who were following the progress of this campaign through their newspapers and letters. It would show that the Federals could do anything they wanted to basically, and it would create a great psychological negative uh, in the Confederacy. Sherman understood that, I think, probably better uh, than anyone else. Now, Sherman would prove to be successful as an army commander, but I think that success was possible only because he was subordinate to Ulysses S. Grant, only because he knew that his friend Grant was at the helm and was a man who would take responsibility for overall Union developments. Sherman was not the man ultimately responsible in 64, and I think that was important uh, for him. He needed a sure presence uh, above him. Without it, I think Sherman was tormented by doubts and demons that severely compromised his efforts. Lee, excuse me, Grant's unswerving expectation of victory, I think, inspired Sherman. Grant always seemed certain that victory eventually would come. Sherman's own mood shifted regularly from elation to despondency. 
but having Grant over him allowed Sherman to pursue Grant's strategic designs with absolute confidence. Sherman, whose letters are among the best written by any figure, north or south, military or non-military, he got at uh, this element of their relationship very well in a letter that he wrote to Grant uh, recalling their campaigns in 1862-63. He said, I knew wherever I was that you thought of me, and if I got in a tight place, you would come if alive. Without the reassuring presence of someone like Grant, Sherman's record had been far less successful. Indeed, his early life and pre-war career inspire comparison with Grant's in terms of their repeated failures. Now, Sherman, like Grant, did go to West Point. He graduated from West Point. He didn't get into active service in the war with Mexico, however, as so many of his peers did. Uh, He was tall and slender, had red hair, never really cared what it looked like. It usually looked like he hadn't run a comb through it. He had been raised as the ward of a prominent and wealthy politician, uh, Whig Senator Thomas Ewing of Lancaster, Ohio. Sherman's father died in 1829 when Sherman was nine years old. His mother had 11 children, couldn't afford to rear all of them, and so shipped uh, William Tecumseh, Cump as he went by, uh, off to live with the Ewings. He was a brilliant young man, had a wide-ranging mind, very widely read, curious intellectually about a range of things, very polished in conversation, and very polished with his pen. Uh, He resigned from the Army in the early 1850s, moved to California to try his hand in banking, and was caught by the uh, economic panic of 1857. A very bad financial period for him. By 1859, he considered himself a failure. As he wrote that year, I look upon myself as a dead cock in the pit. And yet 1859 proved to be a year when he found something he did like to do. He was named uh, to be the head of a new military college in Louisiana, the forerunner of what is now Louisiana State University, and he found that a very congenial post. He loved the South. He got along with white Southerners very well. He had no problem with slavery. Uh, But he did have a problem with secession, and when secession came, he left Louisiana, and he offered his services to the United States government. Fought at first Bull Run, then went out west, and had essentially a breakdown as the Union commander in Kentucky. He preceded Don Carlos Buell. In the fall of 1861, uh, he saw enemies all around him, Confederate enemies, magnified the size of Confederate forces, and in essence, panicked, and then proved completely incapable of carrying out his duties effectively. Uh, The Cincinnati Commercial ran a headline uh, that labeled Sherman insane. Sherman wrote to his brother at this time, I'm so sensible now of my disgrace that I do not think I should, excuse me, I'm so sensible now of my disgrace that I do think I should have committed suicide were it not for my children. Uh, That is Sherman early in the war. His salvation proved to be Ulysses S. Grant, he was placed under Grant, saw after the Battle of Shiloh that Grant took the heat for poor Union dispositions, that Grant was willing to step forward and be the strong commander, and that made all the difference to William Tecumseh Sherman. Sherman fought under Grant's general guidance for virtually the remainder of the war, during the long Vicksburg campaign at Chattanooga, and then as an army commander in 1864 and 1865. Came out of the war as second only to Grant, in the Northern Military Pantheon and succeeded Grant as as the ranking officer in the United States Army when Grant went to the White House. 
after being elected in 1868. My point is that Sherman was really only the figure we think of him uh, as being during the war, this great general, this great successful general, because of Grant. Grant was steady, reticent, self-assured. Sherman was brilliant, volatile, self-critical. Together they formed, as I said earlier, the greatest military partnership of the war. Lee and Jackson are the other great partnership, but Sherman and Grant worked on a broader strategic scale than Lee and Jackson did. It was clear from the beginning who was the superior and who the gifted lieutenant. Uh, They both came to embrace the same hard vision of war against the Confederacy and its civilians and their property. They resolved to draw on the North's superior resources, apply them sternly to the task at hand, and destroy the Southern white will to resist, even as they destroyed the capacity of the Confederate armies to remain in the field. It's inconceivable to me that the North could have won its victory as quickly, if at all, had Grant not been in place as general-in-chief, with Sherman at his side to give the Union two really effective field commanders. Now, as I said, they both embraced a hard vision of war. As early as 1862, Sherman said, we cannot change the hearts of the people of the South. He said this in a letter to Grant. We can make war so terrible that they will realize its folly. During the Atlantic campaign, he told his wife that anyone who wanted to understand the realities of war should simply follow in the track of his Union army. By the time of the Atlantic campaign, the war had aged him tremendously. He was only 42 years old. He was a chain smoker, wore a scraggly beard. Uh, His daughter at the time said that her father looked at least 60 to her. His men were devoted to him, uh, partly because he sought to avoid unnecessary combat, something soldiers almost always appreciate. He led what would be called now an army group during this campaign against Atlanta. He had three field armies under him. The Army of the Cumberland under George H. Thomas, 60,000 men. We've seen Thomas before at Chickamauga and at Chattanooga, the Rock of Chickamauga. He commands the biggest of these three Union armies under Sherman. The second is Sherman's old army, the Army of the Tennessee, commanded now by James Birdsay McPherson. McPherson was a young officer, a man of enormous potential and an enormously attractive young man. Virtually all of his peers saw great things in McPherson's future. Uh, He's commanding the Army of the Tennessee, 25,000 men. And finally, the Army of the Ohio under John M. Schofield. Uh, Schofield, another young officer of great promise, an officer who would become the ranking soldier in the U.S. Army later in the 19th century. Schofield had about 15,000 men. So here is Sherman with this mighty army, three talented subordinates, and Atlanta as his focal point. Now, in his way would be the Confederate Army of Tennessee, commanded by Joseph Eggleston Johnston. About 65,000 men at the outset of the campaign, but Johnston's army would grow to more than 80,000 before the campaign uh, reached Atlanta in July, uh, making it the second largest army the Confederacy ever put into the field. Only Lee's army during the seven days was larger than Johnston's in the latter stages of Johnston's command during the Atlanta campaign. We've seen Johnston many times in this course already. We saw him at First Manassas. We saw him during the Vicksburg campaign. He's a major presence on the military stage during the Civil War. Was wounded at Fair Oaks, as we know, or Seven Pines at the end of May 61, opening the way for Lee to assume command of the Army of Northern Virginia. He's a Virginian. 
contemporary of Lee's at West Point, had spent his entire adult life in the Army. Done very well in Mexico. Uh, had a good record in the old Army. Had been a Brigadier General of Staff in the old Army. Many of his men were devoted to him as well uh, in the Army of Tennessee, not least because Johnston succeeded Braxton Bragg. That's a wonderful uh, position to be in for any officer. If Bragg is your predecessor, you're almost certain to look better than Bragg did, and the Army welcomed Joe Johnston. His corps commanders were W.J. Hardee, perhaps the best corps commander in the Confederate Western Army, John Bell Hood, who'd been a distinguished division commander under Lee, had lost the use of one arm at Gettysburg, uh, had lost a leg at the hip at Chickamauga, a terrible wound at Chickamauga. Uh, the third corps commander was Bishop General Leonidas Polk. Now, Johnston was a defensive-minded officer for the most part. I believe he was deeply envious of Lee. Lee always seemed to be one step ahead of Johnston. Johnston masked that well from Lee, but revealed it in his letters and later in things he wrote after the war. Very jealous of his rank, uncommunicative with Jefferson Davis. He did not keep Davis informed well uh, about his plans and what he was doing. And I think he was a man who in many ways did not understand his position in a democratic society at war. Didn't understand it, certainly, as well as Lee did. And the necessity to keep your civilian superiors well informed. The necessity to pay attention to what the expectations of the people behind the lines where I don't think those were strong points with Johnston. But those are our opponents, the respective army commanders and their armies in early May 64. Now Sherman planned to use his three armies to turn Johnston out of any defensive position he might take. He could hold Johnston's attention with one army and use one or both of the other armies to get around Johnston's position. Slide around the flanks and try to catch Johnston in a compromising uh, defensive line where he could be attacked advantageously. All the while, the Federals would push toward Atlanta as they were trying to maneuver Johnston into a weak position. The railroad from Chattanooga to Atlanta would be the supply line until Atlanta fell, and then Sherman would break loose from supply lines and put into uh, play the strategy of exhaustion. Johnston hoped to delay Sherman, he said, by setting up a series of defensive positions and perhaps catching Sherman in a position where he could be assailed successfully. So Johnston said, now he didn't have much of a history of attacking anybody until forced to do so when his back was against the wall at Richmond in late May 1862, but nonetheless, that's what he said he wanted to do. And throughout the month of May, they played a chess-like game in North Georgia. Sherman flanking Johnston, who would withdraw quite skillfully and in good order to take up other positions. The Federals lost a golden opportunity to cut Johnston off from Atlanta near Wasaka, uh, on May 9th, early in the campaign, when McPherson uh, took a good piece of his army through Snake Creek Gap uh, against the rear of Johnston's army, against the railroad, and the and in a position that would put him between Johnston and Atlanta. But McPherson pulled back, and Johnston was allowed to withdraw from a position that might have been very uncomfortable for him. There was further action near Wasaka uh, until May 14th, at which time uh, Johnston uh, began a more general withdrawal. Now, some historians have blamed Sherman for not giving McPherson clear enough instructions uh, at Resaca uh, in this 
position where McPherson might have done more. Uh, others have blamed McPherson, but the point for us is that Johnston got away and the campaign continued. By May 25th, the armies were near New Hope Church, which is about 30 miles northwest of Atlanta. Heavy skirmishing took place there for several days. Each side then slipped eastward a mile or two a day until by the second week of June, they were near Marietta, Georgia. And there Johnston had his right flank posted on a very powerful uh, piece of ground called Kennesaw Mountain. Kennesaw Mountain, uh, not far from Marietta. Now Sherman had grown increasingly edgy during all of this maneuvering. He really, I believe, had expected to catch Joseph E. Johnston off guard. Uh, sooner than he didn't defeat him in battle, catch him in a really vulnerable position and use his superior numbers and the advantages conveyed by his army group organization uh, to strike a damaging blow against the rebels. But Johnston had not made any really serious blunders uh, in Sherman's front. And Sherman later remarked, uh, and I'll quote him directly, no officer or soldier who ever served under me will question the generalship of Joseph E. Johnston. His retreats were timely, and he left nothing behind. A part of this whole process was that the war had changed in terms of what the armies did as they moved along across the countryside. What they did habitually now was dig in. If the army stopped for any amount of time whatsoever, the troops would throw up field works. And those field works, of course, made every defensive position that Joseph Johnston took that much more powerful, that much more difficult to attack if you're Sherman, and sometimes more difficult to get around. These were armies that no longer fought as they had in 62 and 63. Back in the more innocent days of the war, many soldiers had considered entrenching to be unmanly, that real men fought facing each other. They didn't throw dirt up between them and the enemy. They would look each other in the eye and try to kill each other. Uh, those times are long gone. Confederates said that Sherman's men seemed to march with a rifle in one hand and a spade in the other, while the Federals joked the rebels must carry their breastworks with them because as soon as they stop, it seems that we're facing an entrenched enemy. Sherman finally ran out of patience uh, with this game of cat and mouse, and on June 27, 1864, he ordered a series of assaults against Johnston's position at Kennesaw Mountain. And again, this is a very strong position. It's a mountain that looms up uh, over the battlefield in a way that, that should give pause, uh, you would think, looking at it to anyone who was considering launching attacks. Part of the equation was that Sherman feared his men were getting used to entrenching, too used to entrenching. He thought that perhaps they had forgotten that they were the army on the aggressive. He wanted his men to have an offensive spirit, uh, to know that they were taking the war to the enemy, perhaps they were losing that edge, he thought. And assaults might remind them, said Sherman, that they were the aggressors, that this was their campaign to take to the rebels. Well, Johnston was ready for Sherman, and his army easily repulsed the Union attacks at Kennesaw Mountain. 3,000 Federals and about 600 rebels fell in the fighting at the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain. Now, these aren't heavy losses compared to what was going on in Virginia at the same time, as we'll see in our next lecture. They weren't heavy losses compared to earlier battles in the West. It's nothing like Chickamauga. It's nothing like Stones River, nothing like Shiloh. But it was enough fighting 
to satisfy Sherman, it seemed. He was willing to get back to maneuvering. Perhaps he thought this was enough blood to remind his men uh, that they were on the aggressive. But whatever reason, uh, this spasm of fighting at Kennesaw Mountain seemed to uh, be enough for Sherman. And back they went to maneuvering. Two more flanking moves forced Johnston to fall back across the Chattahoochee River into the defenses of Atlanta. Second week of July, 1864, July 9th and 10th. The Chattahoochee, many Confederates believed, should have been a great barrier to Sherman's progress. It's a major river. It was a river, it seemed, that the Confederates could have used to good advantage, uh, but Sherman quite adeptly uh, rendered it a neutral factor, and Joe Johnston gave up that line essentially without a fight. The fact that Johnston had retreated pretty much consistently without a really big battle, and Kennesaw Mountain did not qualify as a major battle, as I said, those facts left many in the Confederacy, both politicians and civilians behind the lines, and many even in Johnston's army, with a sense that Johnston was giving up too much territory too easily. And this kind of behavior seemed to fit a pattern of Johnston's military career to many of his critics especially. He'd given up a great deal of ground during the Peninsula Campaign in 1862, retreating almost into Richmond before he launched his attacks at Seven Pines or Fair Oaks. Uh, It seemed to others that he'd given up a a good deal of ground in Mississippi. Uh, in 1863. Uh, We've seen that Jefferson Davis was very upset with Johnston in Mississippi for not doing more uh, to save the army at Vicksburg or Vicksburg. I think that was an unfair criticism. But this is part of a pattern of critics in the Confederacy believing that Johnston wasn't really doing a good job. A number of diaries and letters from the time describe him as a retreater, an arch-retreater, a man who would retreat and retreat and retreat until there was simply nowhere else to retreat to. Uh, And all the time doing this without putting up a real fight. Uh, Fighting caused casualties, but the, the predominant feeling among the Confederate people through most of the war was that they wanted their armies to fight. I wanted to have a sense that their armies were taking the war to the enemy. Johnston did not seem to be doing that during the Atlanta campaign. Here he was. He had allowed himself to be driven all the way to Atlanta. There hadn't been a great uh, cataclysmic battle. Something seemed to be wrong. The Confederate cabinet voted to remove Joseph Johnston from command. Both Hardy and Hood, Johnston's principal subordinates, also supported the move. Now, Leonidas Polk uh, might have supported that. We don't know because Polk had been killed on June 14th at Pine Mountain. No one knows how he would have voted, but the other two senior subordinates said, move Johnston aside. Bring in someone else who will fight. In mid-July, Jefferson Davis asked Johnson what his plans were. How are you going to save Atlanta? What are you going to do? What are your long-term plans? And Johnston gave one of his usual evasive replies, so vague that it infuriated Jefferson Davis. Again, very typical of Johnston not to keep Davis well informed. The two men loathed one another, as we've seen before. Uh, Their hatreds, uh, their animosities going all the way back to when Johnston was not made the senior field commander in the Confederacy when he was put behind Robert E. Lee, put behind Albert Sidney Johnston, that he never got over that. That rankled uh, for the rest of his life, really, and poisoned his relations with Davis. Uh, many other actions contributed to that. And here is Davis once again experiencing frustration 
with Joseph E. Johnston. Davis knew how important Atlanta was. It's a rail center, a manufacturing and distribution center. Uh, psychologically, it is clearly the second most important city in the Confederacy at this stage of the war. Only Richmond was more important. And so many other important cities in the West are already gone. New Orleans is gone, and Nashville is gone, and Memphis is gone, and Chattanooga is gone. Atlanta assumes greater and greater importance. Davis finally decided, because the fall of Atlanta could be so detrimental, hurt Southern morale so much, inflict such a crippling logistical blow, he decided that it was necessary to ease Johnston aside and try someone else in command of the Army of Tennessee. July 17th, Johnston is out. His replacement, John Bell Hood. Now, this proved to be a very controversial decision in hindsight because, as we'll see, uh, see later, John Bell Hood proved to be a disastrous choice as an Army commander. He was not up to Army command, and he did a very poor job, especially during his Tennessee campaign of late 1864. So in retrospect, when former Confederates uh, looked back at this period and wrote about it, they wrote about Davis's decision to remove Johnston, knowing that John Bell Hood would not do well. And they excoriated Davis, many of them, for replacing Johnston with Hood. How could you put Hood in place of Johnston, they asked. Well, there was much less of that sentiment at the time, although there was some of it. A number of people wondered whether Hood was really up to the task. Robert E. Lee, in a very uh, carefully worded response to Jefferson Davis's question about Hood, uh, at one point suggested that Hood was certainly a bold fighter, but whether he had the qualities necessary for uh, authority and responsibility beyond that, Lee was not so sure about. What Davis was sure about is that Joseph Johnston had to go. And I think Johnston himself is mostly to blame. He never fully revealed his plans uh, to Davis, who consequently suspected that Johnston didn't really have a plan. He had given up a great deal of ground. There was dissatisfaction from many quarters, and Davis thought the change necessary. Now, many of the men in the Army of Tennessee were upset when Johnston was removed. As I said, there was considerable uh, friendly sentiment toward Johnston in the Army. But I think this has also been exaggerated uh, after the fact, after it became clear how poor a job John Hood would do. Many of the soldiers, when they wrote their post-war reminiscences, uh, lamented the fact that Hood had replaced Johnston. But at the time, many of these soldiers said that although, in essence, they would say, although we like General Johnston, we admire him in some ways, we wish that he would put up a fight. We wish that he wouldn't give up so much ground. So I think opinion was mixed uh, in the Army of Tennessee. Johnston's strategy of controlled withdrawal had not been without a fairly high cost. He, the best scholarly estimates, the recent estimates, I suggest that Johnston suffered uh, fifteen to 20,000 casualties in the phase of the campaign that went from early May down through mid-July 1864. But now John Bell Hood is in command, a man with a reputation as a headlong fighter, uh, first and foremost. Hardy was very upset by Hood's promotion. Hardy was senior to Hood. Uh, he left the Army, extremely unhappy with this. For duty elsewhere, he's off. He'll, we'll see him very late in the war, but not for a good long while. Sherman was probably quite pleased. Now he faced a man who probably would attack him, and we'll talk more about Hood's options uh, in a later lecture as well. And this, 
Uh, an enemy attacking him is something that Sherman would have welcomed. He might have a chance to break the numerically weaker Southern army and then exploit his success. Phase one of the Atlanta campaign came to a close with Hood's elevation to command. Nearly 10 weeks of campaigning had elapsed, brought the Federals to this doorstep of Atlanta, but had not yielded the great prize of Atlanta. The fact uh, that Hood is put in command isn't a cause for great rejoicing in the North. Northern morale is at a very difficult point at this stage of the war. The Northern people had expected success in Virginia and Georgia by this time. They didn't have it. Sherman was at Atlanta, but he wasn't in Atlanta. So this isn't a great victory. This isn't an inspiring uh, campaign to this point that is lifting northern morale. Northern morale is, is edging toward its lowest point of the whole war at this stage, which makes it all the more vital that uh, William Tecumseh Sherman get in to Atlanta. But we'll leave him here, the outskirts of Atlanta, and in our lex uh, next lecture we will take up Grant's part of the simultaneous advances of 1864, uh, the great confrontation between Grant and Lee that would be at the heart of what came to be called the Overland Campaign. <laughs>